You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. got to be on my way. I'm swimming home. You're swimming home? I figured out there's a river of pools all the way to my house. Crazy idea. I think it's a brilliant idea. Well, what are you doing it for? Why do you want to do it? I think it's very original. I mean, I think it's an adventure. Come with me. You never knew I had a big crush on you. You did? I was mad about you. Out of my head. Come with me. Ned, please don't. Please leave me alone. We made love together in this pool. And you loved it, remember? I lied. You loved it, Shirley. I didn't. You loved it. God, what a beautiful feeling. We could have swum around the world in those days. That was before we ever touched a drink or a cigarette. Or a girl. <laughs> or a girl. That doesn't sap a man's strength. Or I'd be in a wheelchair today. Ned girl, still bragging. never heard anyone talk like you. Come with me. Be my love. <laughs> that I've heard before. Not for me. You're no different than any other guy. Oh, but I am. I'm a very special human being. There you were, smiling, saying hello. One hour before that, you'd been in bed with me. I put that smile on your face, you damned hypocrite. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me for this pool party this week in his fashionable polka dot bikini is co-host emeritus, Mr. Rob St. Mary. Hey, um, can you turn the heat up a little? Also in for this dip is Mr. Elra Kane. Yeah, I'm already a couple gimlets deep. This week we are looking at The Swimmer, the 1968 film from Frank and Eleanor Perry, based on the John Cheever short story of the same name. It stars Burt Lancaster as Ned Merrill, a Connecticut executive, upper-middle-class suburbanite type, who decides to head home through swimming... Sorry, who decides to head back home by swimming through the pools of his neighbors, turning them into a river in his mind, which he calls the Lucinda River, in honor of his wife. Along the way, Ned is met with drinks, laughs, reminders of his affairs that went sour, and maybe even reminders that he pretends... Oh, sorry. And maybe even reminders that what he pretends to be may be no more. 
We will be getting to massive spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen The Swimmer, I cannot recommend enough that you turn this podcast off. Go get the Grindhouse releasing re-release of this overlooked gem and dive in. Don't worry, we'll be waiting for you on the other side. Now, Elric, when was the first time you saw The Swimmer, and what did you think? I think I sort of about 15 years ago or so on VHS, it was late, uh, you know, post-college, uh, the main kind of period of cinephilia that kind of got me into films, and I had not heard of Frank Perry yet, and so it was the first film that randomly off a shelf, uh, me and a friend watched, and we really couldn't believe what we're seeing in terms of just being such an interesting uh, movie, like a hallucination of a movie, which, you know, I f- you get to a period when you watch a lot of 70s, 60s and 70s films where you really feel like you've seen all the best stuff, and then we just, that was totally blindsided by it and then spent the rest of the time tra- trying to track down more Frank Perry's work. How about you, Rob? I did not see this until Grindhouse Releasing put it out a few years ago. Um, I had read a few kind of reviews about it, and I thought, eh, why not? Uh, it appears I have a tendency with Grindhouse Releasing as of late to uh, buy all of the stuff that isn't uh, Grindhouse. Um, uh, those who do not know this company, uh, Bob Morowski, who... Um, uh, probably best known as the editor of a lot of Sam Raimi stuff, specifically the uh, Spider-Man films that he did, uh, has a little re-release label, and he does all kinds of, uh, it appears most of the time, 70s um, and early 80s Italian uh, really gory horror films. And um, I have yet to watch any of that stuff, but for some reason, between this and an American Hippie in Israel, um He's been hitting it out of the park with the uh, less gore titles in there. So I bought it, watched it, and then I said to you, I go, yeah, we should do this on the show because I think it's really interesting. And um, maybe we could find some more people and interesting folks. And as you noted up front, uh, this Blu-ray DVD combo they have is uh, absolutely jam-packed full of stuff, including a documentary that I believe runs longer than the feature itself, much like this show, which will probably run way longer than the film itself, which is only about 90 minutes. I remember buying this on VHS in the mid to late 90s. I don't remember who told me about this film, and I wish that I had. And it was just one of these, the description of the film, a guy decides that he can swim home uh, via the pools and other people's backyards, and he meets a lot of interesting people along the way. That sold me. I just said, okay, yeah, sign me up. Let's do it. Before I even knew that it was Burt Lancaster, before I definitely knew who Frank Perry was. And yeah, I just completely fell in love with this. And I have to say, the VHS, a little beat up around the edges. Uh, Maybe the colors weren't as good as they could have been. The sound mix maybe wasn't so good either. This Blu-ray was definitely a breath of fresh air. And yeah, I when I heard about all of the extras on it, I was like, okay, great, sign me up, because I just kept asking myself, how the hell did a movie like this get made? I mean, it was 1968 that this movie comes out, and it has that feel of new American cinema that we're going to see much more in the 70s. You guys know how much I love 70s films, and this one felt like a 70s film that came two years before the 70s began. It felt right in line with things like Easy Rider and some of these other groundbreaking films of the late 60s that moved us into that era. And yeah, I uh, every time I watch this movie, I catch a little bit more. And this is one of those movies, too, I want to say this right up front, where you have to watch this movie more than one time, because then you start to realize just how brilliant it is, because there are 
moments and things and signs that may not necessarily be obvious to you the first time you watch it, but then when you watch it the second time, things become much more clear. And we know from discussions on the show before that movies that require more than one viewing, wow, that's a lot of investment. And so people tend to not necessarily think about stuff after they watch it and any kinds of twists and turns might throw you off the ride. And I think this might've been one of those movies that just kind of took people by surprise and they didn't necessarily see where the film was headed because it was done in such a skillful way. One thing I wanted to add on your point about this uh, feeling like new Hollywood is to me, it actually feels like a studio film trying to become that because it's not quite there yet because um, as we'll get into, it was originally started in 66. It was when it was shot. So it has these elements in it that feel like a studio film. It's got this big score. It's got a certain method of acting, um, certain things like that. I mean, to me uh, in a way uh, in that sort of uh, pastiche of it's going somewhere between, but the people who are watching it don't quite know what's coming yet. Like we know looking at it almost 50 years on kind of what would come next. But um, it almost feels like when I watched uh, the killing where if you watch uh, Kubrick's the killing, there's all these different styles of acting in there. Uh, there's those that are doing that really heavy emotive thirties, forties acting. And then there's people who are trying to get a little more modern. So it has this odd character you know, it has this odd feel, and um, I really noticed it this time when I watched it, is um, it's trying to stick to certain s studio expectations while at the same time going somewhere else, and it, it it's a transitional piece, I think. And like all films where you're, you're a director is ahead of the curb, it, you know, we'll talk about the troubled production, but you see why it hurt the film so much, you know, because you have one person at the top of this pyramid who is ahead of the curve and is almost, uh, he kind of condescendingly is put down as almost an experimental filmmaker by the, by the actual studio who are backing the film and that's a way to kind of take him out of the production. And so it's pretty interesting that you're, you know, five years later, it could have been a totally different story. The movie starts off very interestingly. We start off in the fall, which I don't know is necessarily the most successful way to do it because seasons play a huge part of this film. And I would almost think that because the passage of time also is a major theme of this. And I don't know if it necessarily works that we start in the fall. I mean, there's this kind of magical realism to the film where we have a storm that's coming in as the movie progresses. Things start to get darker. And I, I would almost like to see the seasons change a little bit more because as we go through the film, we realize that Nettie thinks that it is a different time of year than it necessarily is. And we, the audience, know right off the bat from this opening credit sequence that this is securely in the fall. So it's a little off-putting when later on he's like, oh, what, what's going on with the leaves on this tree? And we see the we have already seen leaves that have fallen in the water uh, from the opening credits. Also interesting in the opening credits is that we're kind of uh, – we hear footsteps and we're following Ned's journey – but we never know where Ned comes from. He just kind of comes out of the woods and dives into his first pool of the film. And that's the only thing that we know. We get no backstory for this guy. We don't know where he came from and we only get to know where he's going. But I will say that I appreciate that mystery. And that's really kind of core to the film is that we know nothing about Nettie and that we are learning 
about him almost as he's learning about him. He has some recollection of the past, but there are many times where he keeps getting confronted with things that he does not remember. And I love the uh, first shot that we see we get of of his face because it's always uh, in the beginning uh, from the back. We see the back, he jumps into the pool, and as he emerges out of the pool, right next to his face, someone hands him a drink, and then the line of dialogue is, Where have you been keeping yourself? Oh, here and there, here and there. So, it's not because our service is bad, huh? What a day. You ever see such a glorious day? Come on. Say hello to Helen. Right. And then it's, well, we've missed you. So as things go on, what I've been able to figure out from this first sequence, like I said, each sequence is interesting because if you're going to break them all down into, okay, what's the theme of this scene and how does it build on the next one and and then add to your understanding of who this person is and why they're there and what's going on. It's a Sunday morning. The the folks, the first people he met had been drinking too much the night before, which one thing that goes completely through this film is sort of a cultural alcoholism is what I'll say. Uh, just the expectation that everybody drinks and probably they drink to excess most days is what I'm led to believe. And that he has about a two to three year gap in his mind, I think, from the last time anyone has seen him. And he can't quite remember what's happened in the last two to three years to the point where as it gets further along, people are like, huh? You know, and we'll get more into that later. Yeah, I'm not even convinced it's fall. Like, I, I wonder if it's so fractured, the opening sequence, even the way it's shot, and it's all used almost from his perspective before he finally emerges. And a certain events in the film, like the swimming pool, uh, the public pool, are, seem so rooted in summer that I think that that opening might be two to three years ago whenever the fracture happened to him. Whatever happened, whatever he's endured happened in that opening sequence, and that's what we're seeing, this kind of scattered vision of... Of, of things and then he enters the scene kind of jacked up uh when he comes in and he, like he's been running from something uh probably you know his reality or whatever that whatever that is as it takes form but so the seasons and this time gap uh in classic film am- amnesia away is really uh open-ended and i think it adds a lot but the seasons at the start i almost feel like that might not be events happening as he runs in but something from an earlier time and those photos of the um, stock footage of the animals in the front, I think that might also add to your feeling of uh, fall because there's an owl in there that obviously appears to be taken either in low light or at night. They try to cheat it a little bit to make it seem like it's all all these animals fit, but you can you can obviously tell, especially with the Blu-ray. I know they probably weren't expecting this when you're watching <laughs> in the theater to be able to go. Well, the grain on that one's a little much compared to the other one, and the lighting's a bit different. And you know they tried to do their best, but uh, but some of the animal shots in the beginning, um, I, I think, or uh, I, I guess they work in the larger context of maybe his mentality, uh, but we don't know his mentality yet. So um, it's a, it, I, I just thought that those inch, those inserts were a little, were a little interesting at times. It's interesting. And, and we'll talk much more about the script as we go throughout uh, this conversation, but 
this in the script they are uh, Eleanor is so specific as to even give us a breakdown a, a series of drawings to tell us what the opening credits are going to be and they basically start with him uh, coming out of the forest and jumping into the pool so it's all of that stuff beforehand the whole credit sequence is really kind of tacked on and it doesn't start until he comes out he jumps in the pool and it's the moment when he is at the edge and he kind of jumps back into the pool that's when the title would come up and then we would start off with that glass coming into the frame that would probably be the directed by frank perry frame and then we're into the movie proper so it's uh, that all of that prologue has that weird off tone and i think it's because i don't think perry had anything to do with that at all and even and now this is really pedantic but i'm going to say it anyway even the choice of font for the opening credits it's not something i would go for it looks almost like it's more of a western movie than it is <laughs> what it ends up being so i'm just like this is the strangest font why yeah. would they choose this which is that font and when you look at the trailer like i said reminds me of uh, a studio film like they're trying to put these uh, studio polish on top of this thing and at times it's so obvious that it doesn't work or it just seems out of place and again my question where is Nettie coming from because he's walking around in his trunks like we never see <laughs> but I, I I feel bad for Burt Lancaster because he had to spend the entire movie just in a pair of trunks. And that's it. Completely barefoot. And I'm wondering if they had to do some sort of like Peter Jackson Middle Earth thing to the bottoms of his feet to toughen him up or something. Because just like, my God, there are so many scenes where I see this guy running and I'm watching his feet hitting the ground. I'm just like, I, that, that's got to hurt. Especially when he's on gravel and stuff. I'm just like, what? The, how the hell did they protect this guy's feet? And yeah, it's like one of the things my wife was watching this with me and she's just like, boy, they sure saved a lot on wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> Get me uh, five blue swimsuits. That's, That's it. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, we have Nettie in his trunks. We have the whole revelation of the party scene. And they talk about how he's been away for so long that he's almost a new face. And I love this moment when he kind of he finds out that one of the neighbors has a new pool installed and that's the moment of his revelation as far as when he figures out that he can swim his way home and that's one of the first odd moments of montage that we get when we get this close up of his eyes and we go up to the sky and we are like doing all these crossfades and it is his moment of inspiration but I do love it, too, when he's talking about all of the people who have the pools and he's kind of laying it out. Uh, he can see this map in his mind and he gets to the point where he goes, OK, and then there's the Bizwangers and then who's next to the Bizwangers? And he can't remember who's next to the Bizwangers. And then finally, one of the people that's there by the pool says, oh, that's Shirley Abbott. And they say it in such a way that you don't really necessarily know at first that there's something there with Shirley Abbott. And then when you watch this movie the second time, you're like, oh, that's really peculiar that he would forget who Shirley Abbott is. And it's nice that we have that extra little oomph in there after watching this the first time to find out why he would want to not remember who Shirley Abbott is. Why would you want to swim home? I don't get it. 
Pool by pool, they form a river. All the way to our house. Well, I suppose you could put it that way. Now, Nettie, why don't you sit down and have a drink and, and then we'll all go to the Grahams? I'll call it the Lucinda River. After my wife. That's quite a tribute. This is the day Ned Merrill swims across the county. Always threw himself into the water like that. God, what energy. He keeps himself in shape. Oh, come on. He always ate like a horse, never put on an ounce. Look at that. Wouldn't use the ladder, not Ned. Hey, Ned. Hey, Ned, where are you going? Where'd he get that nutty idea? He's just joking. You sure? Sure. We'll find him waiting for us down at the Grand. God, I hate Columbus. Swim to his house. Why would he want to do that? You were just talking about the kind of the pools and the sky and the uh, the match over his eyes and the casting of Burt Lancaster. I mean, his eyes are as blue as the uh, the waters in this film, and it's it's kind of a remarkable bit of casting. Like, I th- there's something really perfect about the way that kind of syncs up, and then this visionary quest that he uh, quixotic kind of adventure he goes on. It's pretty great. What's really weird is that his eyes were actually dark brown. That's all CGI. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> what well, also seems like, uh, you know, I remember when I saw Mad Men, I remember thinking if Mad Men, the show just ended with Don Draper doing this whole movie, if the last two episodes, because it is it's completely the template for this character of Ned Merrill, you know, that character uh, from start to end. And it felt like so, somebody who's defined by their success through, you know, uh, success at work and w- with woman and everything else is kind of a near. So it's, you know, when you say, where did he come from? Um, going back to that, it's it's interesting because we've played. I mean, I feel like with Mad Men, you got to watch seven or so seasons of this character, a very similar kind of character play out. So I don't I don't know where do you want to where do you want to pick up in terms of uh, his movement. I want to talk about smacking Kim Hunter's ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why why do you want to talk about smacking Kim Hunter's ass? Well, it's interesting because they pick up uh, in the Cheever short story. They start with Ned in the house, and he apparently has been a house guest. The The beginning of the story is much different insofar as he's a guest at this house, and he slides down their banister. He was a slender man. He seemed to have the especial slenderness of youth. And while he was far from young, he had slid down his banister that morning and given the bronze backside of Aphrodite in the hall table a smack as he jogged toward the smell of coffee in his dining room. He might have been compared to a summer's day, particularly the last hours of one. And while he locked a tennis racket or a sailbag, the impression was definitely one of youth, sport, and clement weather. <clears throat> he had been swimming, and now he was breathing deeply, stertoriously, as if he could gulp into his lungs the components of that moment, the heat of the sun, the intenseness of his pleasure. It all seemed to flow into his chest. His own house stood in Bullet Park, eight miles to the south, or his four beautiful daughters would have had their lunch and might be playing tennis. Then it occurred to him that by taking a dog leg to the southwest, he could reach his home by water. I mean, we really play up this whole idea of a young boy turning into an old man in the short story. And one of the lines is that he slaps the statue of Aphrodite in the rump as he's after he slides down the banister. And one of the things that is always interesting to me, too, is that Lucinda is actually there uh, 
at the opening, uh, it, she just gets like one line. Heard it from the golf links in the tennis courts. Heard it from the wildlife preserve. <clears throat> Where the leader of the Audubon group was suffering from a terrible hangover. I drank too much last night, said Donald Westerhazy. We all drank too much, said Lucinda Merrill. It must have been the wine, said Donald Westerhazy. I drank too much of that claret. <clears throat> this was at the edge of the Westerhazy's pool. Which and it just doesn't necessarily fit that she's there because we learn throughout the rest of the film that she's gone. Now Lucinda is his wife, and we can assume as we learn more that she's his ex-wife, and him calling this the Lucinda River is very telling as well that he has dedicated this river to his wife and he thinks that at the end of it he's going to be reunited with her and his girls only to find something completely different at the end but um, I appreciate him coming in and smacking uh, Kim Hunter on the rump and then this whole weird playful but kind of hurtful thing that he does with her character where he tells her that he was really upset when she married her husband because uh, he really had a thing for her and she buys it at first but then he kind of breaks character a little bit and she appears pretty hurt by it because it feels like she was uh, really taking it um you know like oh well why didn't you tell me that you were in love with me which will come back later on in another character so he is kind of um stabbing her a little bit when it comes to uh, this emotional game that he's playing and he just seems to play games with women's emotions throughout this film yeah, I mean, I think he's incredibly self-centered. I think that's he, the casting of Burt Lancaster again is great because he's he's charming. He's got that smile, and then behind that, it seems like they're constantly showing his shortcomings through each interaction with you know the different people throughout. Yeah, and another moment where we learn that things may not be as they seem is when the husband comes in and they're talking about Ned's house, and he says, "I want my girls to be married in that house." And the husband gives this very visual, visible pause and just like, well, you know, what's going on here? And the movie just kind of brushes it off or Ned uh, brushes it off because he is oblivious to this and he just wants to live his little fantasy life. And he's off to the pool and off to the next one. And then I have to say that that amazing cut to that. Uh, we, because there's a, a smash cut in here where we cut from him in Kim Hunter's pool to coming up, and now he's at the pool of Mrs. Hammer. And Mrs. Hammer is so cold to him. And I love when he's like, when she's like, Who gave you permission? And he just says, I'm Ned Merrill. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. all the permission he needs. And he's just like, Well, come on, I'm Ned Merrill. And right. that's the attitude that he has throughout so much of this film. And I think that's the attitude that he's always had. Can I uh, back up real quick to uh, the last scene before Mrs. Hammer? Sure. There's a thing in there that I really like, which um, I think these kind of build and help to show that he's building a fantasy while everyone else in a way is kind of building a fantasy as well, or at least constructing some sort of, reality for themselves that they believe is correct and and one that i really love in here is when they're having this debate about um the the husband comes in and they're talking about how clean the pool water is 
and um, says, you know, it's uh, it's purer than drinking water. And it's like, here, you know, have a martini. So he's drinking again. He's at the second pool. And the the way that he explains the the pumping system, the the husband sounds like a sales brochure. It's a great pool you've got here. <laughs> Ned's just crazy about our pool. I didn't skimp on anything. I got a diatomaceous earth filler in there. Betty told me. Fill us out 99.99.99% of all solid matter in the water. That's what Betty said. she tell you about the swing joints I got in there? Spin guns pool split right down the middle. Three months after the guarantee ran out. No swing joints. But Ned doesn't even know the spin guns. Let me tell you about the spin guns. Now, they're the kind of people who skimp. Just look at the color of that sky. And you kind of get the feeling that... All of these people who live in this community, they've all bought in to commercialism. They've all bought in to what the society expectation is. They've all bought in to a certain extent to uh, the, the niceties of things. Um, I get the feeling that if people had not bought into those expectations so much that probably when he got to the first pool, they would have said, you're crazy. Like, your wife, like, What? Like they, they would have called him out, but since they're all about keeping up these facades, they're all about keeping up these expectations and, and sort of, uh, working in that way, they, they don't, they, they have a certain role they have to play. They have a certain expectation within that community or that neighborhood they have to play. And that's how they work it. And because he takes a drink, they're willing to kind of go with it. That keeps up the facade. I feel like if he said, "Oh, I'm okay. I don't need a drink," that would that would be the telling sign that you know something's wrong with him. And also, you're talking about the pools as commercialism, and there's uh, they also be because obviously it's symbolic throughout the film, but it's really fascinating to rewatch it again and realize that no one actively goes swimming yeah he's the only one who actively goes swimming he except he drags somebody else along with him uh even when you have the cameo uh of cheever he's on a tire floating on the water no one's actually in the pure water ever right well, it's pretty pretty interesting yeah and that whole ridiculous thing that both uh kim hunter and her husband say verbatim about the water being 99.99.99 percent pure is just like yeah, this is right out of the sales brochure, and the way that they just say the exact same lines with the same inflection, it's like, yeah, you were sold a bill of goods, and that's all you need. And I love, too, when they're talking about traveling, and it's like, well, why travel? We've got everything here that we need. To me, it's just about the idea of of the suburban expectation. I mean, these people are living uh, what is expected to be the best life. They they all have great jobs. They have great houses. Their kids are wonderful. They have all of these things, and maybe underneath it all, they're as crazy as him. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. You know, really, how happy are they? Uh, I think as you go further on, you start to see that there's a mix. I mean, you get the idea that there are those who are happier than others. Uh, in one scene, I, I really like this one couple, and I guess we'll talk about them later, uh, that seem to allow their freak flag to fly, and they're probably the most well-adjusted and happy people of anyone because they really have nothing to hide, literally. So, um, you know, uh, to each his own. Yeah, and the Mrs. Hammer scene, going back to that, that is where... For me, as a as a first time viewer, that's the first time that I really realized that something was so off with this, and that Ned is experiencing this missing time, because she 
starts to talk about her son and he's just like, oh, well, how is he? And she's like, you never came to see him. You never called. And then the music starts to change and she tells him to never come back. And it's just like, oh, wow, something really bad has happened here, but we don't know what it is. And that is one of many really bad things that have happened that we don't know what it is. And at least with other ones, we start to figure out more what's happened. But with this one, it becomes it remains a mystery. We don't know. We can only assume what has happened here, but Ned is very confused. Thus we're very confused. The music is putting us on end. And then we get this strange cut to this really smeary Vaseline lens kind of thing, which I guess is supposed to be his POV as he's running through the forest running along this road but it's obviously shot from a car so it's just like okay this can't necessarily be him but we're really just what it is is a passage of time a passage of space but it's kind of an odd transition for us and this is the horse as well right (laughs) oh god yeah yeah that again a close-up of burt lancaster's amazing blue eyes and then that weird flashback to a horse on a beach and then a horse in real life so i'm like okay well why the two horses but it kind of makes sense in this movie because there are so many rhymed scenes so many pairs of scenes like we'll have two party scenes we'll have two black guys we'll have two uh, 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 bartenders we'll have two of this two of that and in here we have two horses and even with this we kind of get a rhyme later on when Burt Lancaster becomes a horse in a scene where he's on this uh, dressage course but yeah this bizarro scene of him racing a horse I mean such the symbol of virility and he is still showing that he is at his prime and that he can take on this horse and race him and is it fantasy like that's the other thing because did he actualize some memory you know he's remembering something maybe from childhood and then the next scene suddenly there's a horse that perfectly races him straight out of almost a very different kind of movie and it makes you wonder what there's no one else there to experience this with him so are we is this the case of like an unreliable narrator narrative perhaps you know it's 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 a very strange uh sequence but it it works because a lot of things are left mysterious and unexplained even on repeat viewings we even going back to lucinda and being there in the story but not being there in this story we still don't know what happened to her even right. upon multiple rewatches you'll have different ideas but the three of us probably would have all different uh you know direct uh ideas what happened to her and i think maybe right now might be a good place for me to kind of get into some symbolism because the horse is the most like look at the horse you know <laughs> symbolism yeah so trot it out so yeah, to speak yeah exactly so so i i guess maybe we could take a break here a little pause to talk about symbolism in the film uh let's start with the horse kind of go out from there so so i have this great book uh tashin put out a few years ago it's called the book of symbols reflections on archetypal images and it's basically a dictionary of of symbols and in it uh kind of talks about the horse uh you know, throughout ancient use, how it's worked with us as a partner. We've tamed them. We've come to know them. They've helped us open the West. We've attached our carts to them. Uh, They're symbols of aristocracy. They've enabled betting. 
it, it says the the idea you know th- i i thought of um you know like the rolling stones song right you know wild horses when we say you know wild horses couldn't keep me away um all of these other ways in which horses are symbolized you know it is a transcendence for man as it says in here you know you can also think about it biblically biblically right the four horsemen of the apocalypse so so the horse has a very symbolic uh place in in western culture um here i think it kind of represents maybe an unbridled spirit uh for him because as you see it's not hooked up to anything it doesn't have a saddle uh it's just kind of running free it may in some way for him it represents some sort of subconscious uh element of himself or how he would like to view himself especially when him and then the teenage girl who he picks up and they start going along do this sort of dressage kind of uh jumping uh (laughs) element as well which i thought was rather odd and when it's telling every time his reality is uh, challenged by truth and he gets down and we have like a depressive moment in his narrative where he could probably stop his mission, something changes for, the, for him to go back into this almost dream state, uh, whether it's the, you know, the horse appearing and it keeps him going. So you're, I think you're right with the, uh, him feeling untethered in that moment. And, you know, the, this mission is, is completely free and possible. Uh, it's kind of the structure of the story that every time it goes down, it has to have a, a backup, whether it's running into the babysitter or horse. And it's, yeah, it's an interesting narrative in that sense. A stallion's got to run and run free. Well, I mean, also looking at the other main elements in here, obviously related to water. So, okay, first the title, swimming, right? So swimming, according to the book, it says, returns us to our primal origins of water. So the idea of being in the womb, right? Um, of floating, of being free in that way. Um, also looking at the idea of river. There's so many uses of river uh, within mythology, such as crossing the river Styx. When we say someone dies, they've crossed over. Um, the idea of, of a river as a flowing representation of time in some manner. So all of these things are in there in terms of symbolism, if you want to sit there and really kind of ruminate on them, uh, understand why they're in there. I also think it's kind of telling as well well for himself that his um his wife's name is lucinda and if you know latin the the use of l-u-c you know such as in lucifer uh, means light or illuminated so she her name lucinda comes from light so he's heading towards the light uh in some way um and maybe swimming against the current, you know, like this impossible feat of trying to swim against what's possible and which is going back into your past is very much there, too. Exactly. And then when you look at his name. What does it mean? I'm an American, honey. Our names don't mean shit. Ned is a version of Edward in Anglo-Saxon, wealth, fortune, prosperous, and also guardian protector. So uh, what we come to learn is actually, no, he's not wealthy. He has no fortune. He's not prosperous. Uh, It doesn't appear that he's been able to even protect himself or his family to a certain extent. And as a matter of fact, uh, what we learn through um, through his conversations is it was actually his wife that had all the money. So he was keeping up appearances on someone else's dime. So that's rather interesting. So um, I, I think the use of names, the use of symbolism in here, is quite interesting. So, take what you want from it, uh, dear listener and viewer. 
this um the introduction of the babysitter is very interesting because the we have well first off we have a, a character named Muffy which you don't run across too often <laughs> but uh we have Muffy uh Julian Hopper and her brother Vernon Hopper and again time now is all out of whack and as we watch this scene we have Nettie really forgetting just how old people are and the way that, well, he really, he changes his daughter's ages throughout the film uh, kind of to suit his own purposes. And in this part, he is pretending or thinking that they are young girls. So when he talks to Julianne, who was his babysitter before for his girls, he was like, oh, yeah, we can always use a babysitter. How about this Sunday? I come over and pick you up. And she's just like, what? They're going to be angry as heck what a babysitter and then when he meets her brother he's just like well your brother was this high you know and he's so confused about how much this guy has aged and this is such a it's an interesting thing that you were talking about before rob as far as like the whole idea of everybody drinking throughout this movie because even here we have uh we do have these kids are in the pool which uh doesn't necessarily happen with a lot of the adults who just stand around and admire the water the kids are in the pool but they're really kind of aping the adult behavior because as soon as he comes in it's like oh do you want a drink and i um uh, I was kind of mad because they give him a Coke and the guy just doesn't drink it whatsoever. He's just like holding it, you know, passing around, but he never takes a swig. And it's just like, come on, dude, you, you just totally wasted that Coke, but whatever. Um, and then even later on when he meets a, a little boy, the little boy, uh, he has to barter for this one, but he gets some lemonade from him. So everybody, no matter where we're at, there's always drinking happening, whether it's Coke, lemonade, gin, scotch, whatever you have. And this uh, introduces us to this Julianne Hopper character who ends up being a fairly major character in the film, though it's very odd to me. And I kind of wish I knew what the original scenes uh, of these things were like, because at the beginning of the next scene where she goes away with him and even later on with another scene, there are so many moments where we don't see them talking. We just hear them talking over these kind of montage images of them. And I kept wondering how much of this is, has been changed in post. And there are so many moments in this film where you can really tell the dialogue has been done, you know, uh, afterwards done in post. And I just kept thinking how much of this dialogue was in the original versus how much was changed when they came back later on. So we have that odd transition of those two going away and it kind of comes back to them proper and this is another odd scene because he comes in, uh, they come into this little clearing and he's just like, oh, it's funny, marigolds at this time of the year. And yeah. marigolds allegedly come in later in the year, at least according to this movie. And according to this movie, marigolds look a lot like black-eyed Susans because I didn't see any marigolds in this scene whatsoever. <laughs> So he doesn't even know what year it is. How's he meant to keep up with flowers? Come on, yeah, right? yeah, Give him yeah. a break. I mean, he doesn't work in a flower shop. I mean, from what <laughs> I've been able to figure out is that he's an he's an executive. He's a creative, or at least he was a creative executive at some sort of firm. So maybe he was in advertising and marketing is what I'm able to figure out. Which goes back to your question on uh, Mad Men, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, there, everything within the sequence has got this kind of Lolita-esque vibe, obviously. 
uh, and I, I, I don't know what the reason for shooting it from so far away, if that was done in post or not, but uh, maybe there's something about if we were watching it up too close, maybe it would, we would struggle to believe uh, some of the scene. I don't know, because, you know, it's, it's an interesting confession that she's, you know, talking about this kind of childhood love or crush that she had on him. And, and here you're t- talking to a guy who's in an ego freefall, just looking to claw onto something and, and, and you're giving him this exactly what he needs in that moment. And they go off together to the bunkers for this party. And I love to compare the two parties, this party and then the party we're going to get later on. And this party, it's pretty good as far as there are some weird moments as far as people coming up. And, you know, uh, is it undiplomatic to ask how Lucinda is? You know, these kind of things. Uh, The one guy who comes up and tells him, you know, it was a stinking thing what they did to you at your place. And talking about this young guy who came in and uh, another guy who tells him, oh, yeah, if you uh, uh, need a job, you know, uh, uh, come on over here. It might be a a cut and pay. And, uh, you know, and Ned is just completely oblivious. He's just like, what are you talking about? And it's like, look, Ned, you don't have to pretend with me. So we have those kind of odd moments, but for the most part, people are very happy to see him, um, which is uh, different than we're going to get at the next party where everyone is very uh, abusive to him and not happy at all to have him. But here everyone is so happy to see Ned because it feels like he's, uh, well, I guess literally he's come out of the wilderness and here he is again. And um, like the whole idea of this bartender, the bartender is super friendly to him. Now this is going to be one of the few African-American characters that we have in this film. And the way that he treats this guy is interesting, especially compared to the way that he treats this other guy that we'll have later on. And it's just this, like, you know, all bartenders love me, all people of service love me kind of thing. It just feels like he is so full of himself. Again, you know, I'm Ned Merrill. That's all the explanation you need. And no wonder women just throw themselves at my feet. I'm Ned Merrill. No wonder bartenders are all so cool to me. I'm Ned Merrill. And if anybody does anything different, that's when he starts to feel that kind of shock. Yeah, he's really he's really getting uh, kind of pinged around uh, as he goes through this. His ego, he's going from one thing, you know, kind of on a high that I'm Ned Merrill, and each adventure or each kind of interaction is uh, giving, tweaking him a little because you know this guy doesn't recognize him. I haven't seen you at any of the parties again. How many years have gone by since he was that Ned Merrill? And it just as it goes, all these chinks in his armor start to you know kind of take hold. It was really nice to see Diana Moldar in here, uh, a.k.a. Dr. Pulaski from Star Trek The Next Generation. And she is looking really hot. And she is very hot to trot for Ned as well, <laughs> which is great, like to the point where it's like... Beautiful Cynthia. Neddy! <laughs> Darling! Hi. Where's Carter? Well, haven't you heard? We've separated. <laughs> this is Julianne Hooper, our babysitter. I'll run along to your babies, dear. She's with me. We're swimming across the county. How healthy. And young of you. <laughs> now, who the hell else could wear a dress like this? Why don't you uh, come over tonight? For dinner? I'd love to. <laughs> if Lucinda hasn't made a date. Lucinda? Well, congratulations. And she is very put out by that, but I love... I love how she's just uh, really 
wants to go for Nettie. And again, to your point, Elric, I don't know if that's his perception or if that is reality. Is she really throwing herself at his feet or is that just what he wants to experience? Especially as he's here with this young hottie that he's traveling around with and the way that when he introduces her to uh, the the, the, uh, Diana Muldar character, she's, this is my babysitter and she's just like, go home to your babies. You know, like this is the adults talking now. Go get away from us, kid. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Now, I think her reaction is the genuine one, where um, her saying, well, congratulations, obviously spurned, you know. Um, He doesn't understand why she would be upset, and to a certain extent, neither do we. Um, Right. We still believe that, oh, well, his wife's waiting for him at home, and this is just just a fun detour this afternoon as he goes from pool to pool. So, uh, why would this, you know, of course, he would rebuff this lady who would make a pass at him like that so he's a good man so right moving right along (laughs) (laughs) yeah we get uh slow-mo that starts in the scene we've gotten a little slow-mo before but we get a lot of slow-mo as he and the babysitter are going through the pool and then it's odd because then we get slow-mo at the dressage course and it's just like this is a lot of slow-mo here folks and the dressage course almost the entire scene plays out in slow motion. It's just like, this is going on for a little while. And I just wonder if that was the original intention or if there was, you know, if they came back and reshot this or what's going on with that, because this just takes a long, long time. I can't imagine directing that. Sorry. No. I just, I can't imagine being a director in that position, asking Bart, Bart Lancaster and, and this young girl to be just, you know, r- running and jumping over equestrian pieces in slow motion. It's pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty strange pre Baywatch sequence. <laughs> well, um, you know, anyone who's into pony play, um, here you go. This oh, is proto pony play for you. <laughs> but, um, I, I had a moment here where, you know, obviously, um, the film had to be a certain length. So maybe this was that um, Mike Starr, a la George Weiss and Ed Wood, you know, shoot whatever baloney you want. Just make sure it's seven reels long. So <laughs> maybe it was one of those kind of deals. I mean, it ends with something. I mean, it, there isn't much to the content here except them frolicking. And maybe it's like, you, you know, the freedom of youth and frolicking with a beautiful young girl. He feels younger. But when he hurts his ankle and he pulls up lame and we tie back to the kind of the horse horse imagery and or, or symbolism, it, you know, it, it ends in a really interesting place. And it takes you again. It breaks the kind of dreamy feel of what he's experiencing as the narrative to the truth of the situation. I, so it does it ends in a way I think that is kind of grounded. Um, but it's strange getting there. I love the line in here, which uh, plays itself out better later, is um, when when they're done horsing around. <laughs> uh. There you go. Um, she's telling this story about taking the train into the city and how she works at this place. And and he's like, oh, you know, I've never seen you either. You know, I mean, uh, I take the train as well. So um, she tells this story about a guy who was uh, leering at her. Um, you get kind of a, a raincoat kind of story, I believe. And um, his response is, there's a lot of nuts around. <laughs> so uh, that becomes a bit more telling, not only in a minute, but also when you think back or you rewatch. Like I said, it's little things like that that you pick up on later. Um, and especially like you were saying, um, also, I really didn't pick up the first time I saw it because you don't think about it. You're like, ah, it's 
Yeah, of course. You know, it's fine. Um, whenever anybody mentions the wife, it's like, oh. How's Lucinda? Oh, she's great. Just great. And the girls? All grown up. And beautiful, Stu. Just beautiful. We don't know what she looks like. We don't know what she does. It's not like she baked a pie last week and it was fucking incredible. Nothing. We have no descriptors of what her or the kids are actually doing. They they just are these ethereal objects that like live out there, um, kind of depersonalized. They're just things. They're definitely playing tennis. They're definitely yes. playing tennis. Yeah. So, <laughs> they love so tennis. Yeah, and and he's very keen on that. So uh, this is definitely one of those uh, films, one of those storylines that um, it, it falls right into the Chekhov uh, concept, if you know what I mean, where if, uh, if you put the gun on the wall, uh, it'll be used in the third act. So it's one of those, like, if they mention it here, it's going to pay off later. So so this is, you know, things are, things are tightly written in here, or at least those things uh, get to pay off later, so. This is the second instance in this area where he quotes from the Song of Solomon, because we get that right near the beginning when he goes over to the hostess of the very first pool he's at and lifts up her foot and gives the line about a sandaled foot. And then in the script for this scene, he was supposed to do the exact same thing a second time, which was kind of strange, but he does use Song of Solomon when he tries to put his hand on uh, Jeanette's belly. Her belly is like a heap of wheat, fenced about with lilies. That's been Bible, isn't it? Song of Solomon. When I was a little girl in Sunday school, they never mentioned that part of the Bible. Which is kind of an odd thing. And, um, yeah, so again, with the doubling of things in here. And just as a quick aside, this movie, you guys have probably had this moment. And it's always such a strange, uh, a little bit uncanny moment where you have heard a sample in a song for a long, long time. And then you finally run across the source of the sample. I'm a huge fan of Juno Reactor and never knew where the lines from the song Guardian Angel came from. And then all of a sudden, Burt Lancaster opens his mouth and just like, If there's anything you want, anything at all, come to me. I'll be your guardian angel. And I'm like, oh my God, I've heard that so many times that I never knew where it was from. If there's anything you want, anything at all, come to me. I'll be your guardian angel. Like oh, oh okay that's always nice so it was kind of like there was a I think it was a song by Hallucinogen and they used a line from um, Altered States and I and when I heard Bob Balaban say that line I was just like oh okay now this makes more sense <laughs> well Song of Solomon's great because it's the one of the books of the Bible for those who don't know that kind of sticks out like a sore thumb and. Um, Scholars of the Bible say, well, it's uh, beautiful poetry written to describe the love between man and God. Now, actually, it's kind of porn, really. Yeah. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like an Ovid love poem uh, about a man and a woman. So there's all of this really sexual stuff. Um, and for it to be quoted twice in here and specifically quoted uh to this young girl you know exactly what uh what's on his mind at that moment well and, and this this analogy to the lolita is kind of talking about is is weird here because he's he's really in two minds like he seems on one 
one way he really wants to get in her pants and he's he's kind of making when he's touching her belly but then he has this great line after she talks about uh the kind of the guy flasher and, and sexuality and he just says you still are a little girl in sunday school and it's one of the weirdest lines i've ever heard in a movie right at the you know the right around the same moment as he's trying to be with her he's also calling her a little girl in sunday school and then saying he'll be her guardian angel so there's all these conflicting it's almost like in her he's mixing up his lover wife and daughters in one figure and it's and it's all fucking with his head uh it, it's a it's a really the dialogue of the sequence is really strange and, and evocative i think and i think that it's nice that she has a section in which she talks about her own um youthful um crush on him which mm-hmm. is not really that odd um i think that if anyone um is a kid would say oh well my friend's mom was pretty hot you know when i was a kid like i was like wow you know so uh when i got older i was like why did i think that but you know when you're first sort of getting your head around what sexuality is and and all of those things um that's kind of normal for um young kids and teenagers it's it's not normal for a grown adult man to go, oh, really? Um, well, how about if we uh, take care of that for you now? Right. <laughs> that's um, that's kind of crossing the line. And maybe there's something, like he's on this journey to get home, but maybe with each one of these interactions, whether it's her or the little boy, he's really also looking, or, or Janice Rule's character later, maybe he's really just looking for somebody to you start a new life with along the journey so he doesn't have to finish this and and be faced with whatever's waiting for him he's he is looking for escape along this route with whoever he can whether it's becoming an adoptive father to a boy or uh whatever it will take whatever will get him out of this uh the reality of where he's headed and in this it's his intensity that kind of scares her off this whole idea of you know i'll be your guardian angel i'll meet you for lunch i'll uh you know we'll take the train into the city together i'll meet you for lunch if there's anything you need i'll be there for you and it really really gets very in her grill when it comes to this stuff and in the script that i read the third draft he actually makes a pass at her and that's what scares her off so Nettie in the script and in i believe the original version because this scene was definitely reshot janice rule talks about that in the the extras in uh that version Nettie is much less sympathetic already he's kind of not sympathetic in this because he is this forgetful character i mean he's not you know uh, mr magoo or any kind of guy which i know mr magoo had no problem with his memory it was his eyesight but he's not bumbling around in this uh in a very quaint way he's got some serious psychological problems but uh in the, the in the script and in the original version of what we were going to get he makes a pass at her he makes a pass at the Shirley Abbott character, and it's not very nice either time. So he's really uh, kind of a, I don't want to say a despicable uh, protagonist, but uh, much less sympathetic, let's say. But you cast Burt Lancaster and it changes everything. You know, that's oh, yeah. the likability of the actor, even against type. And the other character really reminded me of on this viewing uh, was Tom Cruise's character in Eyes Wide Shut, who's really going off on this kind of Freudian uh, adventure where he believes everyone's attracted to him. Even a bellhop, male bellhop would want him. And it's a total ego trip. And it feels like a very similar type of character who you know at some point is going to have that ego destroyed. It's, yeah. 
But I have to say, Burt Lancaster can play evil so well because he is so likable so often. Like the character that he played in Sweet Cell's Smell of Success or Elmer Gantry. I mean, when he plays a bad guy, it is so shocking because he's Burt Lancaster and he's just so likable. So I don't know if it was him wanting to change the tone or if it was Sam Spiegel wanted to change the tone. But definitely the tone was changed that they softened his character in this. He did try to kiss her, though. Right. That's true. So, I mean, he's still, he's, I, I think he's ready to go. I think he's ready to roll. I think he, he just reacts very quickly to rejection and he makes it sound like, oh, I was just joking, like he does in earlier scenes. I think he's, he, again, he's super fragile ego, try, ego trying, to def, trying to hold on to whatever this reality he's uh, trying to pursue. And it's, and it's all kind of coming, it's like sand in his hands as the story goes. Right. The section in here that's nice, too, between the two of them is uh, she explains that she's been sort of seeing someone that they met through computer dating. Yes. Wow. That's like proto-OKCupid, you know? Proto-Tinder, it sounds like. Yeah, amazing. But then that opens the door for him to kind of talk about his relationship with Lucinda. And this, again, gives us another, as I explained, he doesn't have any money uh, because he met his wife in Europe. They were on a ship together. But she was in first class, and he was in steerage. Now, if you know, steerage is where all the poor folks are. So, therefore, it's another notice that, of course, his wife has the money, which will then be um, brought home, you know, basically as a punch to the face when he goes to talk to his uh, his uh, former um, affair, his, uh, his former lady on the side. Yeah, I think Lucinda said to him, draw me like one of your French girls. It makes sense. He he <laughs> yeah. was he was the king of the world. The problem is he didn't go down with the ship. So um, I, I yeah. guess here he is. There's plenty of room left on that raft. That's all I'm we, saying. We do get nudists. Yes. <laughs> you jump, I jump. <laughs> with, with this scene, speaking of nudists, the opening of that scene when he he kind of breaks with his own thing. He isn't portaging anymore. He ends up getting a ride from this guy who he thinks is Steve. What happened to Steve? I mean, it's the eternal question that we all ask ourselves every single day. What happened to Steve? <laughs> and this amazing section where we're talking about uh, Nettie not necessarily being the most sympathetic character. I love this because he is completely clueless that he is insulting this African-American gentleman just repeatedly and has no idea that he's doing it. And just to see the rage behind this actor's eyes, especially when he's, uh, when, uh, uh, Burt Lancaster's just like, Oh yeah, you should have heard Steve. He, he butchered the language, but boy, could he sing. And when the guy says natural sense of rhythm, <laughs> yeah, that's what we first Natural sense of rhythm. <laughs> yeah. Great. Oh man. This is the get out sequence. I just keep yelling, get out. It's right. very, very much. There's a line that was cut that was in the script, which is amazing when he's just like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I mistook you for Steve. I don't know why I did that. The chauffeur gets one last line, which is, it's okay. Sometimes you all look alike to us too. And I just wish that that was still in there, but no, they didn't, they didn't put that button on that scene. And so they took us right into these nudists, which, uh, that this is now where we really, I mean, th th this whole thing is just a, uh, you know, a, a flywheel going and going and going. And now the flywheel is kind of spinning on its own and we're getting these moments without Nettie, which is fantastic. We don't usually have 
moment where Nettie is not the center of attention, but here we have this couple and they are talking to each other about, you know, oh my God, here comes Ned. He's going to ask us for money again. Uh, don't give it to him. Oh, don't worry. You know, and just this whole thing, it's like, wow, okay, now we're really starting to know what a mooch this guy is. And that will keep coming back later on, especially with the public pool stuff. But now we're really starting to find out more about Ned at this point. And I love the nudists uh, for several reasons. One, it's a great um, it's a great tone shift from uh, the earlier scene of the, the, the drive up in that the drive up is it gets kind of dark, <laughs> you know, as you're talking about with the, yeah. uh, uh, the, the racist stuff. But when he gets to the nudist, it's kind of light. But the other thing that I find interesting about the nudist is the nudist live in the biggest house we've seen so far. I think it might be the biggest house in total of all of the houses that we see, uh, at, at least from my vantage point of watching the film. Um, the other thing is, is they seem to be the most well-adjusted, They've got nothing to hide. And not only that, they're not willing to put on airs in order to get along with others. And that becomes what they're talking about when he comes up, where they're like, well, you know, uh, our daughter wants to bring the kids by, but she won't bring them if we're doing this. And it's like, well, too bad. You know, we're going to do this. So if they, she don't like it, then she doesn't have to come. So I love the um, I love the fact that these people are comfortable with who they are, and not only that, um, they're also comfortable with kind of calling him out. In that, um, this is where we really see more and more of the crack in the facade, in which uh, the woman who's there, Ned, comes up and goes, "Oh, you're doing a table? Yeah, put me down for a table." And it's like, with what money? Safari ball. Put me down for a table. Oh, Ned. What's the matter? Don't I always support your benefits? A table costs $1,000. Okay, put me down. Like, right. what are you talking about? So so she's willing to at least call him on it, unlike the rest of his friends that he's met, who are like, here, have another drink. <laughs> Let's smile in his face. Okay, he'll leave soon. Okay, good, he's left. Um, no, she's actually a little confrontational with him, which I find refreshing compared to other people. And he's and, naked. He's literally been stripped down, which I like. It's, I like that he comes in. It's kind of comic that he strips before, you know, even interacting with them. But by the end, when you realize, yeah, they call it like it is, it's the one scene where he's completely revealed for, for what he's actually about, which is kind of cool. And then I like that he can't necessarily even live in their world either, in which he, yeah, he takes a swimsuit off, but he still kind of covers himself walking over. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Right. So, a facade. Yeah. So it's, okay, I'll, I'll meet you on your... Uh, uh, on your playing field, but only to a point. And this couple is very interesting too. I mean, they are, to your point, they've got the biggest house. They seem to be the most well off and they seem to be wanting to use their wealth for social change, which is interesting. I don't know if, if anybody's ever heard of this before, wanting to actually like help people with your wealth. So it's kind of a strange concept. I, I don't know. Is this uh, Bill and uh, Melinda Gates? Is this who this Something. Is? Or uh, that, that uh, Jimmy Buffett guy? Oh, excuse me. Never mind. <laughs> Jimmy Buffett? What? <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I thought you were talking about Smooth Rock. <laughs> sure. Um, and that whole idea of 
he's still completely clueless. Ned is clueless. Like when the husband's like, okay, you know, Ned, we can't really help you out this time. And he's like, I don't recall asking you for help. And then later on, it's like, oh, Lucinda, she's fine. She and the girls are at home playing tennis. You know, again, completely, even though he's, he has been stripped naked, he's still hiding behind that same facade. And again, how much of it is him hiding and how much of it is him kidding himself. And he just seems so comfortable living with that facade that it really takes a whole lot for that to ever break. And, you know, we, like you're saying, we see those little chinks in the armor as we're going through. And this is one of those moments where you think it might break, but definitely not. What do you guys think about this whole idea of the little kid with the recorder and the lemonade and this, this whole wonderful thing of him repeating lines that his mother has said and i love how he says she's my only source of information i i love the scene with him and the little boy um the first time i watched it i i it didn't quite hit me as well um as i think multiple viewings has and that now i see his interaction with the little boy as maybe um an interaction with himself to a certain right. extent um there's uh a, a, um you know, I've been open about this before. Uh, in my own time uh, going to therapy, there have been times where the therapist, or I know other people have said, you know, therapists have asked them to put themselves in that mind space as a little kid and then work through that, like have that conversation, you know, with your parents, you know, in the room, like go back to that time where you're a little kid and then put yourself as an adult in the room and then say, you know, look, you know, you shouldn't have done that or whatever. Um so, so to me, there's there's a projection uh, for him in there, and especially I think um, we see a certain tenderness with him here uh, that maybe we didn't see in other places. Um, especially when he, uh, at the end of the scene where he runs back and he's afraid that the kid's going to jump into the empty pool and hurt himself and hugs him and all of that. So maybe there's some sort of um, him trying to find some sort of self love. I guess I don't. I don't know. Maybe there is something in there. It's not quite as hollow as it may be led to believe. And no one here, uh, where they live, also pay attention to kids. So he's already different because he's one of the only people kind of drawn to innocence. And uh, you know, he's actually paying attention. But I like. I like this idea. I, it didn't really uh, strike me on this viewing, but I like that idea that it's. It could literally be an interaction with him, especially like when he's so emphatic about saying, "You're the captain of your soul." It, it sounds like saying you would go back to tell yourself, like, "Let's believe in yourself, and we can really make this happen." Uh, it, it and it, and it culminates in what I think is actually one of the best scenes in the movie, which is the imaginary swimming. I think right. that's a really just it's a beautiful sequence, and it's it, it's the one time where he doesn't seem crazy. He seems uh, it's he seems you know it's imagination, which is kind of beautiful in that scene. And for him to say a line like that, the captain of your soul, is is another nod to poetry in Invictus. William Ernest Henley, 1849 to 1903. Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, 
How charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that whole thing of him, quote unquote, saving the little boy after that, like he hears the kid on the diving board and he is afraid that the little kid thinks now that there's water in the pool, that the kid has imagined so hard that there's now water in the pool. So he runs back like, oh, my God, don't jump into the pool. And the kid's like, uh, yeah, duh, uh, it's all imaginary. And the kid can recognize what's imaginary and what's not imaginary, but yet our main character can't. He has and, that line. You see, if you make believe hard enough that something is true, then it is true for you. And then if you think of about Ice Storm made you know, 30 years later or whatever, that's how one of the kids dies in an empty swimming pool. Right in in freezing ice, but you know, still. And again, that movie seems set in a very similar kind of um, setting, same kind of lives. So it feels like it's kind of related, just like uh, Mad Men is. And to me, like I said, that could just be a mirroring where there's part of his psyche that understands that implicitly that this is all in your head and fantasy is not reality, but. There's the larger part of him right now that is living in that fantasy, trying to make it reality. And that's really what that struggle is for himself. And it's kind of in that dialogue and played out in that scene in a a tender way that doesn't necessarily seem like it's hinting at it so much as like trying to hit you in the ribs with it. This is the scene, too, where Ned starts to shiver. And we're going to see more of him shivering throughout the rest of this because the day is starting to pass He's losing his vitality, uh, his mojo, as it were, his uh, his, his uh, precious bodily fluids, his, his vital essence, uh, as uh, Sterling Hayden would say. And he starts to break down physically now, which uh, we're going to see more and more as we go along. We're going to see more of that shivering, especially uh, during this uh, Shirley sl- scene. But the next scene of this second party which is in wild uh, uh, comparison to the first one, just instead of being so sedate, instead of having John Cheever uh, drunk and floating around on a, a tire in the middle of a pool that nobody else is swimming in, now everybody's in the pool. We've got all this wild drinking, the nutty guy who's crawling across the top of this pool and all this kind of stuff. Just absolutely nuts. And this is when Nettie interacts with people who are, in his mind, far less uh far beneath his station and you know i wrote in the notes you know this this is the the gauche people live here and they do not welcome nettie this is one of the few times other than mrs hammer where he is not welcome here and they still allow him to stay but they pretty much say oh look at we've got a gate crasher why are you here now when you've never shown up to any of our things when we've invited you and the wife is not happy with him. The husband's not happy with him. The uh, bartender is very rude to him. And again, hey, I'm Nettie Merrill. Why on earth would you be rude to me? And then we have this just uh, terrific scene with Joan Rivers, another woman that he asked to go away with him. And for just the briefest moment, it looks like she is going to go away with him. You look excited. Why not? When the world is so generously supplied with water. Not a maniac about it. Tell you the truth, it's murder on my hand. Lovely hair. 
Thank you. You are. You a neighbor from around here? No. You're a friend of the Bizwangers. They're not even in our Christmas card list. <laughs> Then what are you? I'm an explorer. No, I, I mean, what are you doing here? I'm swimming home. <sighs> you are. Uh, you married? What's that got to do with it? You're divorced? What? You want to come with me? Where? Along a river of sapphire pools. I never heard anyone talk like you. Come with me. Be my love. <laughs> That I've heard before. Not for me. You're no different than any other guy. Oh, but I am. I'm a very special human being. Noble. And splendid. Come on, John. Yeah, she lives very firmly in the real world, though. That's the difference. You, you get the feeling she's not from the scene. She's right. like an outsider, you know, probably. Uh, she seems like she's coming from Jersey or something uh, up here. <laughs> and, and it's this feeling where she's like, what are you even talking? Like, what planet are you from? And yet, you're right. I do think there's a little flicker in her eyes where she wants to believe, but she's, she's just so grounded. It's not going to happen. I love that she gets peeled away by this other guy and they have a conversation in the background. Now they're a tad out of focus, but you get the feeling that maybe if you could zoom the mic in on them, the guy's going, he's crazy. Okay. (laughs) Here's what happened. And you get the feeling that he's kind of filling her in on the details. Like, don't even talk to him. Like this is the deal and all of that. Um, and I just, I just love the way that the end of that scene plays out. And like I said, her part in there is is really great. And it was um, her first uh, film role. And if you don't know, Ned is crazy. Let's talk about the hot dog cart. Wow, it, it, yeah. it connects pretty well to what you were just saying about him visiting himself as a child in the previous scene. It's like he's still holding on to all of that beauty and of that interaction, and then suddenly sees this hot dog cart from from that kind of period, and it just it totally destroys him. You know, it kind of this is where he really is shown where his mental state is shown for what it is. And I also think the hot dog cart scene also shows another piece of the things that he held on to that mattered these were symbols in some way of of him being able to provide to create things to build things to to have things for his family and the fact that somehow it ended up here it was sold to these people so we're led to believe okay right maybe there was some sort of estate sale or something or maybe there's a garage sale you know how come he doesn't know about this thing being sold uh so that adds an extra piece to it um, as those pieces start to to fall in line. And also, as you were talking about, sort of this class distinction between where he sees himself and these people. He sees them as less than. But at the same time, they're still trying to play, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with the neighbors, because one of the pieces of dialogue that we hear the guy explaining is this uh, lucite, I guess, or plastic glass enclosure that he has over the pool, and how he paid for it, and all of this, and he sounds like a sales brochure. So there's all of this, uh, um, again, buying into uh, the, the suburban keep up with your neighbors. It's the, they're the new money, and the other people are the old money uh, kind of dynamic, yeah. And this is what uh, wasn't he like a, a 
he was a police officer. Was it like Punky Brewster or Give Me a Break, the Nell Carter show? As soon as this guy showed up, I was just like, I've seen this guy like a thousand times before. Hmm. So it was always good to see a familiar face, but it was also driving me nuts because I, I haven't looked up to see exactly which show he was in. But I was just like picturing him as being the gruff dad. So he's 20 years away from being the gruff dad at this point. Hmm. And this and this sequence is also a big one because it's the first time his masculinity just gets, you know, really pushed on. He literally gets pushed on his ass and has no real ability to come back from it except to limp away. You know, when the guy actually, you know, literally physically pushes him to the ground, and it's it's the beginning of that. You know, the the kind of downfall. He's 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 aging as we watch this movie, right? From virile, you know, youth uh, to like this kind of old uh, older man, uh, even beyond his age. His physical. I think I think I read that he's fifty two, uh, and he seems older. You know, a lot older by the end. The hot dog cart thing is interesting too, because the way that he remembers that it's his and he looks for the hole in the bottom and he talks about how his one of his daughters put her foot through the bottom and then when he starts like oh i'll buy it back from you i'll give you twice as much as you paid and people are just kind of laughing at him because they know that he can't pay anything and he's like i'll send you a check and they're just like yeah right and they know where he's at financially but again he still doesn't know where he's at you know this guy Literally, he can't pay the kid 20 cents for a cup of lemonade, much less is he going to be able to send these guys a check for $100. So, but the kid doesn't know it. The kid's been hornswoggled. These people know that his money is no good here because he has no money. I'm yeah. just so happy that I got to use hornswoggled in, a, in context. <laughs> and then we have Shirley Abbott. Now, the Shirley Abbott scene, I actually went in and I measured it because – the original Shirley Abbott scene that was in the script did not take nearly this long. This scene takes 18 minutes, which in a 95-minute film is almost a fifth of the entire film gets taken up by this Shirley Abbott scene. And I have to say, the first time that I watched this scene, it really started to wear out its welcome. The second time that I watched this scene, it really wore out its welcome. This scene goes on forever now it's a very important scene but it is so clunky in this reshoot of it and god i wish i could see the original of it because it takes us a lot of different places it gives us a lot more information about Nettie. it tells us about this shirley abbott character but man does it just not know how to get where it needs to go there are some interesting things like the whole idea of the foot thing again. I think I've heard that this is Quentin Tarantino's favorite Frank Perry film. He uh, Nettie starts with this whole thing of taking a splinter out of Shirley's foot. And so again, he's massaging these feet. And uh, we have this whole thing of her being an actress and she's reading this films and filmmaking magazine, which you would think would be more of a Broadway magazine, but whatever. That splinter out of the foot could also be another mythology um, connection. True. So the idea of the uh, the lion with the splinter in his paw, and then the mouse takes it out, and they become friends. So um, it it could be see a, seen as a way of contrition, much the way that the idea of washing someone's feet in the biblical sense, you know. 
I, you know, it's one of those tough things that once you read about something about a film, it does change your perception. But I, I, I'm going to be a bit of a naysayer because I really like the scene. Good. I actually, no, good. I actually think it's kind of a masterclass in blocking. Like, and I know that's different from the rest of the film because the rest of the film isn't as uh, as fluid in that. But the way they keep going from the going from close to distance between them, I found it maybe because it's such a big change up in the movie, it really kind of drew me in dramatically. But what I really like about it is actually Janice Rule, and and because we'll never know. You know, we'll talk about the other version later, and and I'm sure it's different, radically different, and a total different chemistry. But there, I think I read that Janice Rule was kind of sick when they did this, and there's something just so not giving a fuck about where she's coming from, the way she looks at him with total disdain. There's something about Janice Rule's performance that, despite what could have been, I think really works on its own. And for, for me, for me as a viewer now, first time watching this, I don't know these things, so I have nothing to compare it to. I just think this is the movie. Watching it again with the, the you know the story in mind you're like okay that's really hard to believe because it feels uh it does feel different of course but lancaster still feels exactly the same and to think that this was shot you know a long time afterwards is pretty interesting but uh no there's something about the way it takes its time that for me really works but it, it could just be a personal thing and this is the scene um and i guess we'll talk a bit about this later that was as you were saying was shot by someone else and that someone else being uh who would become Sidney pollock so I think he was Sidney Pollock at the time, but not capital S, capital P. That's right. He was. I think he, he was, was doing like the E. Cummings thing. Exactly. He was. He was understated at that point, which yeah. Uh, yeah. which is Another funny. Eyes wide shut connection. Yeah, I was just going to say that. <laughs> oh really? That's right. Yeah, and this is so. This does give us just a ton of information and really brings it home with a lot of stuff. Not to the point where I would think they're like you know. Uh, being too on the nose with stuff. I think they're still doing a good job of kind of leaving that mystery there. But, you know, we're, we're basically three, four scenes from the end of the film. It's just, it feels like the rest of the film has been a lot more fluid. And so when we get to this part, I mean, like I said, 18 minutes, this could be a short film unto itself. And it might work that way. It just feels like it's kind of wedged in at this point and just feels a little much and there's a lot of things that i think that they could have done better with it uh you know i talked a little bit earlier as far as like how much of this was done post dubbing and when i hear janice rule's voice i'm just like that almost feels like all of her performance was done uh later on as far as the the dubbing of it it doesn't feel like we're hearing any of the onset sound oh which mike is all... you loved it you loved it <laughs> <laughs> Shirley. Leave me alone. You know you don't want me to. Please leave me alone. We made love together in this pool. And you loved it, remember? I lied. You loved it, Shirley. You loved it. Ned, don't. Please. No. Baby. No, Ned. Please. No, don't. No, stop it, Ned. Don't. Ned, don't. No. Damn you, no! I was acting. <laughs> I almost uh, said that like John Lovitz. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I feel that this scene doesn't work. I'm glad to hear that you think it does. I think it, w- it started to work and it was going someplace, but then they just kind of belabored the point. It, I was with it for about... 12 minutes and then somewhere around there I was just like wow this is going on for a long time. I started checking my watch I would have been interested to see a more violent 
ending, more explosive ending between them, I think it's a little subtler. I mean, he gets that great ending with the line I was just referencing, you loved it, and, and it's still that part completely still works but the build-up to that from the uh, sound of the original was a little more intense and kind of shocking and i think it might have been a might have been a nice punctuation to something that long having something more explosive i was glad to see that burt lancaster you cannot tell from these scenes that burt lancaster came back later and shot any of these things it's not like that horrible fan four stick where it was just like oh wow uh you know the the one lady's hair changes radically you know this is obviously a wig this is obviously her real hair and in this he's wearing that kind of weird julius caesar haircut and he's got the same haircut all the way through he's got the same build the same tan all this kind of stuff so he really it feels like this is all part of a whole unless you're kind of looking for those seams in it so the first time i watched this way back on vhs i had no idea that there was any difference to it um, it felt like it was all of a piece and it wasn't until later on. And I have to say when I became a little bit more of a sophisticated viewer that I was like, okay, well, this is kind of odd. And then when you read about the history of it, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, this is obvious. Now I can see where these things are stitched together. Yeah. Reading about it, it changes. <laughs> I mean, we'll get into later, I guess, uh, the behind the scenes because it really does kind of radically change how you view it. But you're right. Lancaster is so fluid. I mean, that's one of the, that's why it's such a great performance. He really is the the reason you're able to watch a movie that has so many different disparate tones. Uh, and yet he's very consistent. And yeah, just to watch that guy's face. I mean, his face is a master's class. And not even to talk about his body language, but just to watch his face and those moments. You know, I talked about that facade earlier and to see those moments where it slips just ever so slightly or to see the panic in his eyes. And I definitely see that in the so we have the the highway scene, which is interesting, but really for me, the public pool scene is the scene for this and it's kind of of multiple pieces there's the beginning of it where we have the the little petty dictator guy who won't let Burt Lancaster come into the pool he's got to pay his 50 cents he's got to wash his feet he's got to do all this stuff before he can get into the pool so that's uh, an interesting kind of dynamic that's happening there. His journey through the pool, it's almost like the movie uh, condensed down to one scene. His journey through the pool, and when he gets out, this whole confrontation that he has with these two couples that are standing there, that is where things just really come home. I mean, even more than the Shirley Abbott scene, this is the scene for me that just tears my heart out and this whole idea of the one guy who's trying to be nice who liked Bert, the 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 Nettie Merrill character liked him so much and he was a regular at his bar which again speaks to what you're talking about Rob with alcoholism and then the wife is just like you're a deadbeat you know you left my husband with all of these bills and then the other couple who are talking about Nettie's girls and that Nettie managed to get them out of trouble and keep a, a, a traffic incident uh, out of the papers. And it's just like his whole world is crashing in and he has to run away. You know, we've had him run away a few times before, like from Mrs. Hammer, but he's really just like, how the hell do I get out of here? And he basically scales this rock to get the fuck out of this. The universal monster exit. It's pretty yes. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's another point where I start to realize a timeline because he asks him if he enjoyed the World Series. 
And he's like, what, two years ago? So you get the feeling that he's been gone quite a while if he doesn't know that that wasn't just last week, which he makes it kind of sound like. Yeah, I, 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 going back a beat, I, I love the guy who uh, who he has to get through the multiple times about his feet and that line where he just is like, bottoms. Right. <laughs> it's one of the great one-word one lines ever. But also his feet are, you know, seem very symbolic. They're all, you know, tore up, and it's the first time he's even seen or thought about his feet as he's sitting there washing them. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting, that sequence. And this also, to me, the blue-collar folks or maybe the, um, the small business owner having a go at the rich folks because all we've spent time with is basically some strata of people that have money. Uh, throughout the entire film so um and then we've had you know uh, a couple of black folks in there but they're the help so you see sort of like how he relates to them and now you see you know white blue collar or just above middle class um business owners and sort of how they are having a go now at the rich guy who doesn't pay his bills so it's uh yeah you know. And he's trapped. He's he's, he's he's yeah. He's surrounded by the ninety nine percent. It's kind of great. And there's a Frank Perry cameo in there too. I saw him as one of the guys, kind of getting in, in his way when he's trying to get away. It kind of this whole idea of the missing time always makes me wonder if he was maybe at an asylum for a little while, and maybe he escaped with his swim trunks, and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. The prequel to, uh, I mean, if we're not going to the Mad Men prequel, which I, I totally yeah. love that as a prequel to this. I can see Don Draper making a trip across uh, the county down the Lucinda River. <laughs> He'd be great in a remake. It's like kind of the perfect actor, actually. That's true. That's <laughs> true. So when he gets to the house, uh, to me, I thought it was, um, it looked more like a cemetery than it looked like the gates of a house. Right. Yeah, look, it felt like an old haunted house. It felt like it had really been left derelict. It's, it's, it's creepy. But they, I mean, the gates, it's rusted. You know, there's like a, there's, you know, like a, a well or a fountain there. I mean, it just has this real cemetery kind of feel. The leaves are everywhere, as you were noting, uh, kind of overgrown as he keeps going in. And then, of course, there's that, uh, there's that, uh, you know, tennis court everybody's using. <laughs> and the, um, the storm coming in and now really just pummeling us. So we're getting pummeled by the storm. We're getting pummeled by Marvin Hamlish's score and him just pounding on that door. And those amazing shots where we go inside the house, I kept waiting for something to come out of the dark. I mean, to your point about this being a haunted house, there's a, 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 break in one of the windows and we kind of go in and we're inside of the house and we just hear him screaming and pounding and i just kept waiting for like i don't know a tennis ball to roll out you know a little bit of like the changeling or something right but just like what is going to happen but no it's just we see the empty rooms we see that there is nobody inside of this house and we wonder like we've been wondering now as we are in this scene and even you know 90 minutes beforehand how long has this house been empty? How long has he been out of the world? Uh, there was a scene earlier that kind of feels like it was leading into this. What we didn't really mention with the, I think it's right around the boy where he sees the barren tree and he's really disturbed by it. 
and he's looking at this barren tree and he just it changes the whole mood of the piece when he sees that and it feels like this is the this is the ending of that moment like almost that was the moment where he's remembering his empty house and kind of uh, foreshadowing it for when he's actually here i mean it's it's you know this idea of of the end of the trip where you're dying alone where you know and broke it's it's it also raises some major questions about what indeed did happen i mean this feels like for, for a house that nice to be left in ruin it doesn't strike me as just a simple matter of divorce and taking the kids away. What else could have happened here? Is you know, has somebody died? Did he go? Was he taken to an asylum? And this was taken over back by the government. I mean, you know, it, it raises a lot of just feelings of unease about what actually his real situation is. Like you were talking about going in through the window and getting a look at the inside and everything, Mike. I was, I was thinking that. Um, it could have lent itself to a little bit more uh, surrealism or, um, you know, abstract expressionism, much the way that in the opening of Blue Velvet, uh, Lynch goes under the grass and into the bugs and all of that stuff. So I could, yeah. I could totally see like that being done here, but obviously he didn't use that opportunity. And at least they didn't use one of the. Uh, there were two alternate endings to this, and one of them was. As he's pounding on the door, we're getting little flashes of his journey to the house. And it's probably all of those things that we've noted here about, you know, I want my girls to get married in that house. And all of those things that cause people to pause, you know, like, oh, lucky for Lucinda, you know, cheers to her. All of those things, probably just one after another after another, which just would have been so terrible because it's just, you know, I talked about how this movie really requires a second viewing. And if they just handed all of that stuff to us in these flashes, it would have just really made me sad. So I'm glad that they didn't do that. And then we can talk about the other ending uh, after we take a break. Well, also, it could have easily shown flashbacks of Lucinda and the kids. It could have it could have created uh, what he had lost, but by not ever showing that, I think one of the most memorable things about this film is is the incredible ambiguity you're left with. There's just so many pockets you have to think about, you know, having no context for his wife and kids and who they really were. Or it could have been like uh, the scene in RoboCop where he gets in the house and he walks through, and it's a flash between what's there and his memory of what it was. Right. That would actually be pretty cool. It suddenly turns into heavenly creatures. He opens the door, and it just becomes this huge flowered field. And you know, the uh, uh, Orson Welles shows up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break and play a series of interviews. First up, we'll hear from Justin Bozunk, who is presently working on a book about the work of Frank Perry. Then we'll hear from Kate Buford, author of Burt Lancaster and American Life. And last but not least, we'll hear from someone who worked on The Swimmer, author Preston Neal Jones. And we'll be back with all of that after these brief messages. We asked the man on the street what he thought about the After Movie Diner website and podcast, but sadly he had never heard of either and was on his way to the doctors to have a mole removed. Or it could have been a badger. He wasn't sure. It felt bigger than a mole. Also, he wasn't sure how it got up there in the first place. Anyway, we asked all the famous people, like Michael Ironside, Fred the Hammer Williamson, Ted Raimi, Barbara Crampton, Cynthia Rothrock, and so on, that they've interviewed over there on the After Movie Diner website and podcast what they thought about the After Movie Diner website and podcast. But most of them said that if we quoted them, we would be hearing from their comical southern lawyers complete with bow tie, meat gut, and brow mopping hand. So instead, we say who cares what anyone thinks of you after Movie Diner website and podcast. You are awesome just the way you are, so don't you go changing. If you want to see for yourself, go to aftermoviediner.com or find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The After Movie Diner, doing it their own way since 2011. 
This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, Proudly Resents. And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? Wife Jessica, I have an idea. What's that, husband Dustin? As you know, we love movies. Yes, dear, I know. But we also love podcasts. I'm aware, my love. And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right? Without doubt. But whatever would we call it? We are the Popcorn Poops. Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us. Each week we choose a movie based on a monthly theme and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie. But what makes Popcorn Poops special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show, so you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast. On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia with a healthy dose of dick jokes. Gotta have the dick jokes. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about the show, including our weekly movie still identification game. Visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. We'll be waiting for you, and not in a creepy way. Okay, kind of a creepy way. Yeah, okay, fair warning. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. When was the first time that you saw the swimmer? I came to it late, actually, in the game. I hadn't even saw the picture until much of the time had passed after I had actually decided to do the book on Frank Perry. So I was, it, in fact, it was probably the last Perry picture I, that I hadn't seen in the in the in the wake of the decision of of working on the book. I would say it's 2017, so I probably didn't see the swimmer until around 2015, maybe, so a couple of years ago. So I came to it late. Where was this in Perry's filmography? 
there's a really interesting backstory associated with the swimmer. And, and it's weird because it's, you know, it's one of those films that has a really tumultuous story in terms of production, but also in, it's a really fascinating story in terms of how Frank and Eleanor actually came to work on the swimmer. And it kind of goes back to the success of David and Lisa in 1962. Um, you know, Frank and Eleanor, they got a two picture deal at United Artists in the wake of the success of David and Lisa. And, you know, it was a deal where they had the option to make two pictures. They also had um, an option in their contract, which allowed them 50% ownership in their films um, that they would make through the studio, through David Picker, who was the head of production. And, you know, they had shot Ladybug, Ladybug in Pennsylvania in 1963. Um, you know, when that was edited, put together, you know, the studio took a look at that film. And as Frank would have said later, he said it was a little too on the nose. You know, it had come out in December of 63. And by that time, the whole Cuban Missile Crisis thing had passed. You know, there was it was about the paranoia and it kind of stuff had already passed. So it was a little too late. So uh, UA dumped the picture theatrically. You know, they only put it out in literally like four theaters across major cities. It came out just around Christmas of 63. Critics hated it, but it was so it was a really bad experience for them. And it sort of can be deemed as the ill-fated sophomore follow-up to this me- mega success. But it was it's interesting because it was a time when it was, they were both very prolific I mean, I don't, and I don't know if this came out of like, you know, that the fact they had this two picture deal or maybe they sensed that, you know, they had to really get a film going in the wake of this disastrous release of Ladybug. Ladybug is because they're worried about something. What is it they say? You're, you're only as good as your last picture. Through that, you know, you have in late 63 and going into 64, you have Frank and Joseph Losey uh, collaborating together on a film that never came to fruition. Eleanor starts adapting the novel uh, In Censure Idols for Zanuck at Fox. Uh, Eleanor writes the screenplay adaptation of Julian Gogg's Our Mother's House, which Jack Clayton would eventually film a year or two uh, later. Eleanor wrote a treatment based on the whole uh, John Updike story, Wife Wooing. You know, Frank dropped some money into buying the rights to this novel um, about the relationship between a John and a prostitute called one, The $100 Misunderstanding. Plus, there's a treatment that goes around that they write. It's kind of an updated for the 1960s version of the Dostoevsky novella, The Gambler. They craft a treatment that goes around the studios as well called The Deal, which was um, a story about the sort of sexual trysts of big Hollywood players. They pitched to the studio an adaptation of Albert Camus' The Fall. Uh, they, they had the rights to William Golding's Free Fall. Basically, they just couldn't seem to get anything going. You know, they they got a lot of they had a lot of irons in the fire. You know, they're just kind of blasting through money as well. You know, they're buying a lot of the rights to these projects, these ideas with their own bank account. Plus, you know, they're going back and forth because they're, they're, they're very New York people. And so they're going back and forth to L.A. a lot. There was an urgency to get something off the ground. So in order to kind of shake it up you know, kind of maybe create some sort of luck, if you will, and replenish the bank account. They sort of split up in the sense that Eleanor got this opportunity to head to London to oversee the staging of this play she had written called Memento Mori, which was based on the Muriel Spark novel. Um, it was produced by Peter Ustinov's theater group, Nottingham Repertory Company. And so as Eleanor's over in London, a producer, oddly enough, approaches the Perrys about staging on Broadway Eleanor's play Any Decent Woman, 
which was just basically a rehash of the screenplay that she had written a very long time before David Lisa was made in 1960. It was basically just a, a vehicle uh, for Rock Hudson called Somersault that no studio was kind of interested in. So Frank kind of puts everything into place to direct that for the stage because, you know, he comes from the theater, so it's very natural for him. Um, you know, they cast Jennifer Jones um, in the lead. Of course, she's married to David O. Selznick at the time. So they go into rehearsals on the East Coast, and, you know, Selznick, like, flips out. I mean, he finds out that Frank has cast Darren McGavin in the lead opposite of Jennifer Jones. And they get in this big fight. Selznick pulls Jennifer Jones from the production. And the producer pulls out as well, so the play's really dead in the water. And, of course, leading up to the play's rehearsals, Frank's been, again, commuting from New York to L.A., trying to get these projects off the ground with Eleanor's in London. And in that process, he meets Terry Southern, the writer, novelist, satirist, uh, gentleman who, of course, wrote Dr. Strangelove. It's 1964. Um, you know, the book Candy, Southern's book Candy that he co-wrote with Mason Hoffenberg, has been published. And on the West Coast, it's the toast of the town. So Perry and Southern really strike up this this fast friendship, and they become drinking buddies. You know, they decide they should work together. Southern gives Frank the film rights to Candy, and this is something that United Artists will get behind because it's it's such a you know it's a talk of the town at the time. So it's announced that Candy was actually going to be the Perry's second film for United Artists. And, you know, they throw some money at it to develop it, and stuff. And Southern basically starts writing the script. You know, they have really grand ideas for this project. They're going to cast a young, burgeoning Haley Mills in the role of Candy. They're going to, they're going to shoot it. They're going to shoot some of it in India. And they're, it's going to have the sexual sensibilities of a European film, but in the American cinema. Something seemingly could have been ahead of its time. Meanwhile, over in London, Eleanor's kind of pissed. Um, you know, she doesn't want any involvement in Candy. So she thinks it's basically bad pornography from a boy's fantasy point of view. She can't really understand why the novel is such a success, um, but she kind of goes along with it haphazardly. Um, so Candy's actually slated to start shooting in December of 64. And then what happens? Uh, the July 18th issue of The New Yorker arrives in front of Eleanor, and it features the story The Swimmer by John Cheever. Um, she's taken with the story instantly and sees it as a film. She, she claims she has a vision, in fact, of, of how the film, how the story can be a film. And so she, you know, puts it in front of Frank and he doesn't, he doesn't really see how it can work as a film, but he goes along with it anyways. Um, you know, she writes Cheever a letter from London and they hear back and Cheever agrees to see them when they return to the States. And so in late August of 64, the Perrys drive to Ossining to meet with Cheever, and uh, he tells them that Edward Albee has actually already expressed a real serious interest in buying the rights to the story to turn it into a play, perhaps. But Eleanor tells Cheever, you know, tells her about her vision for the film, you know, they're, how they're not going to use any flashbacks or voiceover narrations. They're going to play it really straight, straight ahead and forward and leave it sort of extreme ambiguity to it. And um, so he agrees. He thinks it's a great idea. And so he gives the Perrys the, the film rights, um, but he also grants them the film rights to another one of his stories, Clementina, um, which is this very strange, strange story about an Italian girl who goes to America as a kind of au pair uh, for a well-to-do Washington, D.C. family. And so they dip deep into their well, if you will, and they secure the rights. They pay Cheever ten grand of their own money to lock this in. 
Eleanor immediately sets to work on the script and, you know, she knocks the first draft out in less than two months time in that process. So this is from like late August until uh, late October of 64. Of course, then Candy is killed at the studio. David Picker at UA is is out. Uh, He gets fired. New head of production comes in, sees that they're planning on making this film. And he says, "Yeah, you know, we were never going to make a sex film, right? We only gave Perry, you know, this this money so we could sort of develop it, you know." And of course, uh, out of this too, the Perry's contract at UA is canceled. Um, Haley Mills's dad, who of course is sort of overseeing her career, says, "No, I don't. I don't think my daughter's going to star in this. She's she's a Disney star." So with Candy dead in the water, they decided to, they decided to focus on the swimmer really. And this is again the fall of '64, and it would still be yet another two years before they would even start shooting. With their UA contract canceled, they're basically once again independent filmmakers, and they start shopping the script to the swimmer around to studios, and no one, of course, is interested. And you know, it's one there's one famous remark that has sort of become popular in the, the swimmer's zeitgeist, if you will, that one studio exec responded to the script saying, you know, who would make this and what does it mean? So, you know, we go into early 65, you know, there's still no bites on the screenplay or any of the aforementioned projects that I mentioned earlier. Um, so to make more money, Eleanor basically starts writing reviews as a critic for Life and the Saturday Review magazines. And um, March of 65, lo and behold, there's an article that comes out in Variety. Uh, Frank Reed's talking about Sam Spiegel's new company, Horizon Pictures. And he decides to send Eleanor's script for the swimmer to Spiegel. And uh, he sends it in, and within 48 hours, he receives a response, and the Perrys are invited to visit Spiegel on the set of The Chase, the Arthur Penn film. You know, he Spiegel sort of agrees that agrees to their vision, likes the script, basically commits 500k to the budget right from the go. And again, this is 65, and from there, um, you know, where things had sort of been dried up over Christmas, and you know, they they sort of things pick up again. And they signed with Spiegel in June of 65. Um, of course, the film rights to Candy revert back to Southern. So Frank loses that, um, even though he would still be involved in Candy sort of as a enthusiast up until the production. Um, and I think it was 67 with another director. You know, Southern was still sending Frank's versions of scripts for Candy until it was made, actually. Of course, in April 65, Eleanor, even, you know, she's still super busy, super prolific. She does some rewrites on a script called The Duchess and the Smugs, which was based on a novel called uh, The Wreath for the Enemy, which was um, a project that Paul Heller was working on. Paul Heller was the guy who produced David and Lisa with Frank and Eleanor. And, of course, later on would produce Enter the Dragon with Bruce Lee. Um, it's decided around this time, too, that the swimmer needs a star. It cannot be this sort of New York low-budget art film that they had all kind of envisioned at first. So Spiegel ups the budget. He says, "All right, we'll give you know we'll do 1.5 million," and so Perry's are elated. They're great. So their first choice for Ned Merrill is William Holden. If you you know Google it, and look at a picture of Holden. Look at a picture of Cheever. I mean, they're sort of you know Holden is sort of Cheever, Cheever's doppelganger in many ways. Um. And they also do screen tests. Um, they test with the, the the big scene at the end with Barbara Loden, originally was in, later Janice Rubel's in in the film. They test Glenn Ford, and they test Van Johnson for the part. Of course, Spiegel having all the power, you know, the Perry's sign with Spiegel, and they basically give away 
everything, right? They give away final cut. They give away the final say in casting, et cetera. They're more or less employees or Spiegel's at this point. Um, they give, so they, you know, they give all the power to Spiegel and he runs into Lancaster at a party. They talk. Lancaster's aware of Perry because of David and Lisa. And so, um, Lancaster signs on, signs up for the film. He, you know, he says, this is an interesting story. It's, it's death of a salesman and swimming pool kind of thing. And, and, um, but he says, I cannot start this film until summer of 66 because I'm working on the scalp hunters with Sidney Pollock. So for the rest of 65, um, you know, past the Perry signing with Spiegel, um, they also sign a two picture deal with Elliot Kastner, you know, former agent, now producer, uh, who actually happened to be Frank's agent in the past as well. Um, you know, they signed this two picture deal with him to do the Cheevers Clementina. You know, they're going to also before the swimmer, they're going to adapt and film Steinbeck's uh, The Winner of Discontent. And in that interim, they're also doing rewrites on the swimmer script, which Spiegel dictates. You know, he gives, he's flooding them with notes. So she starts rewriting the script. September of 65, they meet Truman Capote um, at a party. And out of that, Frank has a meeting at ABC and he pitches um, an adaptation of Capote's A Christmas Memory to ABC, stage 67. And the network loves it. They agree to it. Um, they start work on the adaptation immediately. That goes into early 66. In the spring of 66, around late March, early April, they're in Montgomery, Alabama, shooting a Christmas uh, memory with Geraldine Page and little Donnie Melvin, who is one of the kids from Ladybug, Ladybug. They shoot for about two or three weeks down there, and then they go into the editing of that in the interim Ellen are still doing rewrites. They're on the fourth draft of the script script for the swimmer at this point. A fifth draft comes to fruition, and that editing of Christmas Memory and that that final draft of the script takes them into mid June of '66. And believe it or not, the fifth draft of the swimmer's script is completed by Eleanor on 6/20/66, literally three days before principal photography begins in Westport, Connecticut, on the swimmer. And as they enter principal photography, the editing of Christmas Memory is halted, and the decision is made that they'll finish that after the summer when they finish shooting the swimmer. And uh, they enter production. Tell me, what is the relationship between the Perrys and Sam Spiegel and Burt Lancaster? When they took Spiegel the script, you know, they were elated. They thought, okay, well, here's a guy who is going to support our vision. You know, he's this multiple Academy Award winning producer. And so they were completely on board with him. They signed a contract with him only in the aftermath of that to, to run into other, you know, other friends, directors, director, friends, Hollywood people at parties that said, Oh, you really shouldn't have signed with him because he's trouble. Immediately. Um, Spiegel threw a wedge into their relationship, basically playing them against each other, trying to, you know, say, well, you know, talking to Eleanor and say, look, you're the real talent in this. You know, Frank is just one of those artsy fartsy directors with Lancaster. The same thing can be said in the sense that Spiegel also viewed Lancaster as just an employee. And they, he, he had a philosophy in the sense that he said, no great films are made out of play cooperation. Everyone must be at odds with each other in order to make great art. So as they enter production, um, you know, Spiegel specifically told Frank, look, you're not to fraternize with, with Lancaster. You're not show him dailies. 
And uh, on the other side, he told Lancaster, you know, you're, you're not to see, you know, Frank's really insecure. So you're not going to be able to watch the dailies. So immediately as they enter production, they're immediately at odds with each other. There's tensions on the set. This kind of goes into the first two or three weeks of shooting that, you know, and there's tensions on the set and Lancaster's calling him out in public airing their sort of dirty laundry in front of the cast, other cast members and the crew, uh, reminding Frank of how much money he makes on the film. And um, eventually it kind of comes to a head in the sense that, um, you know, Lancaster calls him out and says, well, why won't you, why won't you let me watch dailies? And, and Frank said, why, why wouldn't you, you're more than welcome to watch dailies. Why would you think that you can't watch dailies? And he's like, well, Spiegel told me you're too insecure. And so once they kind of figured out they were being played against each other, their relationship changed completely and they became um, friends, actually stayed, became complete collaborators and stayed in touch until the early seventies. Even there are letters exchanges between the two into the early seventies in Frank's archive. And I mean, there's even a, a, a great letter, Lancaster, I think it was Perry wrote to Lancaster a few months before the swimmer actually was actually released in 68, where he's like, you know, I really fear that this film was going to be, you know, mocked by the critics as a sort of American, Americanized version of an Antonioni film. And, and they had plans to work together. And even during the production of the swimmer, um, they spent a lot of time together. They, you know, Lancaster took them to Jamaica and they had a vacation together and they had even shared a mutual infatuation for the Bernard uh, Malamud novel, The Fixer. And they had actually discussed even starting a production company together where they would buy the rights to The Fixer and Lancaster would possibly star in it. Eleanor would write it. And Frank would direct it. And just as they were about to seal the deal on this project, they learned through their agent at the time that they were just a day short and a dollar short of getting the rights, losing the rights to John Frankenheimer, actually. So um, they never did actually collaborate. Um, but even, the, you know, there's a lot of mythos out there now. I mean, especially with the, the recent DVD Blu-ray of the summer that that's puts sort of Lancaster and, and Perry at odds for the production and it's definitely not the case um they may have started out as enemies but in the end they definitely ended up as friends yeah there's a story that joan rivers tells about uh being redirected by lancaster i take it that that's before they kind of uh buried this imaginary hatchet that uh, sam spiegel was waving around it must have been it must have been early because i mean they shot this the summer was actually shot for the most part in sequence so you think about in the context of where that scene comes versus, you know, the story and you can sort of sort of get a clarity of idea there, I think. Tell me as far as the reshoots go and how Spiegel kind of uh, messed with the production after shooting it wrapped. Spiegel wasn't on the set, so he never he never came to the set of the swimmer, but he but he did come. He was off in Europe on his yacht. And, you know, that was at one point of contention for Lancaster was Lancaster was pretty upset because he was promised by Spiegel that he Spiegel would be around in New York during the shooting of the film in case any kind of problems came up. And he sort of disappeared. He came back to New York twice during the summer of 66 while the film was shooting to view dailies. And he was not happy with the dailies per se, but suffice to say in the file in the, during the completion of the film and the film shot for 36 days, uh, summer of 66 and, um, one day over schedule. And, you know, Frank was ordered basically to come back and do a rough cut assembly of the picture. Contrary to what has been reported, 
the the first rough cut was 88 minutes and um, they projected they wanted like a 95 minute film or something like that. So the first cut was 80, 88 minutes and basically Frank had pretty well strategized the shoot in the sense that he knew specifically what were the key themes he wanted to to impart in the story and he had a real specific visual idea that he wanted to convey with some of the things in the film so basically you know he was ordered by Spiegel and the producers overseers Roger Lewis Joe Manduke to you know forego the shooting of sort of the insert shots visual ideas he wanted to convey and just basically shoot do the principal photography and then at the end of the shoot he would go back and and do those visuals and stuff and shoot the inserts and so he put the rough cut together and basically they screened it and you know Spiegel was not happy with it suffice to say so you know he, the, the, there's a rumor out there that you know there was only you know frank perry turned in a sort of 54 minute first cut of the film and it's been misconstrued in the sense that because really what happened was that spiegel basically said well you know i see 54 minutes of usable footage in this film and basically he thought the film was too ambiguous for american audiences and what they wanted to do was sort of dumb it down and sort of give it uh, a more easier to follow narrative, right? So you wanted to insert like the, exactly the things that Frank and I didn't want to do and had promised Cheever. So they, he wanted to put inserts in of like voiceovers and, you know, a couple of scenes that sort of helped explain everything with clarity and left it less with less ambiguity. And so, um, you know, at that point, uh, there was this, there was, of course, the climactic scene of Barbara Loden, which is, uh, you know, Lancaster um, confronts his 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 sort of ex uh, affair, you know, tries to I don't know if rapes the right word, but more or less. And um, in the in the in the swimming pool at the end, as it is in the film now with Janice Rule. And, um, you know, there was a confrontation. He lifts her out of the water. Her bathing suit comes down. She kicks him in the nuts and he's left with one arm in the air his fist in the air and the other hand holding his testicles and he's you loved it you loved it and he was after that he swam you know meagerly through the pool and then uh the, the story progressed to the climax at the house spiegel sort of being on the fence about the film called an elliot kazan kazan was not happy with the final scene with loden most likely not because it was an inferior performance but because of the fact that you know kazan was several years older than his wife at the time, Barbara Loden. And even Kazan later expressed an interest to sort of keep her captive, you know, out of fear that he would lose her. And all seems like, uh, to me anyways, that he sabotaged his wife's performance and the film by basically out of his own, out of his own jealousy and his own uh, desire to keep her sort of under wraps. And so he ordered the, he didn't want the scene in there. He suggested it be taken out or reshot. And Frank basically stood his ground, said, you know, no, this is, we're keeping the scene. They refused to do the things that Spiegel wanted. And so Frank was fired. The stipulation was, all right, we're going to do some reshoots. We're going to do them in California and we're going to do them in the, 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 after the new year in California, it's January, January or late January into early February '67. So that was when uh, Sidney Pollock came in. Uh, Lancaster, like I said, had worked with Pollock on the Scalp Hunters. They had become friends, and so there are a few scenes that potentially four sequences that Pollock shot, reshot of the finale with Barbara Loden was was reshot with Janice Rule. 
the sequence with the horse with Lancaster racing the horse was was shot with as Pollock as the director and it, one of the funniest things about that was when Frank and Eleanor were shown the new version of the film and they they said that during that sequence they laughed out loud and said that Lancaster was he was not the best actor in the scene the horse was the third sequence that Lang, that Pollock shot uh, was the they reshot the Janet Langard and, and Burt Lancaster sequence in the forest where Langard's telling uh, Lancaster about her boyfriend and you know he puts her his hand on her stomach in the original scene with Frank's shot he actually sort of gently moved over her breast so they didn't like that too much and they wanted that out of there the fourth sequence that pollock shot was uh came early in the film which was the scene as it appears now in the film with kim hunter um you know zero of planet of the apes and the originally in the, the original sequence that frank had shot that character the actors were older they weren't they weren't they were sort of out of line with the pre the previous connecticut residents that we had seen in the film um these were an a, older couple I mean, the film was basically comprised of New York theater actors, third or fourth choices of Frank. So he didn't have any much, he didn't have much say in terms of the casting. I mean, he could submit actors that he wanted, but it was often vetoed by Spiegel in the sense that because it defaulted casting actors that would work well with the budget. So those four sequences were reshot. Pollock re-edited the film. Uh, in fact, uh, Spiegel's minions, Roger Lewis and Joe Manduke, also had the opportunity to to cut the film and they um inserted like i mentioned they inserted the voiceovers they there was you know they'd done things like Roger Lewis had written this sort of microscript where you know there was this sort of montage of voiceovers where it was like early in the film you you heard this you know ambiguous voice saying this is the third time you've overdraft overdrafted your bank account mr merrill and you know he run uh, merrill runs into an old military buddy or something like that and you know so you get a context of why the swimmer was um in the state of mind that he was right and you get sort of this sort of sort of delineates uh the ambiguity and um it hits some hits the audiences over the head basically and which was exactly what the Perrys didn't want to do with the film and they of course um there was a, a happy ending tacked on as well two words that the, where the film ends now with Ned Merrill banging crying at the door of his abandoned empty house the the an alternate ending was shot just for coverage and and it was we would have saw Ned Merrill doing that and then a car was to roll up a station wagon and it would have featured Janice rule in the car. And she came up the driveway and got Ned and took him to a warm bed. And so it was a happy ending in some regard. This takes us into, um, you know, the, the summer of 67, um, you know, Spiegel's still not happy with the film. He orders it put back into Frank's original cut um, as it was presented at 88 minutes and um, they, he tries to work with the Perry's a little bit. And, you know, Frank, I mean, Frank had a very, very specific idea. He had very specific ideas in terms of the visual, visual ideas and what he wanted to convey with the film. And, and these, I mean, these are coming from Frank's archive, right? He, the things that were important most to Frank with, with the sort of the visual, metaphors in the film or the, the weather it had a universal and 
cosmic significance to him. And the weather was going to be used. He was going to shoot insert shots of the weather to, to symbolize a lifetime from birth to death and could be any man's lifetime. Distance was another thing. It was Distance was going to be used to show the length and strenuousness of Ned's journey, man's journey through life. And mood, uh, these, there was going to be shots that were going to be relevant to Ned only and symbolically were re- were to reveal he was what he was feeling rather than you know what he was feeling and then and then he was also Frank was always on the search visually to find visualizations or physicalizations of alienation and anxiety and so I mean in some way you see that for me anyways you see that Spiegel was trying to work work towards that in some degree I mean there are some things in the film that that sort of suggest these ideas. And then that brings us to the third director brought on board. And this is a, a, a guy who is credited in the opening credits of the film as a visual consultant, I believe, Michael Nebbia, who um, shot some of the stuff that we see in the opening of the film. We see this, you know, we see the film sort of open in this strange montage of images of fall. You know, we have animals in the woods and lots of leaves down. And so we see a lot of insert shots in the film, which can be directly contributed to Michael Nebbia going back and doing some reshoots. And then you have a fourth guy coming on board. I'm going to slaughter this guy's name. I've never pronounce it correctly. His name is Ed Vorkapich. He was a special effects cameraman. He was he came from sort of Hollywood family. His father, Slavko Vorkovich, was a a special effects cameraman in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s who was primarily known for montage editing and special effects camera work and his son Ed of course took up where daddy left off and i think uh, the the montage work the sort of reference the the combination the visual and the images in montage in the film i think we can contribute directly to him so i think in some ways the swimmer i think it's somewhere close to frank's original vision but as frank was quick to say and he, he said it in the 70s that the film was 50 percent his in the 80s, he said the film was 70% his. And in the 90s, he said the film was 80% his. So, I mean, there's some, you know, there's some, some, there's some truth in there somewhere. I, I tend to go with the 80% idea. You know, the f- film is pretty close to their original vision in the sense, visually, I mean, it's visually close to their original idea, but overall, it is some, in some ways a negated film because again, Spiegel tampered with the vision so much that it's really necessarily, you know, we don't know how much improve, how much more improved it could have been if they had stuck with it originally with Eleanor's vision, which was, you know, I think there's seven, eight, seven, I don't know, five or six, seven swimming pools in the film that the swimmer actually swims through. Well, originally, and in the original Achiever story, there's like 16 pools. And originally, in Eleanor's first draft of the script, those all 16 of those pools were in the script, and there was a particular manic energy and urgency for Ned Merrill to swim through all those pools in the original script. And in that process, the seasons were to change and it would have been a, a much more almost experimental film. If we would have seen that original vision, I think it would have been something that could have been construed as ahead of its time because we looked in the history 
of Hollywood and we see the context in which this was made and the context in which this was envisioned, there wasn't a lot of films made in Hollywood by studios that dared to push the sort of art house aesthetic that far. I mean, you know, we would have films come later, right? We would have Coppola's You're a Big Boy Now, um, John Borman's Point Blank, um, Easy Rider, these things that sort of push that European art house aesthetic into American cinema. But if we think if we think back in the swimmer, if it would have been completed and released in the fall of sixty six or the early of sixty seven, it would have been really ahead of those films. I think it would have made a, a much more indelible impression on audiences and critics than it did in the wake of it actually coming out the year later. You talked about that scene with the horse and the scene with the horse is just very strange to me as far, especially so far as the opening of that scene where it almost seems like a, a flashback that happens. What is your impression of that? I find a tremendous humor in in the fact that Frank and Eleanor laughed at the scene when they saw it come on the screen, right? Because it is, in some ways, it is very humorous. But in 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 another way, it fits, right? Because it a visual metaphor for the virility of Ned, right? So it's he's he's invigorated, you know. He's so what what better way to show a man invigorated and feeling in his prime than racing an animal that's known for its own vigor. And so, but I mean, the scene does feel very, it, it, I mean, it is an insert scene, right? Cause it doesn't necessarily make sense in the sense that it's inserted after a scene in the film, which for all intents and purposes should have Ned still being confused and estranged and hurt almost from his run in with the babysitter with Janet Langard. So for for us to jump from that emotional point to something like that, very jarring, disjointed, but I also think it it tends to lend itself to sort of oneric qualities of the film. I mean, the film does have a very dreamlike feeling, and I don't mean dreamlike in the sense that it, it's a narrative that allows for things to be nonsensical, but aesthetically it has a dreamlike feeling where you know film to me is very much dreamlike in the sense that you know we run from scene to scene to scene to scene and we skip around and you know we don't necessarily see the things that happen in the middle or between scenes so to me it feels like a very it feels very dreamy or very memory like like when we think back about a time we encounter with friends we have a good time with friends we don't necessarily remember like Let's say we go to a party with friends and we don't necessarily remember the drive to the party with the friends. We only remember instances with the friends at the party and then our mind may skip to another good memory or a bad memory. But we don't tend to remember the middle middle points. So I think the film feels very much like that to me where it feels very dreamy. But that comes from Cheever, too. So Cheever's stories are very oneric, very dreamlike and the film is layered with – I mean it's very heavy-handed. To, I mean I, th- I feel the film is very heavy-handed in the sense that there are a lot of clear, blatant visual metaphors in the film. You know, like the um, – you know, when, you, they, when Ned comes to the 
the nude couple, you know, they have that discussion about the tree that's got no leaves. You know, it's very, very heavy on the metaphors, which I think is very Cheever. If you read Cheever, you'll know what I'm talking about. And, and Cheever comes from a very classical Greek mythology tradition where a lot of his stories are very, um, Homer's Odyssey kind of thing. So I feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of Greek in, in this one there's certainly Homer's Odyssey. There's elements of Narcissus. Cheever was conscious of that as well. And there's a lot of documentation about how he under, how he, he tried to, to stay away. I mean, he wanted to stay away from Narcissus with this swimmer, but he couldn't avoid it to a certain degree. What was Eleanor's reaction to all of the changes that happened to her script? Well, she was very unhappy with it. I mean, but she went, she did it because the, the whole kind the notion was, is that if I walk, if, you know, she said, if I walk away, then some, there's going to get another writer anyways. So I might as well try to retain some control in the narrative right so when frank was fired that was the idea right like the, they were going to take the production they're going to do reshoots in california spiegel had originally wanted frank and honor to come to california and oversee the reshoots but frank was not to have anything to do with the shooting so frank flat out denied it and eleanor actually resisted as well too but then it was decided that she probably should go because at least you know, they would retain some control and it would still technically be quote unquote a Perry picture. So she went to sort of just keep her sort of keep her spoon in the pot. She worked with Pollock. The film is not her total vision as she in, as she first envisioned the film could be or should be. Now, of course, Pollock's name isn't on the film, right? which kind of makes sense coming in as a, a, a secondary director like mm-hmm. that. I'm very curious of why Sam Spiegel's name isn't on the film. I've never um, come across any specific reasons as to why he removed. I mean, he did. He removed his name, and he had the rights to do that in the contract, right? Like, but it's never been clear to me in terms of why he he decided to do that. I mean, the film still says a Horizon picture, and it's still produced by Roger Lewis, Spiegel's minion, but um. It's never, never quite sure as to why he did that. None of the, there's two Spiegel bios that have been written over the years and neither of those clarified either. So no one's sure why that happened. What did the swimmer do for Frank and Eleanor in terms of their careers? Well, it didn't really hurt it, right? You would think that it may have hurt their career, but ultimately it didn't because it was it was a case of timing because, again, they had gone into the production of the swimmer working on A Christmas Memory. And so even though they had this horrendous experience on the swimmer, immediately when the shooting was over on the swimmer, they went back to editing A Christmas Memory. And that came out on ABC, aired on ABC's stage 67 series and it received huge and warm critical response it won them every award you can basically win i mean they won a peabody award they were nominated for an emmy so you know it didn't hurt them because they were sort of back on top with the christmas memory and that led them to do two more capote films they did for television so in, in in the wake of finishing a Christmas memory, so in December of '66, they they because they still had that deal with Elliot Kastner in, in place. So in the in December of '66, even though the, the swimmer had not been finalized per Spiegel, they they went off to Rome to scout locations for Clementina. There in Rome, Life magazine sent Eleanor 
a copy of Sue Kaufman's Diary of a Mad Housewife. She you know, went over the moon with that book. This, she said, this book is my life. I, I, I know this character. I know this story because this was my life at one point. And so they got the rights to that and basically sat on it for a couple of years, did the Capote films, went into last summer and did my Diary of a Mad Housewife. It didn't hurt their career, certainly. You would think that it would have, but they stayed busy. And luckily for them, they had they got such a warm response for the Capote films that they the doors opened, their their reputation grew, they got more critical acclaim. I mean, the Capote films got great acclaim last summer, had tremendous acclaim. I mean, it was, Kathy Burns was nominated for an Academy Award for her performance in that film, Diary of a Mad Housewife. Got tremendous responses, so it didn't it didn't hurt them. Was Diary of a Mad Housewife was that their last film together? Technically, but um, you know, in the in the in the wake of that, they had, you know, Frank had um their fo- the follow up film, The Diary of a Mad Housewife, is the western with Stacey Keach and Faye Dunaway and Harris Shulin called Doc. That was shot in Spain, and um, that was the first time that uh, Perry had went ahead and started production on a film with a script that Eleanor had not written. So she was a little jarred by that. And, um, you know, there was tensions in the relationship at that point. And, um, cause Diary, Diary Mad Housewife had really spurned some tensions in the relationship because, uh, it was the first time that we, we, you know, we see, um, you know, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, John Carpenter's Starman. It was the first time that was the, a Perry film had not been called, Diary of a Mad Housewife, it had been called Frank Perry's Diary of a Mad Housewife. And so she was pretty upset by this. You know, So it was a situation of egos clashing, even though Eleanor had gone to Spain to you know, be with Frank during the shooting of Doc. And in fact, you know, while they were in Spain, Frank had a bit of a falling out with the, the writer of Doc, Pete, the journalist Pete Hamill. And Eleanor actually did a re, an uncredited rewrite on the script for Doc. They had actually already intended on doing a follow-up film. They actually had a, a deal set in place with the studio where they were going to do an adaptation of Joyce Carol Oates' Expensive People. Unbeknownst to Eleanor, because there was tension and problems in the relationship, that Frank actually went behind her back, You know, worked out a deal for himself to make as a solo artist, an adaptation of Joan Didion's played as it lays went back to Eleanor told her that the studio didn't really care for her script for expensive people. Shortly after there, they separated, you know, like came back from Eleanor came back early from Spain and, um, she came to New York and went off to Paris for kind of a mini vacation on her own. And unbeknownst to her, Frank had came home early Without her knowing, moved his stuff, moved his stuff out of the apartment, and they separated. Technically, Diary Man Housewife is the last official work of of the Perrys, but we can argue that Doc is is can be listed as that as well. Why do you think we're still talking about the Swimmer nearly fifty years after its initial release? Because it's an ambiguous film, and it touches on. It touches on metaphysical ideas. The tagline to the film, the the marketing um, of the film. You know, when we talk about the swimmer, are we talking? Are you talking about yourself? Are we talking about ourselves? I think has is this is an everyman story. It's a classical Greek story that we can all relate to. What more is timeless than that? I mean, this, these these types of stories 
always hold up in, in the zeitgeist because they're classical stories. It's the same reason why Star Wars holds up. <laughs> it's a classical story. Like it's a it's a it's a it's a universal story with universal themes. I think in some ways the swimmer is exactly that as well. And it's weird. In some ways it's a weird film, right? It's it's again I think it's something that we've never seen before in Hollywood. A Hollywood film never come out that was so strange and so aesthetically unique and i think that has a lot to do with it as well now when the movie came out on blu-ray a few years ago from grindhouse releasing there were a lot of and i I guess they were separate documentaries because they each have credits though they seem uh pieces of a whole was there anything uh anything in there that wasn't necessarily 100 percent accurate as you've gone through and done all your research on on the perrys well, my biggest problem with those documentaries, and, and I think they're, I mean, they're really, that's a really good documentary. But I think for my money, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things in this documentary that are very off. Like, I mean, directorial decisions that I really question, like, you know, feature, I mean, clearly from the start of the documentaries, you have Hertzberg and Zachary, the two ADs of the shoot who were, these guys are completely imposed on Frank. They were not his. They, he, Frank didn't hire him. They were imposed on him by Spiegel's minions, and um, so it's weird to me they would be sort of the lead, the leads of the narrative of this documentary. And I think there's just so much speculation, and I mean, they clearly have egos. Like I, I love in the documentary how Hertzberg takes credit for the film and calls Frank underexperienced and says that he has a lot of lot to do with the success of Mel Brooks. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, they seem to have huge egos and there's, it's like, for me, it's like they're kicking a man when he's down. Like, like Frank's not around to defend himself. And there's that ridiculous comment in the documentary about Frank staring at someone's penis during the shoot in Speedos. And it's just like crazy. And there's just a lot of things that they could have better, had been better researched and, points clarified and i'm in mean, the documentaries when that blu-ray was released frank's family was really upset like i i showed the film to frank's widow and she was very upset about the about the thing and i mean the the filmmakers had cooperation of joe manduke and ted zachary and michael hertzberg and they had some input from eleanor's son involved i mean to to their credit i mean the, they're not wrong in the sense that during that period, Eleanor did support Frank. You know, she did support him. She was the primary breadwinner because she, she was so prolific in her writing and she's doing all these reviews. And Frank was not sitting around the house. He was doing a lot of wheeling and dealing, trying to get projects off the ground for them. So the, I, just, I just have a real problem with the way thing, the narrative is conveyed. And I feel like it really did a disservice to Frank and I really downplay his his contribution and his work as an artist. Cause I think for all intents and purposes where that, that film is Eleanor's vision, it is, it's Frank directing it. And I think a, the, a lot of things that are strong in that film are from Frank. Not only did he have the, the really uncanny ability to get in the head of the actor, but he had a strong visual sense as well. So I think a lot of the stuff in the film that is, that's memorable or important or visually exciting is, is everything to do with Frank? I mean, we didn't, we don't have that amazing opening sequence, the overhead tracking through the woods without without Frank Perry. 
So I just have a lot of problems with the, the documentaries in that sense. You know, if you really watch the documentaries close, there's like typos in the title cards. <laughs> I mean, there's little things in it that are just really annoying and grating to me. And so I just I wish that it would have paid a little bit more umbrage and given Frank a little bit more respect than than they did in that. Because at this point, they, it feels like they he's really you know belittled in the film. I just I don't like that about it whatsoever. How is your Perry research going? I've been done with that for quite a while. I'm kind of in the midst of I'm in the midst of writing and rewriting some things. I've still got some. I've taken some time off. I took all the last month off to just kind of hang out and do my own thing. Starting get back into it and finish it. Still hoping to finish it by the end of this year. And you now I'm still still coming. I still discover new things here and here and then. I recently, after man years of trying, I finally got some footage uh finally got some interviews with frank from television he appeared on the david frost television show in support of diary mad housewife and i finally got copies of those appearances and i have a lot through my through norman mailer work i finally have a contact at the library of congress and um you know for a long time people have told me that Frank produced and hosted a television show in the early 60s on New York television called Playwright at Work, where he um, would bring a playwright on, discuss their work, and restage a scene, and then discuss the scene. It was, you know, I think 12 episodes, I think, that aired on New York television, um, aired around the country, too, through syndication. But it was often, I've often been told that that series is lost forever, and no one has copies of it, and I discovered recently that there are actually kinescopes of it at the Library of Congress, and so through my contact Library of Congress, I've been able to get copies of those shows. So I haven't actually received them in the mail yet, but I'm really excited to see them because, you know, Eleanor appeared on one of the episodes with Frank to discuss a play that she, they were planning on collaborating on together, and of that play, there was a scene stage that featured Cure Delay. And this is how, this is how they decided to cast Kier Delay and David and Lisa. So I'm pretty excited to, to get those, to have the ability to intensify my writing about that series in the book is pretty exciting to me. I've been working away on, on this project, and um, you know my Norman Mailer book comes out next month, and so I've gotten a couple reviews back from that already that are seem to be promising so I'm nervous and excited for that to come out and um that's about it really i'm just kind of laying low and working on this project trying to get it done and um so i can have a break <laughs> well i look forward to talking to you about man on a swing in a few months yeah yeah that'll be that's a, that's a good one it's that one there's there's not a lot of information about that one so you have to so hopefully I'll be able to bring some. Um, I mean, there's very little written about that film, so I have to. I have to, I have some good stuff to bring to that discussion. I mean, yeah, I interviewed Joel Gray about the film, and <laughs> I went in with like a bunch of questions, right? And I was like, just really excited to talk to him. You know, was, typical question was like, yeah, you know, and how did you find the character, and who was that character, you know, to you? And his response: Hey, I'm an actor. It's what I do. <laughs> Great. <laughs> how was the shoot? Good. <laughs> So you know how you think you're going to get like an hour or something with someone. I walked away from that interview with 15 minutes and maybe like 20 seconds of really interesting, usable information, which was really devastating to me. I had an, I had an interview with a director of photography, Adam 
uh, Adam Hollander, who I recorded the conversation and found out that I didn't record it. <laughs> so I had that happen to me. And I interviewed Dorothy Tristan from the film as well. And thought again, I thought that was going to be an hour long interview. And that turned into a five minute interview where every response was, I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. I'm sorry. <laughs> so been cursed a little bit with that one. So I had to work really, really hard to get research and I had to get work really hard to get research for that one. And luckily I could rely on, um, you know, a couple of real pivotal crew members that were there. Well, Hey man, thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate it. I hope there was some information that was usable. <laughs> I'm Kate Buford, and I am an author. I have written uh, for Knopf two biographies, one of Burt Lancaster called Burt Lancaster in American Life, um, and Jim Thorpe, um, Native American son, uh, The Life of Jim Thorpe. And I also have a company called Biography by Design with a partner and associates, and we do private biographies for corporations, nonprofits, families, and couples and individuals. Um, and that's, we started that a couple of years ago and it's been a big success. Um, I also, in terms of Lancaster, serve on the board of Union Settlement Association in East Harlem in New York, which was Lancaster's home away from home when he was growing up on East 106th Street in New York. And that connection led me to the board and I just recently brought on Burt Lancaster's niece to the board as well. So, uh, that's a very meaningful connection for me. And that's pretty much what I do. Well, I mean, given all those connections, I have to ask about the book. What was the genesis point for you to go, you know, Burt Lancaster? Yeah. The genesis was Atlantic City, which came out in uh, 81, I believe. And I was uh, living here in Charlottesville, and it was it was screening at our local kind of indie theater back then. And a bunch of us went to see it. We thought, oh, this sounds cool. It's gotten great reviews. And I vaguely remembered Burt Lancaster from movies maybe like Trapeze as a little girl. And what I saw on the screen was this person that I, again, vaguely remembered as being so masterful and, and athletic and in charge, playing this down-and-out loser. And I thought, there's a story there. What kind of cool does it have for him, this kind of person to take on that role. And that sort of planted a little seed, and I had no thought of a book. I had two babies. I was, you know, had up to my ears in diapers. And But what happened at, shortly thereafter, you know, when they began to um, put old movies onto VHS, and you little by little you could watch almost anything you wanted of old movies. You could rent them or, or whatever at the video stores that used to exist back then. Anyway, just kind of following an instinct, just kind of like a hobby, I began, as I had time, which wasn't much, to piece together old Burt Lancaster movies that I'd never seen, some of them I vaguely remembered, and then realized there was this whole other career that went forward that I hadn't kept up with at all um, in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And uh, what I began to see was this amazing, to me, progression of a career. It's like an artist. He had certain periods. He moved from noir in the 40s to Mr. Muscles and Teeth in the early swashbuckling movies in the early 50s. Then he gets a little darker with Sweet Smell of Success. And then you get the 60s with Elmer Gantry and A Judgment at Nuremberg and The Train and then, of course, The Swimmer. And then into the 70s, films that I and most other people didn't see either because he'd really fallen off the charts to a certain degree. 
And I thought, he really, where did he get the power to create a work of, a body of work of such coherence? Because in Hollywood, that's almost, back then, was very, very difficult to do. Um, you had a Hollywood that was coming off of uh, the so-called golden age of studio domination after the Paramount antitrust decision in the late 40s required the studios to stop their vertical integration. And so independent production was coming in. And I realized he had the most successful and important um, star-driven independent production company, Hecht Hill Lancaster, in the 1950s. He was, as Tony Curtis described to me, the Gonstemacher, you know, the, the guy who just, the biggest elephant on the bus, or the gorilla on the bus, whatever animal you want to use. He was incredibly powerful. And people had forgotten that. They'd forgotten that company, by and large. And because he had so much power, he was able to call his own shots. And no one had ever put those pieces together, both of the sort of coherence of the, of the work and then the independent production company and how he married those two together. Um, so I did an article for Film Comment, which is the magazine of the Film Society of Lincoln Center. And I had done several pieces for them. And the, um, the editor said, yeah, go ahead, do it. And I did this, the first piece that was ever done about Lancaster, about his work. And that became the calling card for the book. And Knopf picked it up. And uh, I wanted to write a book that looked at a figure of popular culture, in this case the movies, who was, had a huge impact on that sector, on the movies, um, and treat his life and work with the same seriousness um, and a lot of humor because Lancaster was funny, but treat it with the same meticulousness that you would treat a biography of an inventor or a politician or a writer, so-called high culture. And in the process, and this is hardly news to anybody, um, I became so convinced that there is no high and low culture. It's all the same culture and that movies are who we are. So not many Hollywood actors would merit that kind of treatment, but I thought Lancaster did. So I did a mainstream so-called biography of a movie star, and it was was and remains a kind of an unusual thing to do. Before we get into him a little bit more, um, as for you, how long did it take uh, to do the book? It took about five years. Of I typically do the research first, which then sets me up to know what sort of questions to interview people about. And then I do the writing. Um, it's kind of a funny story because when the editor, John Siegel, who's a great editor at Knopf, took me out to lunch and I, in my proposal I had listed all these people, stars and producers and directors that I would have to talk to. And he said, are you sure you can get access to these people? And I said, oh, sure. Of course, I had no idea that I could get access to any of them. And um, I proceeded with the – and I've told, given this advice to a lot of writers who want to do something similar – I started with the sort of low-hanging fruit, which are the, the screenwriters and the assistant producers and the assistant directors, and then you work your way up the pyramid. Um, I had a whole three-leaf, um, sorry, three-ring binder um, with a sheet for each of these people. And I think the person that required the most calls, because when you get to the stars, you have to work through their agents and then the agents have to refer you to their manager, and then the manager has to set it up with the star. Um, but I remember the day that I got through to James Earl Jones, and I thought, I'm in, I'm in. Because then you can say, 
I've spoken to James Earl Jones, and I and I also got his widow's approval um, and blessing, and she's remained a very close friend, Susie Lancaster. Um, so that whole process took five years. Now, as for Lancaster, you talked about him being, you know, good looking and athletic, and it's my understanding he didn't start out to be in film. He was doing other things, correct? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he he stumbled into movies. I mean, he, as I mentioned earlier, he grew up in East Harlem which was a poor immigrant neighborhood. Um, his family were Irish, Protestant Irish, and they had sort of, they were holdouts in that neighborhood. The, most of the neighborhood was Italian and Jewish, and the Lancasters, that's his real name, Stephen Burton Lancaster, and um, they stayed on. They owned their house on 106th Street, and um, he uh, went to college for a couple of years at NYU, and then in the early 30s, he and a close friend, uh, Nick Cravat, decided to go uh, join the circus. They had been practicing acrobatic routines on the parallel bars in the Union Settlement House gym. And so throughout the 30s, the two of them toured all over the country, mostly the East Coast, but they got out to the West Coast, doing, um, going with various, you know, dog and pony type circuses. And uh, it was a very rough life. They never were that good, but they were kind of comical because Lancaster was so tall for an acrobat. Mostly they're small and Nick was tiny. And um, then World War II came along, and he went into the Army and was with an entertainment division in Italy, um, which, of course, with his later film work, was incredibly helpful for him in terms of understanding the culture. And um, then um, he had one of the more spectacular and interesting star discovery stories. He returned in uniform to New York in 1945, and was riding up an elevator in the Royalton Hotel on 44th Street, which is still there, to visit a woman he'd met who was with a USO show in Italy, Norma Anderson, and um, an, an agent who was scouting for a Broadway show, The Sound of Hunting, sort of a, what they called then a, a dugout drama, meaning a World War II drama, uh, while the war was fresh in everyone's mind, um, looked at him and thought, well, he looks perfect. He didn't know if he could act or anything. And one thing led to another, and Lancaster was cast in this play, which only ran for three weeks. But the studios were so hungry for new talent, because the war had just ended, that scouts from all the major studios were in the audience when it played, and they all glommed on to Lancaster. And Hal Wallace at Paramount signed him, and the rest is history. So when he started out, he was doing you know studio pictures, program pictures. Was he you know, getting the A-list stuff, or was it, you know, B-movie to start and work his way Oh, up? no. Well, that's the other part of the discovery story. He was, um, he signed a contract with Paramount, but he, he, his agent, who was Harold Hecht, who had later become his partner in the independent production company, Hecht drove a hard bargain and said, okay, he has a, a, an outside picture option. So what happened was, even before Hal Wallace could get him into a picture, Mark Hellinger, who was a famous producer and New Yorker and writer, character of the time, had his own production company, and he cast Lancaster in The Killers, a movie about, based on the very short Hemingway story that had been published in, the, I think, the 20s. Um, so The Killers came out first, and that was it. I mean, Lancaster was a sensation in The Killers, and so he never had to do B-movies. He just went straight into A-list. And then from there, I mean, the, the ones that stick out to me 
And the fact is, as you were saying, I mean, things like Sweet Smell of Success and the fact that he had the ability um, to start his own company and work deals. I mean, this is, uh, you know, the studio system hadn't really collapsed yet. I mean, it was still kind of rolling along mm -hmm. for a while. But mm -hmm. how, how was he able to kind of subvert a little bit the way things were done? That's a really good question. Um, he formed his independent production company, the first one, Norma Productions, in the late 40s. Um, his first movie was Kiss the Blood Off My Hands, which caused all kinds of problems in terms of radio and censorship. But um, he, by this time, he was in his early 30s. He had run out of options in terms of work and career. He knew that. I mean, the circus was not going to be viable any longer. And he looked around and thought, okay, I'm a big thing here. They like what I do. I'm going to make this work for me. And he hit the ground running. Everyone noticed this that I spoke to that remembered those days in the late 40s. He hung around the producers. He hung around the costume designers. He hung around the script writers. He wanted to learn what producers did and how movies were made. He, had, For a star, he had really um, incredible discipline. And he set out to control. He just he wanted to be his own boss. He wanted to be in charge, even with the studio system. So what he does is he has the Paramount contract. He then starts and then he did the Killers with Hellinger. He had two more movies with Hellinger, and then Hellinger died, and the and the um, company folded. Then he signs a contract with Warner Brothers, and somebody said it was Hedda Hopper that Burt Lancaster was sliced more ways than a watermelon, and then. United Artists in the early 50s, which you recall was set up by, um, in the silent era, by silent stars, Mary Pickford and, and Douglas Fairbanks and others, and they were almost moribund, and they needed a star. Two, Crim and Benjamin, two um, investors, organizers, bought United Artists, and to revive it, they needed a major star on which to build United Artists, and they chose Lancaster. And on his back, as they said, they revived that company. So by the early 50s, he's got about five contracts going at the same time. The other one that I think of who was a name at the time who started his own production company is, is um, Kirk Douglas. Mm -hmm. Do you see that there was some sort of parallel between those two and how they both kind of were able to be stars and also do their own independent productions? Oh, certainly. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd say... Of course, I'm prejudiced in favor of Lancaster, but I think his career is more varied, I mean, particularly looking at this 50s. Um, in fact, Neil Gabler, who is a very fine biographer, he's written a major biography of Walt Disney. He wrote How the Jews Created Hollywood. Um, he um, also did a biography of Walter Winchell. He's working on one now of Teddy Kennedy's moving out of the movies. But he told me when I started this project, he said, trace Lancaster's career in 50s Hollywood, and you trace 50s Hollywood. So both um, Douglas and Lancaster were uh, fierce, hardworking actors and eager to be producers. Um, I'd say, though, that Lancaster's career is more interesting and more ambitious. So by the time you get um, you get into the 50s, how did, uh, you know, during this period, the late 40s and the 50s, when he's coming up and he's a star, did any of the, you know, uh, Red Scare things touch him? Did he have to deal with that in any particular way? Because, I mean, we're talking that era. I mean, you may as well ask the question. Yeah, that's a, that's a big part of the, the book, my book, the biography, because that was one of the more interesting parts to trace, because everyone was affected by it. He was very active long after Bogart had dropped out, Humphrey Bogart, 
and other stars. He was still making speeches against the German-American Bund, which was one of the more extreme far-right um, organizations at the time, making radio addresses. Um, and as a producer, though, he had to tread, and an actor, had to tread a sort of fine line. But he knew, and this is the sort of ugly, not-so-secret fact about the Hollywood blacklist, is that they really didn't go after the big stars because they knew that the public sentiment would turn against them. Uh, John Garfield was the, one, was the one exception, and a big one, and a tragic one. But they didn't go after these box office stars. But because Lancaster had a production company, he had to watch who he hired. But he did hire people like Waldo Salt. Often they would work under assumed names for him. And I found in my researches a letter that he had to write. Everybody had to write one. Um, but he skirted this sort of line saying that he had never been a communist, which was true, um, and believed in the American way of life and the American government, etc. What was really interesting, though, about his navigation of that, he stayed clean because he really didn't have anything to apologize for. But his partner, Harold Hecht, had been a communist and named names. So Harold Hecht became one of the more reviled people among um, those people uh, hurt and whose careers were ruined or at least derailed for a while by the House on American Activities Committee. But Lancaster and Hecht stayed together. But Hecht was, Hecht was a kind of, um, well, he was definitely an opportunist, but he was one who did name names. Lancaster was never called to testify. You know, there's certain films that stick out for me, and I'm sure I could have you on the phone for hours talking about Sweet Smell of Success and The Leopard and and all of those. Uh, the one we're talking about on the show this week is The Swimmer, and it seems to be uh, an odd little picture uh, in terms of how it was made. <laughs> and um, it, it, you know, the thing that's interesting to me is the revival of it came through Bob Morowski's company, uh, Grindhouse Releasing, which is mostly known for putting out you know 70s gore films. Uh, but put this out and I bought it and not really knowing what it was all I know is hey it's Burt Lancaster and let's check it out and uh, it completely uh, blew my mind and that's why we had to do it on the show so I was wondering if you could kind of talk about this period you know mid late 60s sort of where he's at and how did this kind of come together for him yeah um, The Swimmer is a really strange and wonderful movie. It was it was released in 1968, but it took a couple of years to make, and they started filming in 66. Um, Lancaster, by this point, uh, as we've talked about, his independent production company, which finally had to fold with the failure of Sweet Smell of Success. I mean, it really, that was sort of the end of the independent production company. It lingered a little bit, but that was really the end. But he had become such a huge star that um, he then goes on to win the Oscar for Elmer Gantry, Judgment at Nuremberg, The Train, The Leopard, although that was reviled at the time and later um, redone and now is, of course, a classic. So he was a very big, important player in the early 60s. By the time he heads into filming The Swimmer in 66, um, it's a terrible time in the country, um, difficult, nightmarish sort of time. And for him, he didn't yet realize it, but he really is beginning to fall off the top, top star echelon in terms of audience recognition and people going to his movies. So he chooses to make this oddball movie um, based on a John Cheever, very short story called The Swimmer about a man, Nettie Merrill, who swims his way home, he thinks he is anyway, through his neighbor's swimming pools in Connecticut. 
really strange, kind of a, yeah, like a nightmare, like a dream. And Lancaster, way back, going back to the beginning, he had always had this appetite to make, as his wife then, Norma, said, make one for the bank and one for art. So he would make, like, Gunfight at the OK Corral for, you know, the bank, and then he would make Sweet Smell of Success for the art. Uh, he didn't care if they failed. Well, he cared in the sense he hoped they make money, but he wanted to make films that matched his time. He always wanted to do that. He was always pushing to be a part of the of the conversation, as we would say now, through the movies. So he sets out to make The Swimmer. And, um, you know, it's funny, when I watched Mad Men, as we all have, I kept thinking, that's Nettie Merrill. Don Draper is Ned Merrill. And I kept hoping that Wiener, you know, would make at the end that the last episode of Mad Men would be Don Draper swimming home through the swimming pools to his empty, abandoned house. Um, there were so many echoes in Mad Men and in the character of Don Draper. And he's admitted this, Wiener, the, the writer. Um, so many echoes of this alienated wasp, supposedly ad man. We're not too sure what he is, but we think he's a Madison Avenue ad man. Um, and so Lancaster shows up for the shoot, and uh, the shoot itself becomes highly problematic. And John Cheever, um, and I go into this in some detail in the book, and his son Benjamin Cheever was very helpful for me in this book and has since become a friend. John Cheever was in the movie briefly, and so there are these wonderful letters that John Cheever's writing to a friend, John Weaver, about his encounters with Lancaster and his perceptions about this strange Hollywood star, you know, who's so athletic and so beautiful and yet always looks like he's about to cry, which Cheever thought was perfect for Merrill. Um, and the movie hit certain production problems because the... Um, the director-writer team of Frank and Eleanor Perry, had a, who had, were Oscar nominees for David and Lisa, an earlier film, which was a huge hit in the um, 60s, they had their own way of, obviously, that was their movie, they were filming it, but Lancaster increasingly came to feel that they were not capturing the hallucinatory quality of this story. So long story short, they were bumped off the film and Lancaster took over with and then brought on Sidney Pollack, who had become a friend um, and whose career he really helped jumpstart. And Sidney was another person who was really helpful for this book. And so the book, uh, the movie ends up being certain scenes that had never been shot at all. Other scenes were reshot in California, which now you look at it and it seems appropriate because it's all like a dream. At the time, though, the movie came out in 1968, which was a horrible year, of course, of assassinations and the Vietnam War escalating. And the movie was just sort of like Sweet Smell of Success. People said, what is this? Um, this movie makes no sense. And uh, Lancaster was, what is it, Newsweek or one of the magazines said it looks, it looks like a shampoo commercial and that Lancaster looks like he's reading uh, a bread loaf wrapper. You know, I mean, they really castigated him, which was a favorite game of the critics throughout Lancaster's career. Um, and I, I remember screening it one year of the Jacob Burns Film Center in Pleasantville, New York, as a major film center, and, and I've done a fair amount of work for them. And we screened The, the Swimmer. Uh, this is Westchester County, right near Connecticut, sort of in that, and, and Cheever lived in Westchester County, and his son lives in Westchester County. And we screened that movie, and when the lights went up, I turned around to look at the audience because I was going to be speaking to them about the movie. 
and they looked shattered, shattered. I mean, they, you know, this is a contemporary audience, sort of like you said you felt. Um, the movie has, like Sweet Smell of Success, become a mark of its time, um, and even stronger. People couldn't bear, I think. There was so much going on in 1968 that was so, so awful that this movie was like the underlying, the subconscious reality that they couldn't bear to face. Because here's this man, and you get more and more confused as he goes pool to pool, and the weather gets darker and darker, and finally at the end is a crashing thunderstorm, and he reaches his house, and it's locked, and it's empty. There is no family there anymore. They've left, and he's been bragging about what a wonderful man he is, and his family, and his kids, and how much they love him, like Don Draper. And he gets to this house, and it's empty and dark. And there's that classic shot at the end of Lancaster, sort of torturously akimbo against that front door, trying to push with his beautiful body, um, but he can't get in. And in fact, in the hardcover... um, book. I don't know if you've seen the hardcover edition of my biography, Burt Lancaster in American Life, but we came across a photo of the art department of Knopf, and it's a beautiful shot of Lancaster nude walking away from the camera, so it's back, sh- back shot, toward a swimming pool from the swimmer, from a shoot on the swimmer. And the art director, Carol Carson, took one look and she said, back cover. It's going on the back cover. And because you could talk till you're blue in the face about what a beautiful body Burt Lancaster has, but a picture is worth a thousand words. And he's 52, and he's perfect, perfect. I mean, the form and the everything. And we had to get permission from the family at the 11th hour, as it was going to press, to use that picture. And Joanna Lancaster, one of Lancaster's daughters, who's terrific, she finally called me and she said, yes, you can use that photo because it's so beautiful. And, you know, speaks everything about her father. I think one of the things about the swimmer, and I think he kind of hit it a bit, was at this time in the late 60s, I mean, there had been several summers, including here in Detroit, we're now looking at the 50th anniversary of the uprising, where the, and also the civil rights struggle at that time, that it almost seemed like the culture was okay, not okay, like, yeah, we accept that yeah, things are messed up. But it almost seemed like if it was coming from someone with dark skin that America has a problem, then okay, we get it. But here is, I mean, Lancaster is almost represented as the absolute suburban, you know, this is the goal. This is what you're supposed to be if you're a white male. These are the homes you're supposed to own. This is what you're supposed to be. And when you get to the end, and it's all a facade that he's probably gone mentally that had to be such a, they, they just, like you said, they, they couldn't bear to look at themselves in the mirror that way. Exactly. That's a really perceptive comment. I think it was a visceral, the movie's a horror movie, if you look at it, actually. You know, it, it's a kind of an American horror movie. Um, and the audience couldn't bear to look at the archetypal, you, you have several layers going on there. You have the Nettie Merrill character that Cheever created, but you also have the audience's memory of Lancaster, you know, playing the Flame and the Arrow and the Crimson Pirate and Gunfight at the OK Corral and these, uh, and from here to eternity, for Pete's sake, his first Oscar nomination. Um, here was this all-American god-like figure, and he's playing, prefiguring in some ways Atlantic City, he's playing this crazy failure, but he can't see it himself. Uh, and the audience couldn't see it themselves either. 
Um, and you're right. I mean, the swimming pool is the talismanic symbol of success. And it's not one swimming pool. It's a whole string of them. So everybody's wealthy enough to have swimming pools. Um, the whole facade is cracked and broken by the end. And it was just intolerable for people to watch. One of the things that I wanted to see if you knew from your research was how was um, you talked about the, the Perry's eventually he he got them off the picture and then brought in Sidney Pollock. What what did you find as sort of the arc? Like where where did they find commonality and then what was that break for him where he's like, all right, fine, you know, I got to do something here. This isn't working. You mean commonality with the Perrys? Right, like when they were starting out creating the swimmer and find, okay, you're going to be the writers, directors, and I'm going to be the star and produce it, and we're going to get going. And you know, it's it sort of what point did they have that break? Like, kind of walk me through. You know, those early days, if you remember from your research, sort of yeah. how it developed to where it was, all right, this is it. Like, that's the last straw. You guys got to go. I got to bring in Sidney Pollock, which no one knew at the time. <laughs> Sidney Pollock. No, they was. did not. No. Um, well, Sam Spiegel at Columbia was, was the producer of this, and he was really in charge. And he was the one who would have hired um, Frank and Eleanor Perry, who has uh, had this very good reputation coming off of David and Lisa, which had been released in 1962. So they were felt to be competent for this kind of strange project. Um, and yet, they all got along very well. I mean, um, Spiegel was in Hollywood, but out in Connecticut were the Perrys and Lancaster, and it, the shooting went along well. But then Lancaster began to feel that the Perrys' realistic approach, they had a realistic approach, was not up to this job of translating Cheever's strange little story onto the screen. Um, and Lancaster said, and I'll read if you don't mind, but I'm, I'm sure. quoting Lancaster, film has its own particular life, regardless of what's going on in a film, Lancaster said later. And the swimmer needed some kind of strange, weird approach to capture the audience and make them realize that in a way, they were not looking at anything real. In talking about the script, we would say, this is again Lancaster talking, I don't know why two men in white coats don't come take this guy away. And then when uh, it went on from there, and it, it temperatures went up to 102 degrees, it was hot, it was strange, and reporters were coming up to uh, cover this strange little shoot. And uh, by August, I mean, they were filming all summer, Lancaster began to get spooked himself by the movie. And as I explain in the book, and we've been talking about this, Nettie Merrill was him, too, in a way. You know, the, 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 the waspy man with, I mean, he, wasn't, he was a wasp technically, but he wasn't brought up as, in wealth. But the man with the, the pretty wife and the children and the pretty house with a pool, but there's so much that's not working underneath. And, and the, the horror of this story began to get to Lancaster. And um, that's when he started to feel that the Perrys were not... Um, we're not, how would you put it? We're not conveying filmically what it felt like to be in that movie. And that's when he wanted to take over. Was he starting to see any parallels to his own life in some way with this character? That maybe there was this facade that he was keeping up that wasn't necessarily jiving with the internal truth in some way? Well, I suggest that in the book. I think unconsciously he did, to the extent I can speak for his unconscious. But as Burt Lancaster, he was not that introspective. Um, he, in fact, one of the things that really attracted him about making movies, and this was true of The Swimmer, 
if he made a movie about a problem, then he'd solve it. So he, he exercised his demons through making movies. And he entered into other people's lives, um, obviously, in movies. And in some funny way, he um, exercised his own demons and problems through making movies. So I don't think, I think, that's why I think there was a problem with the filming, in that he did, it did get to him by August of 66. And he just got more and more frustrated that the, the full reality of this horror story was not being conveyed, but it did mimic his own life. It had to, he would divorce his wife. They would be divorced within a, two or three years. His life was getting more and more complicated and difficult. Um, but whether he sat down and said, gee, I'm Ner Nettie Merrill, I doubt he did that. As for some of the stuff that was shot by uh, Sidney Pollock, I, I remember someone pointing out that I think it was the horse scene may have been Pollock. Do you know what else uh, was reshot or things that were done by him, off chance? Let's see. I'm not sure about the horse scene. It could have been. Um, I do know that they <clears throat> shifted casting, and the lover that Nettie Merrill's supposed to have, of course, he's probably slept with most of the people at the pools, but... Um, like Don Draper, Barbara Loden was among the was the original actress cast as this disgruntled um, lover, and that scene at the pool with her was reshot in California. There were eight weeks of California retakes and recuts, and Loden was replaced by Janice Rule, and her key scene as the embittered ex-lover was reshot in California. Um, beyond that, I'm not. Sure, we didn't get into that detail about how many scenes, but that one was a big one. And then they reshot several scenes. Just to kind of highlight um, at this time, how do you know sort of how Sidney Pollack came into this? I mean, you had mentioned that they had gotten to know each other. Do you know sort of what the, the background on them was at that time? Oh, yeah. Um, Pollock was working on The Young Savages, which was a film of Lancaster's in the late 50s. And he was just starting out and uh, as a dialogue coach as I recall, and um, Lancaster just watched him. Lancaster always watched, 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 and uh, he watched him and said, you know, you should, you should direct. And Pollock was like, really? Um, sort of taken aback. And uh, Lancaster picked up the phone and called Lou Wasserman, who was the most powerful and successful agent at the time in Hollywood. And he called, according to Sidney's recollection, um, Lou, I've got this great guy. I don't know much about him, but I think he's really good. I think he'd be a good director. You should, uh, you should take him on. And so he got shepherded into um, Wasserman's domain, and then they didn't see each other for a while. I mean, then Pollock's career took off, and Lancaster continued to make his movies, but they became closer and closer friends and then began to you know, work together. And they worked together on... The Leopard as well, uh, Lancaster brought in, which had been made a few years before, several years before, um, The Swimmer. That's a whole different story, which we can't go into all the details about The Leopard. But at the time it came out, there were several different versions. And the American version, which Lancaster was in charge of and had Sidney Pollack come in and help, bombed. And um, But nevertheless, Pollock and Lancaster continued as very, very close friends all their lives. And then he brought him in again for The Swimmer. And they worked on um, Castle Keep, um, which was another strange 60s movie that came out about the same time as The Swimmer. Um, again, something a movie that was fairly well um, received at the time, but is now studied in film classes. Um, but Pollock was this 
straightforward Indiana-born Midwestern guy, and he just really loved and appreciated Lancaster and took him as he was, and, and the two of them got along extremely well. And certainly he owes his career, at least the beginning of it, to Lancaster. So, you know, the, the swimmer comes out, it does horrible business, the reviews are savage, as you told <laughs> earlier. Um, what did What's sort of been your take now that it's been, I guess, for lack of a better term, rediscovered, because it came out on Blu-ray and it looks wonderful and the documentary extras and everything that are on it? I mean, do you feel that uh, it's like, yes, I'm, I'm glad it's uh, long overdue? Oh, yeah, um, totally. And I think it's a very good example, one among several, of Lancaster doing the kind of movie he wanted to do and it not being appreciated at the time, uh, mainly because critics, as they would recognize after Atlantic City, dismissed him. There were snobs, you know, about this beautiful, it was like a beautiful woman at the time couldn't possibly be smart, right? Well, this beautiful man couldn't possibly be an actor. And um, the swimmer, like Sweet Smell of Success and like some of the really interesting movies he goes on to make in the late 70s, um, it's a very good example of what he was trying to do to engage with his own time. And he knew what he wanted to do. He wasn't trying to please anyone but himself and what he felt was true and right to do. And he got blasted for it as often as not. But now people look at those movies fresh and it's like, whoa, um, there's really, it was Vincent Canby, who was a New York Times critic. He said, we all underestimated the, this was after Atlantic City in the early 80s, we all underestimated this intelligence at play in this career. Um, and he admitted himself, first and foremost, had not understood what Lancaster was driving at and not appreciated the original, unusual nature of so many of these movies. When you look at sort of Lancaster now, um, and it's hard to find, you know, contemporaries, but is there anyone that you see in sort of modern Hollywood or modern film that does anything like he does in terms of, you know, one for the studio, one for me, or trying to have this dialogue with, with the culture? That's a good question. And in fact, that leads to another reason I did the book was that Lancaster in the 50s also broke the star mold. You know, he would take something like um, Gunfight at the OK Corral, but also do something like The Rose Tattoo and get, get blasted for the latter. Um, stars didn't switch hit like that then. They just didn't. They stayed true, the old studio mold. So he, he paved the way for people like De Niro and Tom Hanks, even Kevin Spacey, you'd say now, who's actually in a film with Lancaster. Um, oh, I'll remember the name of it in a minute. Um, somebody now, I mean, now it's, it's so much more accepted that someone like Tom Hanks, for example, can do Philadelphia and then also do gosh, the more mainstream movies that he does. Um, Kevin Spacey still is pretty much a character actor. He greatly admires Burt Lancaster and evidently does a terrific imitation of him. Um, I can't think of anyone who's quite like him because the times are different. Um, movies are being not eclipsed, but they have a good run from their, for their money from cable and Netflix and Amazon and television is going through this amazing, amazing golden age itself. So what Lancaster created with his independent production company and with his breaking the star mold by going back and forth with different kinds of roles, 
is now almost taken for granted. So, no, to answer your question, I can't think of a star that would be like him. What do you think we can learn from his example in the modern era? I, any era can learn, I think, and one of the reasons he was so interesting to me and remains interesting to watch is that he was fearless. He didn't care if the critics didn't like him. He knew what he was doing and he, what he wanted to do. He was constantly trying to pit himself against something that was difficult. It was like the circus model. You know, you, you try to spin through the air, and acrobatics are very dangerous. And he had learned to sort of master his body and to master a fear of danger. Um, and so he constantly was seeking to grow and change himself. There was an originality to his approach to his career. Um, and I also admire greatly his discipline. Most Hollywood stars don't have the discipline to be producers. They all want to be producers, but they don't actually really want to do the hard work that's involved, and Lancaster did, particularly when the industry was wide open. Um, and as a human being, I was just having lunch the other day with his niece, um, who's an executive at HBO in New York, and she's fantastic, and her uncle Bert was a great favorite. And we were talking about his sense of humor, which comes out in the book. I mean, he's got this deadpan New York City sense of humor. Um, and that made the writing of the book um, really a joy um, when you found that kind of humor. And a lot of people didn't get it. It went right over their heads. Um, but he was just a very complex, interesting person. So as for the book, uh, is there a good place to get it or, you know, that you direct people to? Yeah, you can go on Amazon and get it. It's uh, now it's in paperback. I mean, it's been in paperback for a while, and it's um, you can order a copy on Amazon, or Barnes and Noble, or wherever. And as for yourself, you did mention the company. Is there any other books or things that you're working on uh, that people keep an eye out for in the future? I have a proposal with my agent in New York at the moment, and I can't talk about it until it becomes real. <laughs> so I'm hoping it does, in addition to doing the work for the company, which has turned out to be a great deal of fun. I'm also on the board of um, Biographers International Organization, otherwise known as BIO, which is the only professional organization for biographers. And we have a terrific group of people, um, Robert Caro and uh, Ron Chernow and Stacy Schiff and on and on and on. It's been a terrific group, and we're working hard to raise the genre of biography and to um, work on its behalf. And that's a, a very fulfilling um, target for me as well. Sounds good. Is there anything you want to add that maybe I forgot to ask you about related to uh, the swimmer or Lancaster? I know, like I said, we could be here for hours talking about all the great stuff he did. <laughs> There's so many movies. No, I, if people are interested, I would say obviously read the book. Um, a lot of people have said when they have the book and then they sit down to watch a Burt Lancaster movie, they start to get interested and they say, oh, I want to watch, you know, Sweet Smell of Success or Gunfight at the OK Corral or Judgment at Nuremberg. Elmer Gantry's still a fabulous movie. They, my book gives them the production story behind these movies so they can read the production story in the book and then watch the movie with fresh eyes. And that, I've been told, is very helpful. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Rob, very much. It's been a pleasure. My name is Preston Neal Jones, and uh, for purposes of this discussion, I'm uh, a film historian, 
And uh, in this case, it's my personal history as well as film history that we're talking about because I was an eyewitness uh, at being on the production staff of The Swimmer. During that period, uh, this was almost, uh, I'd say, about 50 years ago that this film was made. Uh, kind of take me back to that and what were you doing at the time and how did that lead to you being on the set of Working on the Swimmer? Well, this was 1966 in the summer. I was between my freshman and a sophomore year as a uh, drama student at Carnegie Tech, which became Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. I live in uh, Connecticut, Fairfield County, John Cheever country, and that's where uh, the uh, swimmer was to be filmed. Uh, and uh, my uh, mother, bless her soul, uh, sort of uh, pushed me when I uh, needed it. Um, she said, you know, that you, you should uh, offer your services to the, uh, the, the, the film company. And I remember saying, well, Mom, they've already been shooting for a few days. They've probably got everybody they need. And she said, well, well why, don't you, we got nothing to lose. why don't you go in and, and see them? So they were headquartered at the Norwalk Motor Inn. Uh, so I went over there. I, I lived just next door to Norwalk in New Canaan. And uh, uh, said to a gentleman uh, at the office, I said, uh, I live around here. I've got a car. Can you use me? And he smiled and said, where have you been? So I was hired immediately and uh, then taken into uh, the office of the production manager, a gentleman named Joe Manduke, who uh, later became a director in his own right. And uh, he uh, gave me uh, the gist of uh, what my uh, responsibilities would be as a production assistant uh, which, of course, is more commonly known as uh, gopher. And uh, he said to me what I still consider the best advice about movie making I've ever received. He said, Preston, this is a serious business. If we send you out for a cup of coffee, don't come back with a trombone. So I was off and running. The next morning, uh, I started, uh, I drove over to the location. And, of course, it was all locations. It was houses all around the county that had been uh, rented from their owners for that purpose. And this was the, uh, they were shooting pretty much in sequence. The nature of the story allowed that the way most movies don't. Uh, but since uh, no character had to repeat except each episode at each pool, uh, uh, they had the, uh, the luxury and the artistic benefit of shooting a sequence. So uh, when I arrived, uh, it was at uh, the uh, location with that wonderful, spectacular view of the hills, uh, the opening scene, in other words, when Lancaster emerges out of the pool and dives in and kicks off the story. Do you remember how long the shoot was? How long uh, were they in your neck of the woods, your neighborhood? Well, as, as I remember, it was just uh, like a summer job. It uh, covered uh, the, the whole uh, uh, six weeks at least. <clears throat> Excuse me. I can't remember if this was probably June or, uh, that I uh, started, so I'm, I don't remember anything more precise than that. Somewhere in my archives I have uh, the uh, call sheet for the very last day of shooting. That would tell me. <laughs> reason I, one reason I remember the call sheet is because they this was a gag call sheet that they prepared because it was the last day. And under the uh, uh, line where it says uh, director, they had written Preston Jones. Because I, of course, was the lowest man on the totem pole. Well, you know, being the low man on the totem pole sometimes is kind of fun because um, you can kind of step back and kind of take the broad view. You know, you're not uh, probably stuck in the office all day. You're going here, you're going there. So so what did you uh, kind of see during your time when they were, you know, as you said, kind of shooting down the street from you? Well, I was definitely not stuck in an office. Uh, they definitely needed me and my car. 
uh, often uh, drove uh, cast and uh, other people uh, to the set. Uh, I remember uh, the uh, refresh me the the uh, ingenue's name, uh, the babysitter, the beautiful blonde. Uh, well, I have to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, my car was a white convertible, and there were three or four of us. Uh, that I was driving to the location one day, and she said, Oh, all these flies. We don't have flies like this in California, in Los Angeles. And I said, Oh, smog kills them all? And she gave me a dirty look. Janet Langard. Uh, yeah, there you go. Well, uh, to, more to your uh, uh, point, uh I uh, I mentioned to you that in uh, uh, preparation for our conversation here, I took the f- first look I'd really had time to d- take at uh, the uh, two and a half hours worth of documentary on the Blu-ray of uh, The Swimmer. And uh, some things uh, that were a general uh, truism I wasn't uh, privy to. There was a lot of... Apparently, uh, there was a lot of uh, more personal, interpersonal frictions amongst uh, some of the key players that I was never uh, privy to. And because every, all of these people who weren't always nice to each other were always nice to me, that's uh, one reason uh, why I wasn't uh, aware of it. Uh, people who were t- t- in the documentary tend to speak disparagingly of shirtless uh, Roger Lewis, the producer. Um, I remember uh, that uh, when he found out that uh, I knew a lot of movie trivia, I became his uh, go-to guy. I remember one day on the location, he came up to me and said, Preston, was it, was it Captain's Courageous or Mutiny on the Bounty, where they have the uh, gag about spitting into the wind? I said, that was Captain's Courageous. And he turned around and yelled up to somebody in the other end of the location, I told you so, you owe me five bucks. <laughs> I think the uh, the key moment uh, of any where I was a fly on the wall uh, that um, I think is definitely worth uh, mentioning has to do with uh, all of the uh, uh, shooting of the uh, infamous uh, scene with Barbara Loden, uh, infamous partially because, of course, it was one of the ones that was totally redone, as I say, with the Janice Rule uh, later on after the fact. Uh, one thing that I I remember vividly, which I was surprised, I, they uh, had a lot of discussion in the uh, documentary about what did they shoot, what didn't uh, they shoot, and what were their intentions. Uh, I was surprised that uh, uh, nobody mentioned the fact that uh, this was uh, not only uh, the normal shoot, but at the same time an underwater shoot. Uh, they show us still with the couple guys in the pool with their snorkels and their cameras, uh, but they never talked about that in the documentary. But I remember uh, this is one of those few occasions when I really was in the right place at the right time to hear Frank Perry discussing his plan for that scene, uh, probably with Dave Quaid, the cinematographer, and uh, maybe the AD and uh, some other people. He said his uh, plan was that when uh, Ned Merrill uh, starts getting uh, aggressive and tries to put the make on his former mistress, Barbara Loden. Uh, it gets to be a violent scene. And uh, he uh, said, we're going to, in the editing, we're going to keep cutting back and forth from the noise and the tumult above uh, the surface to a very quiet imagery of the violence beneath the surface. So that was uh, the purpose of the uh, underwater cameras. Uh, later on, when uh, the picture was released a couple years later, uh, 
I was uh, disappointed for many reasons that uh, Barbara Loden's scene was no longer, uh, her version of the scene was no longer in the picture. Uh, I had been looking forward to uh, taking friends to the movie and being able to point out and say, see that where Lancaster's tearing her bathing suit off? Right before that, I gave her a Coke. I also uh, remember, uh, you know, these, uh, I mentioned that uh, these houses were all, uh, rented uh, for the occasion, and it would usually be for a certain set number of days. Uh, the one time I remember they went over their initial uh, estimate of the time they need was for this uh, crucial and delicate scene with Barbara Loden. Uh, it was uh, a pool at the bottom of uh, a hill, up top of the hill, where the home of Mr. and Mrs. Edelstein, whose property this was. And because the uh, company had to... Uh, uh, extend the, spent another day there. They had to renegotiate, and apparently uh, the uh, Edelsteins uh, really uh, made them uh, pay through the nose for that extra day, more than they'd paid for the other days. And when that uh, extra day was finished shooting, I remember uh, Bert Lancaster striding over to the edge of the pool and calling up to the hill where uh, <clears throat> the Edelsteins and some of their friends <clears throat> had been sort of watching uh, from afar, probably uh, sharing cocktails and smokes and whatnot, and, and enjoying the uh, the spectacle. And Bert Lancaster sort of cupped his hands to his mouth and said, "Oh, Mister and Missus Adelstein, if Sam Spiegel wants us to come back and do a retake because he didn't see enough of Barbara Loden's took us, will you let us come back?" And Mister Adelstein shouted down, "If that's the reason." <laughs> Oh, that's good. So for you, um, it, it sounds like you had an opportunity to, to really be in there much more than I think most people would think uh, gophers or PAs uh, get to. I mean, um, it, it seems like you had a broad experience here getting coffee, getting, you know, Coca-Cola here or just being able to hang out when they were shooting. I mean, um, it was definitely uh, a broad uh, a, a spread of uh, duties. Uh, the one I remember most memorably uh, uh, for me uh, personally, uh, was about two thirds of the way into the shoot, um, I was asked by uh, Frank and Eleanor Perry to work on a Saturday taking some uh, furniture from their the home that they were using during the shoot and uh, take the furniture into their place in Manhattan. And so I remember uh, going, uh, driving over to their place, loading up uh, a station wagon that was theirs with the furniture, and I was ready to take off for Manhattan. And Frank Perry came over to me and said, that, "Now, here, Preston, this is what I really want you to do after you get all this stuff stuck to, tucked away in the apartment. You know, we're going to do that municipal pool scene uh, this week, and uh, we're going to have all these extras, and I want to uh, have a lot of." Uh, municipal pool behavior to buffet Lancaster as he swims across the pool. Uh, so uh, after you drop stuff off at the uh, apartment, uh, see, find yourself a local YMCA and uh, just uh, swim around uh, the pool and uh, s sort of uh, take notes of any kind of uh, unsavory <laughs> municipal uh, public behavior, anybody picking their nose or pissing in the pool or uh, roughhousing, uh, things like that. Uh, 
and uh, and then just get back to me with the uh, jot it down and uh, and get that uh, back to me. So I uh, went home after. Uh, Swimming around uh, a YMCA pool in New York City. You ever see Top Hat, Fred and Ginger? I felt like Eric Bloor, uh, who's spying on Fred and Ginger with his water wings on, uh, as I just uh, surreptitiously uh, swim around looking at everybody and what they were doing. I went home and wrote down uh, uh, all of the things that I had noticed that uh, fit uh, what Frank Perry had asked for, and I added to that. every uh, similar memory I could remember from my own lifetime of uh, going to beaches uh, in public places. And uh, uh, Eleanor Perry told me later that Frank was very pleased uh, with uh, the list. Uh, They didn't uh, end up using uh, really anything specific that I had given them. It uh, became just sort of a general chaos and that uh, seemed to be uh, sufficient uh, for the shoot, uh, but uh, it's just like a lot of other things uh, in the movie business. Uh, you do a lot of stuff that doesn't always end up being shot, or if shot, doesn't always get, get end up being used. But I had the pleasure of mentioning this to, uh, it might have been to Michael Hertzberg, in fact, uh, uh, either him or Ted Zachary I told him what I'd been doing over the weekend, and uh, he said, well, you know, Preston, that's usually the job of an assistant director, don't you? And I had not realized that. So for a young green kid just starting out in the world of show business, that was a, a real uh, a nice uh, uh, nice moment uh, to, to tuck uh, into my uh, psyche. Uh, I, uh, I mentioned uh, to Ted Zachary, uh, my favorite memory of him, and this also... Uh, comes under the heading of things that I was uh, uh, privy to in a wide spectrum. Uh, Late in the shoot, they were preparing for the scene where Lancaster has to cross the Merritt Parkway. And uh, I remember it was an evening after a regular shoot. There was a big production meeting in one of the uh, motel rooms. Uh, with Frank and the assistant director and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And for some reason, I was uh, brought in, even though I had nothing to uh, contribute, uh, just the fact that I would be involved in whatever decisions were made, uh, carrying out whatever orders uh, would be given to me. Uh, there was a lot, a lot of logistics that they had to uh, deal with. They had uh, extra driver, stunt drivers coming in from New York. They had like 20 cars uh, rented for the occasion, uh, and uh, how, and they had to, of course, uh, rope off part of uh, the freeway and deal with. Uh, Uh, all the real traffic and all the traffic that was going to be created for the movie and uh, planning for all the uh, the people throwing cans out the window uh, at uh, Ned Merrill and all of that. And it was uh, a lot of details to be slogged through. And it was late at night when we started. It was even later when we were uh, still working on all of this. And uh, Ted Zachary uh, sort of broke uh, some of the tension by saying, look, it's the last shot we're going to shoot in the picture, right? So we put a camera on one side of the parkway. We put a camera on the other side of the parkway. We send Bert across. If he makes it, Fine. And everybody's laughing at this point. If not, let him accept his Oscar posthumously. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a big problem. <laughs> I, I just think of the fact that 
actual drivers would have been like, hey, isn't that Burt Lancaster? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they would have. The um, the other thing I wanted to ask about is, um, you know, the swimmer's notable um, for, uh, I believe it's her first role, uh, Joan Rivers. Uh, were you on the set then? Did you have any interaction with her then? Oh, yes. Um, I uh, sent a link to a little blog that I wrote about her when she and the swimmer when she passed away. Uh, at a place called the uh, website called the Cinema Cafe. Uh, did you have a chance yet to uh, to read that by any chance? Just mm-hmm. a, a couple of pages. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Well, then, uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, then uh, this will be for the listeners. She had uh, recently met the Perrys, and uh, they had become friends. And the Perrys, as I understood it. Uh, had uh, written in this little part uh, for her just uh, uh, to give her a little moment uh, in the picture playing this uh, wistful uh, party goer who has this uh, fleeting uh, flirtation with uh, Bert Lancaster's character. And uh, she, of course, was just starting to make a name for herself uh, as a comedian then. And uh, not unexpectedly, uh, between takes, uh, she would uh, be uh, in her uh, entertaining vein and uh, chatted with uh, other crew members and uh, cast members and just uh, sharing uh, chit-chat and and, uh, joking around and uh, keeping people laughing. And there's a great irony in the one joke that I remember her saying. Uh, She talked about having just flown back from Europe and uh, sitting next to Marlena Dietrich on the plane. And uh, Joan Rivers said that uh, she had tried to engage Miss Dietrich in conversation, but uh, uh, she said uh, she didn't uh, crack a smile. Uh, uh, she didn't uh, talk, didn't smile the whole uh, trip across the ocean. And then as a throwaway line, uh, Joan says, probably afraid to break the stitches. And, of course, uh, that's uh, sadly ironic in view of... Uh, um, the way uh, uh, she uh, dealt with uh, plastic surgery in her own life uh, always made me sad because uh, uh, she she was a perfectly uh, a cute uh, young lady and apparently just didn't feel that way about herself and uh, began this long, uh, as we all know, uh, long series of... Uh, uh, procedures uh, which uh, did more damage uh, where no help was needed in the first place. But anyhow, that's my 25 cents psychologizing. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously you got on well with uh, with the Perrys uh, to have yeah. them go move stuff into my apartment and then go to the YMCA and swim around and take some notes for me. So can you kind of, uh, kind of talk about your time with them and uh, definitely. I was able to spend more time, naturally, with Eleanor than with Frank uh, because she was there on the sidelines and he was always actively uh, working. Uh, but uh, we uh, uh, got to uh, know each other. She was very uh, kind to me. And um, I uh, have uh, 
signed copy of the script from her, and I also have a, a signed copy of uh, the hardbound book that published the script uh, sometime after that. And I, still, I treasure both her uh, transcriptions. Uh, I, uh, for, for better or for worse, uh, was uh, very simply and truly a, a green uh, kind of naive uh, kid in those days. Uh, and it's probably hard uh, for more sophisticated people sometimes to uh, uh, <laughs> uh, believe that that's the case. And uh, what she uh, signed uh, on the uh, the shooting script was uh, something to the effect of, you've been turning us on all summer, haven't you? Meaning putting us on. Uh, but I hadn't been. I had just been uh, my uh, own uh, little self. And uh, what I really loved was uh, what she wrote in the, uh, the the book of the script. She quoted a line uh, from uh, the script uh, saying, uh, Dear Preston, why not when the world is so generously supplied with water, Eleanor? And, of course, when you're just starting out your life, that's the perfect uh, benediction. Uh, so I really uh, treasure that. Um, uh, actually, uh, she, she and Frank were not only uh, nice to me in general, but uh, this uh, you may not need uh, uh, to mention any of this because this is more uh, the importance of the swimmer in, in my life. Uh, but it happened that... Uh, uh, when I got the job on the swimmer, I mentioned that this was after my freshman year at the Carnegie Mellon. Uh, they, I had gotten a notice uh, from Carnegie uh, asking me to withdraw. In other words, uh, basically booting me out of uh, the, uh, the the program. Uh, I won't bore you with the long story. Suffice it to say, there really was no uh, good reason for this, and uh, so I. Uh, stood my ground and applied to be uh, reinstated sophomore year on uh, probation, which is what you could do if you were advised to withdraw. You could either withdraw, as you were so advised, or thumb your nose and say, nah, I don't want to. And it says in their bylaws that if you can show by uh, outside work or studies that you're capable of resuming your studies here at Carnegie Tech, then we will consider taking you back on probation. So in the event... I was able to send uh, letters from Frank and Eleanor and from uh, Roger Lewis, the producer, and uh, uh, from uh, another, I think it was uh, one of the ADs uh, uh, on the uh, picture. Uh, and uh, uh, they uh, did accept me back, and I did <laughs> graduate a few years later. If they had kept me out, they wouldn't have... Ironically, they wouldn't have had anybody uh, to graduate. As, I was in the directing program. They wouldn't have had any other directing uh, major to graduate that year. It just happened that I was the only one left, not because I was such a hot shot necessarily, so much as other people changed schools, changed careers, got married, whatever. But uh, I, I was the only one in 1969 uh, uh, to, to graduate in the director's program. Anyhow, they, as I say, they were, uh, they were very uh, good to me all of those uh, people. Yeah, obviously, it seems that it was uh, much more than just a six-week summer job for you. This is something that uh, had impact for you throughout your life in that way, making those connections. Exactly. I was uh, very glad some years later. I, uh, in, I came out to Hollywood in 74, and uh, there was a uh, 
event at the uh, Academy's uh, theater about, uh, it was either about screenwriters or woman screenwriters, uh, and Eleanor was one of the uh, guests uh, on the panel. And uh, so I was able to uh, see her afterwards and get reacquainted. I'm very glad that I had that chance uh, uh, to remind her of uh, our uh, past association and how good she had been uh, because, as we know, she died much too young uh, sometime after that. Um, I I remember uh, one of the things that she said uh, during the course of the evening, talking about her experiences and misadventures in the industry she uh, had uh, this all had to do with uh, uh, writers in in general in her case it also had to do with being a woman writer Um, she she said that uh, she was uh, hoping to get a job uh, from one particular producer uh, on one particular film project and the guy uh, was uh, pushing her off and uh, saying, uh, no, no, Eleanor, this is just uh, uh, a regular movie. If uh, if you worked on it, you'd only want to put uh, all of your integrity stuff into it. And uh, she says, to my uh, chagrin, I found myself saying to him, I promise if you give me the job, I won't put any of my integrity into it. little sounds like a Groucho Marx uh, line. <laughs> Yeah, that might have been uh, for uh, the man who loved cat dancing, which I understand was not a happy experience uh, for her. Of course, the the swimmer was uh, turned out to be an unhappy experience for her. Uh, uh, we can come back, but jumping ahead to uh, the uh, post production period, uh, as you know, uh, the film was taken out of the Perry's hands uh, uh, shortly after uh, the shoot, and. Uh, uh, when I uh, visited Frank and Eleanor uh, was, uh, during that time, uh, she told me that she had written an article about the experience, uh, and she was going to call it The Shallow End. Uh, I think it was going to be for Esquire magazine. Uh, in the event, she ended up not uh, uh, having that published. Uh, and I, Somebody in the production later told me uh, when I bumped into them uh, that uh, Burt Lancaster had uh, called uh, her and dissuaded her from uh, publishing it and basically said that it wouldn't uh, really uh, do uh, her uh, any good uh, for future work uh, and uh, career-wise. Maybe if that was the reason or not, I don't know, but uh, she didn't end up uh, having it published. And uh, I was fascinated to see some notes uh, uh, that she had made for it that's in that uh, documentary on the Blu-ray uh, now that uh, the dust has settled and its uh, history is no longer a question of anybody's career, I think it might be very interesting to have that whole essay published uh, with the notes. Uh, but that's the film historian in me, always hoping that things will come to light and be preserved. You mentioned briefly when it came out um, that you went to go see it. Uh, what was sort of your feeling when you saw the final film? That's a fascinating question to me to this day, because I had been so close to it, having been there every day on the shoot, I was aware that I couldn't really tell how I would feel about it if I was just seeing it as a regular audience member. Uh, I was, uh, so I was sort of in it and distanced from it at the same time. 
over the years, I've seen it again and again. And uh, probably uh, as, as a factor of uh, the fact that I've been growing older all that time and little by little getting closer to Ned Merrill's age, I definitely have been able to uh, appreciate uh, the issues that the film deals with and the, the power of its presentation. And, uh, and I'm more moved by it uh, each time I, I go back to it. I'm uh, very glad in general that uh, the the film uh, with uh, not not just myself but uh, with the world has uh, <clears throat> gone from uh, being a uh, neglected orphan to uh, a uh, very well respected and in some cases beloved uh, uh, piece of work. Uh, it uh, parallels really the uh, the trajectory of. Uh, the movie that I wrote my first book about, The Night of the Hunter, which uh, was scorned by critics and ignored by most of the public in 1955, and which little by little over the decades uh, became more and more recognized for what it was until now it's considered uh, one of the great films. And uh, it's been uh, uh, meant a lot to me to uh, notice. It's been very gratifying uh, that to see little by little the uh, the swimmer come into its own, uh, partly because everybody who worked on it uh, really uh, worked hard to make it something worthwhile and, and special, and uh, so I'm glad it's being recognized now as such. You know, you were there um, for the main part of the shoot, and then the and then the reshoots came in, uh, and and you kind of knew when you saw the film i mean did you have your buddies with you and go yeah i wasn't there for that i don't i don't know what that is uh like did it kind of were you kind of like what what's up with this or that or i mean was it kind of interesting to see some of that juxtaposition of what you remembered very much so uh before i saw it before it was actually released uh somebody on the production i'm sorry i can't remember who was telling me about uh what they had heard about the reshoots now of course the reshoots were done with, uh by Sidney Pollack uh, who worked with Lancaster a lot uh, here on the west coast uh and uh, uh but it was, i think it was somebody on the east coast was telling me that uh, they had uh, shot a whole new scene with a horse for some reason they didn't know uh, why not having seen it yet uh and my, I got uh, to the understanding that the whole reason for the overhaul was uh, the uh, assessment by the powers that be, and I guess that would mean Sam Spiegel uh, uh, and God knows who else. Um, the, the the feeling was that um, the the film didn't capture the uh the special mood that the uh, story seemed to uh, require that it was uh, shot as a standard straightforward drama more than anything that would tip to the audience that this is not just an ordinary drama this is an allegory this is a metaphor that this isn't about just what's happening on the screen but what's happening inside this man's mind and in fact, I remember when I looked at the uh, shooting script, I, uh, the very first uh, shot uh, that's described was not uh, shot or certainly wasn't used in the picture. I wish I had it here so I could read it to you, but uh, the, the gist of it was that the camera was to start, the very first image was supposed to be very tight 
on the back of Ned Merrill's head as he's walking through the woods. Uh, and uh, that, I, I think, was to begin right away to uh, cue us into the fact that we're, we're in this man's head, we're in this man's mind. Uh, so uh, a lot of what was shot was uh, sometimes just little images to be inserted into the footage that they'd already shot uh, to uh, let people know that this uh, was an interior uh, uh, soul and mind uh, drama, uh, that this is all about Ned's thoughts and, and feelings. So, for instance, uh, the very beginning that kicks off uh, the story when he gets the idea to swim home. Uh, when the camera comes in close on his eyes and they go to that dreamy music and the sunlight in the sky imagery and then come back to him, that was an insert. That was to give you uh, the idea that this was all about what's going on in, in Ned's head. So you can sit me down uh, with a uh, print of the film sometime and I can quote you chapter and verse every single shot uh, that was added or inserted. Sometimes, as you know, whole scenes were reshot with different actors, uh, especially uh, the scene with uh, Kim Hunter uh, and Charles, uh, what's his name, early in the picture. Uh, and especially, as we've discussed, uh, Barbara Loden was reshot with, uh, with Janice Rule. Uh, but as I say, there's all kinds of just little, uh, sometimes little inserts, just little things uh, that they hoped would uh, create uh, the necessary mood that they felt had been lacking in the first cut uh, that uh, the Perrys uh, had submitted. You know, we talked a, a bit about some of the side actors, um, the, the smaller roles, and and um, your engagement with obviously the crew because you were you were on that end and the Perrys. Uh, what was your interaction with, if you had any? Do you remember with uh, with the star Burt Lancaster? You mean Splash, as we used to call him, but not to his face, but with affection. Um, I remember first catching sight of him that first day at work at that special location. Uh, he was uh, the crew was milling around. He was standing there in his speedo, and uh, uh, it was. I have to tell you, it was a real uh, kick uh, uh, to, to see him. Uh, you, not just on film, but in in person. He was definitely uh, a star, and of course, he was in such uh, great shape uh, even at that time. Uh, it was uh, much to my chagrin when I looked at myself when I was uh, finally uh, the age of Lancaster and uh, didn't look nearly in as good shape as he had. Uh, uh, I didn't have a lot of interactions with him. I uh, got uh, he, he gave me to understand that uh, for some reason he thought my hair was kind of long. Uh, I, I don't know... Uh, uh, where that uh, came from, uh, there were lots of uh, hippie types in those days who had much longer hair than I did. Uh, I remember that uh, one time uh, my duty for the day was to uh, drive and chaperone uh, one of his daughters uh, who was visiting, uh, take her around shopping. And because she uh, had uh, ended up going to more places than we originally planned on, we were late getting back to uh, the uh, Norwalk uh, Motor Inn uh, with uh, the car, 
and apparently there had been some uh, uh, to do about uh, wh- where's the car, where's Preston, why isn't he back yet with it? And uh, I explained what had happened, so everybody uh, was cool with it. They said, so, uh, "Why don't you go over uh, to Bert and just explain to him?" Uh, uh, Mr. Lancaster was sitting eating his meal uh, there in the, uh, the, the the restaurant of the uh, motel, and so I went over and explained uh, what had happened. Uh, and uh, hoped that he wouldn't uh, uh, be angry. He didn't seem angry at that point. I think he hardly looked up from his meal, but he just sort of deadpanned. uh, He said, uh, that's all right, Preston. I just thought when uh, you weren't back yet that maybe you were taking the time to get a haircut. Uh, That's uh, the the most uh, direct uh, interaction uh, that I had with him. I can tell you that there was an article about it, the shooting of the film in Time magazine, and they told the story that he had gone up to one of the uh, doors of a suburban home and said, uh, Hi, I'm Bert Lancaster. Can I have a cocktail or something like that? I asked the publicist for the film, who was on the location every day, I said, Did that really happen? And he just sort of smiled and said, It should have. Uh, that's sort of par for the course, uh, naturally, in uh, uh, movie uh, promotions. Um, I was impressed uh, with him uh, uh, just as a witness, uh, as were many in the crew. Uh, I don't know if anybody else uh, felt this way about it, but one thing that impressed me was uh, the fact that uh, we would be uh, doing a uh, scene of him walking in the woods with Janet Landgard, and uh, the uh, camera would only be showing him like from the shoulders up, but uh, he was walking in his bare feet. And this may seem like a, an obvious thing or a, an insignificant thing, but he could have had uh, uh, sneakers or sandals or anything like that, and it might have been more comfortable for him. But uh, he definitely wanted to be uh, totally feeling physically what uh, the character was feeling at that point. So that, to me, that impressed me. Um, and I remember that uh, the, the uh, crew was impressed with him uh, when they shot that scene with Barbara Loden. I remember one to remember talking to the other uh, about it and uh, and, and admiring him for uh, for the, what they felt was uh, his guts in uh, uh, just pulling out all the the, the stops and and risking. Uh, uh, an emotional uh, revelatory uh, performance. Uh, uh, they talked about uh, in the, the film, as you now see it, he uh, has that one line where he's screaming, uh, you loved it, meaning you loved it in the swimming pool when we made love in the past. Uh, I don't know for sure if they were just uh, speaking metaphorically uh, or if this actually was shot the way they were describing it but uh, the way they were talking about it this one guy was saying uh, when he had one hand under the water on his nuts and his fist in the air screaming uh, like that that they really admired him for uh, for doing that you talked about being able to go back to school, and then you got through school, and then you moved out to California in the 70s. So um, what sort of uh, became the next things for you um, out of this film experience? Did this lead you to go, right, you know, um, I'm interested in movies, and that's kind of what I want to be around? That was always the focus, and I was always... Uh talking to people who made movies, uh, hence my oral histories, uh, and uh, I wanted to, uh, and still do, uh, want to be 
making my own movies sooner or later, one way or another. But uh, as of now, I have been published, but not yet produced. That's the hurdle I'm still working on. I've had some, like a lot of writers, I've had some close calls, but no cigar yet. And uh, like so many writers, I've just had a long series of day jobs. Uh, and uh, at the moment, uh, thanks to a bus that uh, knocked me down a few years ago, I'm now a, a full-time writer <laughs> and uh, happy, happily uh, working on the scripts and stories and still some of my uh, film histories. And some of the books that you've done, you did mention uh, Night of the Hunter, but also uh, people who are, I guess, trekkers, we'll use the proper term, uh, may also be interested in another book that you've done. Uh, the Hunter book was called Heaven and Hell to Play With, the filming of the Night of the Hunter. And the Star Trek book is called Return to Tomorrow, the filming of Star Trek, the motion picture. That was originally commissioned to be a special double issue of the late lamented magazine, Cinefantastique. Uh, and uh, I ended up interviewing uh, 60 cast and crew members uh, for that. Uh, it was never really uh, clear to me uh, why the uh, editor, Fred Clark, uh, who was a very uh, troubled, quixotic, if that's how it's pronounced, uh, character, uh, ultimately uh, he paid me the advance, but he never did uh, publish it in the magazine, even though he even promoted it, uh, he used it uh, to sell uh, subscriptions, saying we're going to be doing this great issue about Star Trek. Uh, so uh, over the years, because people knew it had been written, uh, uh, there were Trekkers who were saying, hey, are we ever going to see that? Is it ever going to see daylight? So uh, they and I were very happy a few years ago when it finally was uh, published. Uh, so... Uh, uh, it's uh, available, like both books are available wherever better books are sold, and uh, I, uh, I've been very gratified with uh, the reception uh, uh, to both of them. The uh, the Hunter book actually won a Rondo Award from the Classic Horror Film Board, uh, one of the first Rondos they handed out uh, that was uh, Book of the Year. As for uh, Place Online, is there a website, or is there any place where people can keep up with your work, or just kind of check Amazon or whatever for the books? Well, there should be a website, and there will be, I'm bound to determine, but not yet. But they can certainly go to Amazon and uh, find the books, yes. Actually, uh, one of the things I'm proudest of is in somebody else's book, I did a cover story for Cinefantastique about Hans J. Salter, the composer of the music for the classic Universal Monster movies of the 40s, the Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, and Mummy movies, and uh, Tom Weaver, who I don't know if you know his work, he does many, many uh, fine books of interviews uh, uh, with the cast and crew, uh, filmmakers uh, and actors uh, usually deal with genre movies, and in uh, one of uh, the books he reprinted uh, the article, so that's uh, that's something that's still out there and can be read. Uh, that particular book has the great title, uh, I Talked with a Zombie. The reference, of course, being to I Walked with a Zombie, in case any non-Val Luton fans are listening. You know, just before we go, is there anything you want to add that maybe I forgot to ask you about? Well, plenty about the swimmer. You've opened Pandora's box there. Just as a general thing, you know, I've done... Uh, so many uh, oral histories of my own, so I've come to know that uh, some people uh, remembering their best 
they can after a long removal of years uh, may still get some details uh, wrong and uh, so just as a general caveat maybe you could say the same thing about everything that I've been telling you but uh, to the best of my ability as I say I've tried uh, to recall all of this and the memories of that summer of 66 were particularly uh, vivid to me because unlike most memories from all those years ago this is a me- these are memories that I've been reliving and reliving all all the time uh, in, in my mind and, and sharing with people over the years uh, so uh, with all of that le- leads into the fact that I can't remember exactly uh, where the Perry's home was when I visited them after the shoot, but this would have had to have been, I think, in in 66, probably before I went uh, back uh, to college. And uh, I remember uh, that they were editing the uh, television uh, special they did of Truman Capote's A Christmas Memory with Geraldine Page. It turned out to be a beautiful uh, piece of work when it was aired on ABC that, that December. But uh, they were w- working on the editing of that uh, at the time that I visited them. So some of what I remember, uh, some of the scuttlebutt may have come from uh, one of the editors. Uh, I do remember definitely Eleanor Perry herself telling me uh, that she had written uh, the magazine article uh, uh, that at that time she still uh, intended to have published uh, about uh, the, uh, the their bitter hers and Frank's bitter experience over uh, the swimmer uh, with uh, Sam Spiegel and uh, was going to call it the bitter no uh, the, uh, the the shallow end. Um, in incidentally speaking of. Uh, Frank Perry uh, and uh, Sam Spiegel, when we had uh, the wrap on the picture, we all of us got little lovely uh, silver shot glasses. I guess, can you call it uh, glass when it's not silver? From Tiffany's. And it was uh, The Swimmer, 1966, Uh, Sam uh, Spiegel, Burt Lancaster. No mention of... (laughs) Frank uh, Perry on it, and we had never seen the uh, Heidner hair of Sam Spiegel the whole time. He never uh, visited uh, during the shoot. Be that as it may, uh, by the time that I uh, visited them, uh, they uh, had learned that uh, Spiegel had shown uh, the scenes, uh, the scene with Barbara Loden. Uh, the rushes of that, uh, or maybe the edited version, for all I know, uh, to uh, her husband, Elia Kazan, who, of course, had a history with Eagle going back to uh, on the waterfront. And uh, uh, Kazan had uh, gone on the attack against his wife's uh, performance and uh, definitely uh, seemed to be recommending that it be uh, scrapped uh, and ultimately, we know it was uh, scrapped, uh, and the scene was reshot in California with Janice Rule and Sidney Pollack uh, directing. I remember at the time all of these wounds were still fresh, and that uh, the uh, the Perrys uh, were sort of expressing shock and dismay. How can somebody you're married to who loves you uh, go on the attack uh, like that? Uh, against her. They, it was hard for them to fathom. I know now that uh, the betrayal was also uh, 
even more direct to the Perrys because I learned in that uh, documentary footage on the Blu-ray that before uh, Kazan went in to uh, uh, view the rushes and uh, put the axe uh, on uh, Barbara Loden with Sam Spiegel, he had told the Perrys when he saw it uh, that uh, he, he, he thought it was great and, and he loved it. So it was so uh, it was a double uh, betrayal for him to turn around and say exactly the opposite uh, to Spiegel when uh, when they were talking about it. So uh, go figure. Interesting times. Yeah, you, you get disheartened sometimes uh, when people whose work is so great and has meant so much to you uh, act like human beings with feet of clay and all of that. Uh, it makes it all the more precious, I guess, for me when I meet somebody who does live up as a human being to uh, the best of their work. Uh, um, but so it goes. I just want to put in a good word for an actress sadly no longer with us named Diane Vanderlis. Uh She was in that first scene. Uh, she was one of the people lounging around the pool when Lancaster dives in and gets the idea to swim home. Uh, there was... Uh, a, a beautiful moment. Again, this uh, maybe just an idiosyncrasy of mine to focus in on little details and and make much of them. But uh, when Lancaster is talking to the uh, his uh, friends and uh, saying, "I can go to this pool and then, and then I'll go to uh, uh, over there to the, the Joneses and over there to the Smith's house and then the, uh, what the next house what." I'm drawing a blank. What, what house is that? And so then yeah, there's a close-up of uh, blonde, uh, very uh, pretty uh, Ms. Vanderbliss uh, with a glass in her hand. And it's just the way she says, uh, Shirley Abbott, and the look on her face. that You know just from the way she said that that there's got to be a lot of big significance uh, uh, to do with Ned Merrill and Shirley Abbott. We have no idea what it could be at that time. But uh, I think as much as any actor can, she was able to uh, put into that first scene some of that special uh, feeling uh, that it's more than meets the eye that's going on here. And uh, I just uh, love that uh, little moment. A uh, very famous actress and playwright, Cornelia Otis Skinner, played... Uh, one of the first people that Ned Merrill encounters, she's the one whose uh, son is dead and who had been a friend of Merrill's and whom Merrill had never visited uh, in the hospital when he was sick. Do you remember that scene? Uh, and so well, she reads the riot act uh, to Ned Merrill. Uh, this is uh, something uh, that's fascinated me about uh, filmmaking uh, since I have been able to be on a few sets and locations over the years. I remember being getting a chill uh, being on the location, hearing her and, and watching her uh, scold uh, Lancaster from the bottom of her heart. Uh, she really... Uh, uh, put so much feeling into it, and I and I got uh, chills and tingles. I'd never got the same feeling watching uh, the scene in the film. And well, what this comes down to is that there is some mysterious alchemy about film uh, and uh, filming actors uh, that uh, you you never can predict what is going to work. Uh, on screen the same way it works in person. Uh, sometimes it's going to be great 
while it's being shot, and it's going to be great in the screen. They always talk about how Garbo and Gary Cooper didn't seem to be doing anything when you'd be watching them shoot, but then on the screen you'd see it was all in their eyes, and uh, and the whole world of drama was going on, and it was there on the screen. So that's just one of the mysteries of movie making in general, and uh, that was my first uh, inkling of it uh, with uh, that. Um, let me see here. Uh, had some other things I wanted to be sure to mention. Um, uh, I, <laughs> I just uh, remember the uh, last uh, few days of uh, shooting uh, at the uh, the headquarters, which was, as I say, in the Norwalk uh, Motor Inn. Um, uh, everybody uh, was feeling a little uh, giddy after a long summer shoot, and they were conducting business as usual, all the behind-the-scenes office uh, people in the film company, but they were all doing it as if they were all Frank Gorshin doing his famous impersonation of Burt Lancaster. So they wouldn't just say, uh, hey, have the cans of film come in yet? It would be like, have the cans of film come in yet? And they'd stick out their jaw and the teeth the way Gorshin would do. Uh, apparently, uh, there was a little bobblehead of a, a vampire, a little toy on the counter. Uh, you would uh, touch the bobblehead, and the sign would pop up saying, uh, Give blood. And somebody, uh, I remember, joked, said, uh, uh, You should give this uh, to, uh, to Bert. And somebody said, If I gave it to Bert, it would say, Give back blood. So uh, apparently, uh, he'd been a hard tax master for them. But. Uh, Anyhow, that was uh, another fun memory. Uh, other than that, I just want to thank Dave Quaid again, the uh, the cinematographer. Uh, he uh, took me aside and uh, said, uh, you know, it's uh, well and good that you're getting an idea of uh, you're experiencing the production, but if uh, you'd like, if you want to make movies, you really have to know what a camera can do. And uh, so he started giving me a little tutorial uh, at lunchtime. Uh, I am sorry that I wasn't able to maintain it uh, for very long, but I always appreciated that he did that. And I still remember one of the first items from the first lesson was Latham's Loop. The fellow named Latham was the guy who devised a solution for a problem whereby film was always breaking when it was being projected. Uh, and uh, so have you ever threaded the film in a good old 8mm or 16mm projector? Oh, I used to work uh, at a movie theater at one point, so I know all about threading up projectors. So you remember that loop where the film uh, is just sort of up in the air. It doesn't just go past the uh, the, the, the glass light uh, window. It sort of loops up above it in the air. That was uh, so that it wouldn't break from the tension if it was going just in front of uh, that that window, uh, that, that lens. Uh, and that, was, that apparently... Uh, obviously became a very important uh, uh, part of uh, filmmaking, Latham's Loop. Of course, now that everything is going digital, it's probably going to be like a horse and buggy uh, someday, if not uh, already. But uh, uh, at least uh, at least I know it, and uh, I honor Mr. Latham's memory wherever he is. I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Well, it's been my pleasure. It was my pleasure to be on the picture, and it's been my pleasure to, uh, to remember it with you. Thank you very much for the opportunity to do so.
All right, we are back and we're talking about the swimmer. So as you've heard, this was not necessarily the uh, least troubled production that we've ever talked about. I mean, it's uh, we seem to talk about kind of these uh, uh, damaged films a lot on this show, Rob. But uh, this one, uh, it's interesting because I have to say that even though things were changed, I still like the swimmer. It just feels a lot of times like it's kind of an imperfect gem. And I don't know if it ever would have been a perfect gem, but I kind of would have liked to have seen that other version of that gem as well. Yeah, always. I mean, when we talk about uh, films that hit the rocks or they get taken over in the case of this film, um, you wonder what it would have been like if that one director would have had the opportunity to really execute their vision all the way through. And maybe there would have been uh, multiple versions because for me, hey, nothing better than watching four different versions of a movie, right? (laughs) one of my favorite activities yes (laughs) i mean it sounds like the production wasn't as troubled as the post it seems like this is really a i mean obviously from what we read him frank perry and Burt Lancaster didn't always see eye to eye, had some pretty explosive fights, but they still work together and they still seem to more or less, you know, uh, have a similar vision of things. But once once the producer more or less had control in the post-production, Sam Spiegel, uh, it becomes a very different uh, production, I guess. One of the things that was interesting that uh, Preston talked about in the interview was that he had read, uh, he had become good friends with the Perrys, and Eleanor Perry had written a piece called The Shallow End, which she was going to try and get uh, press uh, around the time that The Swimmer was going to come out, basically saying, well, this was our original vision, and what's coming out is not necessarily what we wanted and all of this. And it was really going to, you know, take a giant dump on the film, but uh, she was talked out of it. So it's, it's interesting that that still survives in terms of her notes, much like, I guess, uh, Wells's notes on things like touch of evil or Amberson's or things like that. Yeah. That the shallow end is available as a PDF on the uh, disc of the swimmer. Uh, the one of the versions of the script, uh, like I said before, I think it's the third draft. That's out there. Uh, the shallow end is out there. So you have all of those. Um, it's kind of odd the way that they have all these little documentaries, even though they seem like they're all part of one big documentary. But every once in a while, it's just like, and now credits, and now a title, and now credits. But anyway, nitpicking. Um, so you've got all of those documentaries on the disc but then to me the most valuable extra was the shallow end and the script because i'm a nerd and i love to read about stuff like this and i especially love to read the kind of the uh the even the notes that eleanor perry had put together for the shallow end to read her method of outlining to read the final version and then to read those extras of the actual letters that she and Frank had sent to Sam Spiegel. Very, very fascinating stuff. It was, uh, I really gave you a great glimpse into the creative process, especially those letters to have them talk about the different areas of these things. And uh, much to your point, Rob, it really reminded me of those Amberson's letters that uh, Orson Welles was sending back from Brazil and just saying like, hey, uh, you might want not want to have this here. And just him kind of talking his way through the edit of these things. And like you said, the touch of evil stuff where he could just really delineate what made a better version of the film, or at least his version of the film. And I think that, you know, I always like to see 
somebody in a creative position be able to get their vision across. Sometimes it's not necessarily the best thing in the world. You know, I think about that director's cut of Donnie Darko and I go, yeah, the studio really saved that movie because that director's cut is kind of a POS and the shorter, the, the uh, studio cut is actually a much better film, much stronger film. So who knows? We might see the original one of these days of the swimmer and go, yeah, no, we'll take the Sam Spiegel version. I mean, I'd settle just for the Barbara Lode. I mean, so we haven't really discussed it, but uh, Barbara, you know, Ilya Kazan's uh, wife or girlfriend at the time, I'm not sure. Uh, Barbara Lode in the was a model actor and directed uh, Wanda. Uh, and I guess she was cast in the role that uh, Janice Rule did in the retake. And I mean, I, I'd love to see what, what that plays out like. The idea of a totally different actor in a scene and a totally different chemistry is so fascinating. But there was a, a pretty cutthroat <laughs> uh, story uh, told by Eleanor Perry in terms of how Ilya Kazan kind of backstabbed them, I guess, in a sense, with Sam Spiegel to you know to get that scene uh, taken out of the film. Uh, it's pretty cold. Yeah, you would think that people would have known not to trust Ilya Kazan with stuff after a while, <laughs> especially after the HUAC stuff, but yeah, they, they seem to be okay. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And a lot of it, I mean, I felt bad for the Perrys because it felt like they signed the, the deal with the devil and then found out what a devil he was with this whole Sam Spiegel contract because it's like, okay, great, we're going to make a movie. You're making a movie with who? Oh my God, you are fucked. But they still went ahead with them I and they had to they were contractually obligated and then you know the whole thing of eleanor you know it's going back to the devil thing it's the devil you know so her sticking with this and even sticking with the whole dialogue rewrites and everything to the bitter end and it just must have been such a pill for her to swallow to see how things were changing before her very eyes with this do we know where Sidney Pollack came from in terms of getting this gig? Like, why him? Well, as is explained in uh, Kate's interview, uh, who wrote the book on Burt Lancaster, she said that Lancaster and Sidney Pollack had gotten to know each other um, over time through a few different ways, and then he mentioned that it might be good for him to, to do this piece. So it was, it was through a personal connection. Um, I think at that point, Pollock had done, uh, he had originally gone to the actor studio as an actor and then had done some, I believe, TV directing, but hadn't really had any film directing experience at that point. He had just directed uh, Lancaster in a movie called the scalp hunters in 68 as well. So I think that, uh, he was very fresh in, um, uh, in Burt Lancaster's mind. The, well, that might have been after, though, right? If this was shot in '66, maybe it was all concurrent around the. Same well, time. I think I think the original version was '66. I think that Lancaster then left this production, went and did some other stuff, and then when the time was right for the well, time was right when the time came for the reshoots, he said, "I know this guy. Bring him over, and he'll do the reshoots for me." The one good thing about it being Pollock was from the Eleanor Perry uh, document was the idea that he had seen the film and thought it was brilliant. And right. I think that's that's a great sign. I mean, for somebody who's going to come in and not just try to fuck up your vision, like he he was really moved by it, and uh, he even said, as long as Sam Spiegel doesn't fuck it up. So Pollock obviously went in with uh, good intentions on his part. Right, right. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this was prime 
Pollock or about to be Prime Pollock because we're just a few years away. Well, the next year is when we get They Shoot Horses, Don't They, Jeremiah Johnson, the way we were. I mean, this is really right there. I mean, he once he kicked off his career, the guy didn't look back. And he did a mean Harvey Keitel impersonation, I have to say. <laughs> Speaking of, that's another film that we need to see uh, what the original version was, because I would really be interested to see what Harvey Keitel did in that film before Sidney Pollack took his role. Yeah, it's, Poor it's Harvey really Keitel. hard to imagine. I can't yeah. see it. When you watch him, and again, it's another case where you just you can't even really imagine it, because I, I feel like Pollock's actually the best, one of the best things in Eyes Wide Shut. His scenes are, are so natural. I... <laughs> it's poor Harvey Keitel between Eyes Wide Shut and then Apocalypse Now. It's like, okay, you've just been cut out of two fairly iconic roles, but whatever. I mean, the guy's the guy's no slouch. He still has uh, a lot of good things under his belt. Yeah, he's doing good. Okay. Yeah. So, Rob, did you want to talk about some similar shows? I know Elric, you hit on Mad Men, uh, which was yeah uh, a, a great call on that one. Well, that was the thing when I interviewed Kate Buford, uh, who wrote the um, Burt Lancaster interview, which you heard. She brought up Mad Men. She goes, in a lot of ways, she sees Merrill, Ned Merrill as a continuation of uh, the John Hamm character from uh, Mad Men. So um, I, not knowing Mad Men, had watched it. Um, I was leaning on you guys, and you guys have brought it up several times, but maybe kind of put a, a finer point on why you might see these two guys as connected. Beyond the fact is, I thought it was interesting uh, that she had brought it up when I watched it again this time, playing close attention to the fact that he worked at a creative agency, so I'm led to believe he works in marketing or um, advertising, which I believe is the, the main point of Mad Men. I've only seen, like five episodes of Mad Men so far, so I don't know that the big twist is coming, other than everybody has already talked about it in the entire world, so I already know what's coming. It's kind of like, I know that the mountain is going to kill the guy on the Game of Thrones and this and stuff, even though I've never watched the show. I know every fucking thing about the show because of popular culture. So, Elric, feel free to ruin <laughs> well, there's this actually one not, for me. Uh, there's actually not any <laughs> the, the twist of Mad Men is there's actually no big twist in Mad Men. There, it was one of those shows because the opening credits have a, has a man falling through uh, the air, looking like he maybe jumped out of a window. I think a lot of people watched that show thinking it would end in that kind of uh, operatic way, but it really it really is a lot more uh, kind of realist in a sense by the by the time. So I won't ruin it for you, but don't expect uh, major fireworks. But it, it literally, I'm not kidding when I say it literally could have ended with the swimmer. You could have had a character go through everything that happens in the, in the show. Uh, you know, eventually he loses his family because he's always philandering, but he his success working. He just keeps going up the ladder and becoming. He's really defined by the persona he has adopted at work and the persona he's adopted in the bedroom with different women, but he can't actually succeed at real intimacy with one woman. And that's why his marriages will never work. And he, and he, and you know, so it's, it's very similar. I mean, the world, he also lives in the uh, Connecticut and commutes into New York. So I'm sure that would have been a similar trajectory to the uh, Merrill character. So I, I, I would be shocked if um, uh, the creator of Mad Men wasn't already, a fan of Cheever in general because of all, all his stuff's kind of set there uh, in that kind of world. So there, there really are a lot of rife uh, connections between the two. Well, well, isn't the whole thing, and now this is me hearing bits and pieces over the years about Mad Men, 
my guess and what I've been led to believe is that Don Draper isn't really Don Draper, that he adopted somebody else's name and or personality and kind of this whole thing is him playing a role that he actually isn't the guy who he says he is. I'd forgotten that's a twist. That's in the, but because that's so early. That's in season one. I mean, that's really early. Maybe even halfway through season one, it's really about you. You do discover that uh, he was actually at war in Korea, and the guy next to him uh, dies. So he takes changes dog tags with him. So Don Draper. Uh, so whoever he is has died, and he comes back as this other guy and just kind of slinks into society. So it's about a facade, uh, adopting a facade, and how far you can get with that. And to, even when people find out, some don't. Even even care because he's successful they don't give it you know it's it, so yeah i'd forgotten about that element of it but uh and there, i guess there's a lot of that to ned i mean the facade he started the story with as far as we've seen he's come back like everything's fine and we're you know then we kind of peel back the layers and we really don't know who he really is and what he's really been going through I guess it's kind of like uh, the return of Martin Gare or any of the remakes of that by any of these names. Or well, there was a movie that was out just like a couple of years ago where a soldier comes home from the war and he says that he's the other guy, but he's not the other guy. He oh, the is, guest or something. The, the, thank you. I think that was what it was. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, I mean, it's a good conceit, you know, it, it, it keeps you in, it's a, it's a fascinating one because it means a, we all love watching characters lie in movies, but also there's a chance of being found out. I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty bold, a bold thing to attempt because if somebody actually knew that person, it's, it's the lie is going to come crashing down, uh, which makes for pretty good drama. I always like it from the other way when you have the character who, uh, we talked a few weeks ago on the show about uh, 13 and the idea of the, the kid in that who kind of takes over for the guy who is supposed to be part of this uh, Russian roulette contest. And, you know, he shows up and people are just like, you're not who the, you are. And, you know, that, he gets found out very early on. But speaking of another Mickey Rourke film, the uh, the film White Sands, I love a film like that where we don't know what this courier guy, this connection guy was supposed to be. And Willem Dafoe, in order to solve the mystery, takes over the guy's name and, uh, you know, not necessarily his personality, but adopts the guy's name and role and then infiltrates this whole thing. And it's just a matter of when is he going to get found out? Who knows what this guy actually looks like? So I love mysteries like that. And this is, I mean, really there's a lot of mystery elements to the swimmer. And that's one of the things I like about it is that it keep, we keep going, we keep guessing, we keep finding out a little bit of information like any good mystery has. There's a fun Delmer Dawes film called Mr. Budwing uh, with James Gardner that I think also has a lot of similarities. He just you know wakes up with amnesia and slowly pieces things together about all the different women in his life and how he interacted with them. Very similar structure. It's not it's not quite as uh, as evocative a film, but I would have recommended to people if they if they really like this one. Well, I guess along those lines too to think about a film like Memento, where you know Sammy has his. Uh, uh, memory problems, but the way that he projects them onto the Sammy Jamkis character, the way that uh, he tricks himself, the way that he writes the notes to himself to form his own mystery and to be the bearer of his own justice and to keep himself you know, in that pretend world that he's crafted for himself, I think is very, very Nettie Merrill. 
Mm, yeah, just holding on. There's uh, a few other more sort of straightforward, I guess, narratives that the film reminded me of um, visiting the past in some way. I mean, obviously, the most uh, well-known version of this would be something like uh, Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol, you know, where the ghosts uh, take them through and here's your life. Um, but the one that uh, isn't as disconnected in that way where he's, you know, seeing himself from the outside is uh, Wild Strawberries where the uh, the writer's going back to his college to be honored, and as he's along the path, there are these scenes or these memories of his past. Um, so so I have that kind of uh, idea as well, you know. Um, obviously done in a, in a different take. And then there was um, some that were not dramas. I mean, obviously The Swimmer is a drama. Um, it does have a few jokes here and there and laughs, but it's a drama um the the ones that i was thinking of one that actually is related to pools um uh, it's it's not great it's not one of his best although i'm a big fan of his and it and it's probably been well over a decade since i've seen it is robert downey senior's hugo pool have hmm. either of you seen this i did when it came out yeah, yeah it's one of his it was his last film right yeah, it was his last full feature, and that was in 97. And basically what it is is uh, Alyssa Milano pl- plays a character who runs a pool company. So she goes and cleans pools in Los Angeles and, of course, runs into all these crazies. And so that's that's a similar kind of idea of using pools, I guess, although I wouldn't necessarily say that the pools have any symbolic thing. It's just somebody trying to do their job. The But where I think uh, I find similarities in terms of um, sort of society and making fun of uh, folks with means would be, um, hey, are you guys ready? Because I'm back, which means uh, you got to take a drink when I say it, is um, our good friend uh, Luis Bunuel again. And basically his stuff from the 60s and into the 70s where he's critiquing um, class. upper class people, yeah. class culture. So Exterminating Angel, um, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, things like that. And then I would even go into um, Paul Bartel, who I to me, uh, Paul Bartel's stuff at times, like the class struggle in Beverly Hills. And, um, and of course, uh, you know, cannibalism, but, you know, kind of the idea of uh, class structure in a, a film that we covered, Eating Raul. So um, so it's been done in other places in terms of uh, poking fun at class, talking about class, but I think that this sort of sits on its own in its own way of doing it and is still a rather unique film uh, from that yeah, regard. And that clash, like you were you're saying at the very start of the show, the clash of a, a kind of a new Hollywood uh, vision and director, but very much still within a studio system with a studio star and the problem inherent in those two things colliding. It makes for this just fascinating, unique film that I love, but I can also totally understand why it didn't land at the time. This is one of those movies where just like people can easily think that this is too weird. You know, I mean, I put weird in quotation marks, but I can really see why people would have not gone for this movie at the time. And like I said before, that you have to watch it twice. It's just like, oh, forget that. You know, that's way too much thinking for me. Well, I mean, I think it's probably part of the reason why, and it does have its faults, and we've already referenced it, Eyes Wide Shut, why um, that was a problem. Because you have this guy who's the biggest star in the world starring in this odd, esoteric um, film. 
you know, in a way. So much the same way to Lancaster. I mean, Lancaster at this time, uh, his star was falling a little bit. He didn't quite have the star power that he had back in the back in the fifties or maybe a little earlier, um, or early sixties. But um, still, people had a certain expectation of him, and. I, I think it's much the same way as uh, when we talked about Once Upon a Time in the West, when Henry Fonda gets to play the bad guy. People went to Once Upon a Time in the West to go, hey, Henry Fonda, he always plays the good guy. Oh, no. <laughs> so it was jarring for people who expected that star to continue to do the same thing they always did. And yeah, all of those films are better later. Like They're just movies that really kind of grow in your mind. Yeah, I was so surprised when I was watching the extras for this and Burt Lancaster's daughter was talking about how Sweet Smell of Success was not a success when it came out and that it wasn't until years later that people started to warm to that film. And it's just like, wow, because now, you know, us, our generation, we hold this thing up as if it was, you know, manna from heaven. And to think that anybody didn't like it when it came out, it's just so shocking to me. So dive into the swimmer. If uh, if you've made it all the way through this far and you haven't seen it yet, I I don't know why you're still listening. But uh, yeah, if you, movies ruined. Sorry, yeah, sorry. We, oh, and I, the best thing on the extras for me that I hadn't gotten to till last night was uh, listening to John Cheever read the story. Oh uh, yeah, short story is fantastic because I'd read the short story a long time ago, but just hearing in his his voice, which is a very specific accent, and uh, just what he accentuates, which words he really uh, leans on, it's 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 really worth worth your time. Yeah, there's so much good scholarship about the short story, and there have been probably hundreds to one as far as the number of pages and words written about the swimmer versus the actual short story itself, because the short story is short. I was very uh, fascinated to find out that it was supposed to be a novel, and that Cheever cut it down from, I think, 150 pages to what it is today, which was kind of surprising but I, I he did a brilliant job with it and it tells us so many things in just such a scant amount but yeah there have been people that have said oh well this is a grail story this is you know this type of story that type of story and it, they have been great scholarship about this and then uh there hasn't necessarily been as much written about the movie. They tend to focus more on the uh, the short story, but the short story is a great entree into uh, the the conversation that we're having today. And I, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it or listening to it. Though I really wish that NPR would have cut out all of those little like coughs and um, the, the times where he takes a drink because I'm just like as a, a an audio editor, it was just driving me up a fucking wall listening to it but hey that's me i'm kind of ocd <laughs> that way all right we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show work makes a man of you sex makes a man of you and that was the one way of becoming a man he was most anxious to try and he tried and he tried he tried. Now, from the company that brought you Dear John, comes Closely Watched Trains.
closely watched trains, continue the New York Times, is superior and unique. It shows cinematic ingenuity, comic brilliance, and a charming and poignant comprehension of the psychology of sex. Life went on to say that the scene depicting the seduction of a girl telegrapher is surely one of the great comic erotic sequences in film history. Train. That's right. We'll be back next week to kick off a little something around here that I'm calling Czech Timber. That's where we're going to be looking at a quartet of films from the former Czechoslovakia. And we are starting things off right with a look at Yuri Menzel's closely watched trains. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Elric and Rob. Rob, are you still losing your mind in Detroit Rock City? Of course. How can you not? I mean, uh, I, I do my best each and every day. So uh, as for me, I've been keeping myself busy with the day job, um, getting myself ready uh, to get married in October. And uh, record label's doing well. Hold fast. You can find out more at hfvinyl.com. Uh, the Orbit book's still out there, and it's doing well, still selling. And um, trying to work on a few other projects. I did talk about the Film Threat book before when I was talking to you, Mike, I hit a slight hiccup with a publisher. So if there are any publishers that are out there, if there's any people that are like, hey, you should talk to this publisher, feel free to pass them my way because I am more than willing to listen to ideas on how to uh, make that book become a reality. Beyond that, no, doing all right, uh, enjoying life, feeling good, and uh, feeling healthy. So uh, I hope you are as well, uh, my friend. I just realized that I'm not going to be around for your wedding. Well, you know, um, I know that you'll send your your love from far away, and uh, maybe the missus will be joining us. Yeah, let's hope so. So, all right. Well, sorry in advance about that. And Elric, I just read that you went over us uh, flyover states recently. How did that go? It was fun. Uh, so I do uh, the Pure Cinema podcast with uh, Brian Sauer, and he's been working for a few years collecting interviews uh, about people who are affected by Danny Perry's cult movie books and other other Perry books. And uh, so we kind of, I kind of tried to. Uh, get him to go to New York so we could actually get interviews with Danny Perry himself. So we spent three days in New York interviewing Perry, uh, which was pretty great. I mean, pretty, you know, the, it's it's a book that, you know, really shaped my early cinephilia and uh, and also Brian. So it was, it was a lot of fun getting that experience and uh, met a couple listeners too, which is always, it's always fun going to, you know, big cities. And if some, even one person has heard your show, it's always a, it's always a buzz. Very cool. And where's the best place for people to go and find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, the two podcasts are uh, Shockwaves, which is just um, on iTunes or whatever. That's the horror podcast uh, for Blumhouse and uh, Pure Cinema. Same thing on Twitter or uh, iTunes. Very cool. And I'll be sure to link to your podcast. I'll be sure to link over to your website, Rob, which is robstmary.com, if memory serves. 
Thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Well
my allowance Nine times is hard But my mama and my daddy Got a swimming pool in their backyard With a diving boat And a jacuzzi for two So I'm inviting all the kids in the neighborhood So I can see you in your bathing suit It's a pool party Pool party Pool party I threw a pool party for you Oh, splishing and splashing With all my friends Till I smacked my noggin From diving in the shallow end I ate too many hot dogs Now I got a cramp Oh, my head and my belly and my heart are aching Oh, baby, where you at? It's a pool party Pool party Pool party I threw a pool party for you In the neighborhood So I can see you In your bathing suit It's a Pool party Pool party Pool party I threw a pool party For you Oh it's a Pool party Pool party Pool party I threw a pool party For you Yes I threw A pool party Pool party For you Thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.